Well, one of my devices says it's five. Okay. Oh, we got five. Porter, are we good? Sherry? I'm ready. Okay. Welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday, July 19th, 2022, Lawrence City Commission meeting. Um, we will actually first remove to an executive session. When we return, we'll give our um, explanation of how the meetings work. Um, I will uh, entertain a motion. Uh, Go ahead. Motion to recess to executive session. Do I have to do both of them for just the first one? Do the first one. Okay. Uh, for approximately 15 minutes to discuss privileged legal communications from the city's attorney attorneys regarding state statutes pursuant to KSA 75-4319B2. The justification for the exec executive session is to keep attorney-client privilege matters confidential at this time. The city commission will resume its regular meeting in the commission room at approximately, so. 516. Yeah, 516 after the executive session is concluded. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes four to zero. We will return in 15 minutes. Uh, we are returning from an executive session. However, we would like to add additional time. Move to extend the executive session five minutes. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Welcome everyone back to the July 19th, 2022 City Commission meeting. We've had uh, two executive sessions. We have nothing to report from our last executive session. Uh, we will go back and make our announcements for the public who wasn't um, here at the time so they understand how our meetings uh, proceed. And I will start with Porter Arneal to give us some kind of explanations. Thank you, Mayor. Good evening, everyone. I just have a few housekeeping items for the Zoom meeting tonight. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting unless you are speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you are participating in the meeting, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And now I'll turn the meeting back over to Mayor Shipley. Thank you, Porter. Uh, next, we'll have uh, Sherry Riedemann explain how public comment primarily works. Thank you. Yeah, just a few notes on public comment. When the mayor calls for public comment, individuals attending in person should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak. The podium can be raised and lowered, and we encourage you to use this feature to ensure your comments are heard. Individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. Please leave your virtual hand raised until, until you are called on. Individuals will be called on in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. Uh, please state your name before speaking and all public comments need to be limited to three minutes. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you. Let's move on then to approving the agenda. The City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Do I have any motions from City Commissioners? Move to approve the agenda. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 
Aye. That passes five to zero. Um, next, let's move on to our proclamations. Um, first, we want to proclaim Tuesday, July 19th, 2022 as Americans with Disabilities Act Day. And I think we have someone here. Oh, there you are. Right. Uh, good evening, Madam Mayor and Commissioners. Uh, my name is Evan Corenta, and I'm the city's ADA Compliance Administrator. Uh, and I'd like to personally thank you for recognizing and honoring this landmark federal legislation that passed in July of 1990. The Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, provides the most comprehensive protection for people with disabilities against discrimination. The passing of the ADA provided a needed roadmap to the country and our local communities to raise awareness and proactively create a more inclusive and accessible environment. And humbly, it also showed us the tremendous amount of work we have left to do to ensure accessibility for all. As we continue making improvements as part of the city's ADA transition plan, I am proud of Lawrence's work over the last 30 plus years in creating a more accessible, integrated and inclusive community. And I look forward to the many projects and ideas in front of us to continue advancing inclusion and participation for the future to help us create a community where all enjoy life and feel at home. Thank you again. Thank you, Evan. Um, with that, I will read the proclamation. <clears throat> Whereas the Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, was passed in July 26, 1990, to ensure the civil rights of people with disabilities, this legislation established a clear and comprehensive national mandate for the elimination of discrimination against individuals with disabilities. And whereas the ADA has expanded opportunities for Americans with disabilities by reducing barriers and changing perceptions and increasing full participation in community life. However, the full promise of the ADA will only be reached if we continue our efforts to fully implement it. And whereas on this day, we in the city of Lawrence, Kansas, celebrate and recognize the progress that has been made by reaffirming the principles of equality and inclusion and recommitting our efforts to reach full ADA compliance. Now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim July 19th, 2022 to be Americans with Disabilities Act Day and encourage residents to re recognize the positive impact the Americans with Disabilities Act has had in our city and can you continue to work toward fully accessible and inclusive community. Thank you again. Uh, next, we will proclaim July 2022 as Parks and Recs Month, if my computer decides to do that. Derek's coming up. Good, he can talk while I <laughs> my computer go. <laughs> no, no, it's good. I just didn't want to start. Go ahead. Thank you. Okay. 
Good evening, Mayor Shipley and City Commissioners. I'm Derek Rogers, Director of Parks and Recreation. And with me tonight, I have our Assistant Directors, Mark Hecker and Lindsay Hart. We also have some folks online. Um, our employees take great pride in the services and amenities, parks and open spaces they provide to uh, citizens of Lawrence to help contribute to the health and well-being of all Lawrenceans. On behalf of the Parks and Recreation, Employees, thank you for proclaiming the month of July Parks and Recreation Month. Thank you all for all your work. Um, all right. Um, whereas parks and recreation programs are an integral part of City of Lawrence, and whereas our parks and recreation programs are vitally important to establishing and maintaining the quality of life in our community, ensuring the health of all citizens and contributing to the economic and environmental well-being of the community. And whereas parks and recreation programs build healthy, active community and aid in the prevention of chronic disease, provide therapeutic recreation services for those with special needs, and improve and the mental and emotional health of all citizens. And whereas parks and recreation areas are fundamental to the environmental well-being of our community, and whereas our parks and natural recreation areas ensure the ecological beauty of our community and provide a place for children and adults to connect with nature and recreate outdoors, and whereas the City of Lawrence recognizes the benefits derived from parks and recreation resources. Now, therefore, I, Courtney Shipley, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim the month of July 2022 as Parks and Recreation month and recognize that Lawrence Parks and Recreation serves as a significant gateway to our community's physical and mental health and well-being year-round. Thank you. Thank you. We normally have, we would have a recognition of a, uh, someone today, but they're unable to come. So we will skip that to another day and we'll move on to the consent agenda. Uh, all matters listed on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and will be approved by one motion. There will be no separate discussion on those items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda and will be considered separately. Members of the public wishing to speak to an item that has been pulled off the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. Um, commissioners, are there any items you would like to remove from the consent agenda? Yeah, I would like to remove D7, C, D, and E. I would like to remove item D4. Whoever's keeping track. Uh, any other items, commissioners? Uh, Commissioner Sellers? Oh. Nope. Okay. Um, are there any items the members of the public in the room would like to remove? Not seeing any. Is there anyone? Oh, oh, oh. Terry Wilkie, I apologize if I'm duplicating Lisa, but we can't hear in here. Yeah. It, okay. Yeah. Uh, D7D. D7D? That's the plastic bag ordinance. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh, is there anyone online? Uh, if you would like to remove something that hasn't already been removed, you can uh, use the raise your hand function to indicate. Uh, there's no one online, Mayor, that All right. wants to pull an item. Good, thank you. <clears throat> um, then I would entertain a motion. 
move to approve the consent agenda with the exception of D7, C, D, and E, and D4, right? Second. Oh, I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 That passes five to zero. Uh, the first item is one that I removed, which was D4. Um, that is approved licenses as recommended by the city clerk's office. Um, I wanted to kind of clarify something. Um, this particular business was unable to meet its 45% um, sales or to meet its sales percentage in the past. And I appreciate that they would want to bring a text amendment forward, but that will almost definitely take more than six months. Um, so I don't expect other commissioners to uh, join me on this, but the, the rules exist as they exist. And the rules are um, you have to sell a certain amount of food in order to sell, in order to maintain an establishment downtown. So um, I would um, personally want to revisit this um, uh, or to avoid wasting time, simply vote against it. Is there any discussion from other commissioners? Um, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm I was just going to have to ask, ask the staff. I don't sure someone talk us through the the information we have and the, the timeline. Sure. So um, as the mayor stated, this um, business had previously not been in compliance. That was in uh, December. Uh, it was in uh, 2016 in July when they did their first renewal. Uh, we worked with them and within six months, they were back into compliance, meeting that 55% food sales requirement and stayed in compliance until um May of 2020. And Eliza, our deputy city clerk, is also on the call in case I get any of those specific dates um, incorrect. Again, they were meeting it until that time and have struggled to meet it. I expect as we have other businesses renew, they were are going to struggle to meet, have met that during that time as well, considering the state allowed um, to go liquor. Um, so what we basically we had a conversation with them and planning. Uh, Jeff Crick is also on the line and can comment more on the text amendment piece. Um, and uh, they are working with them. And typically when there is sort of a, a case like this, they would wait till that plays out before they would um, take any type of code enforcement action. Um, so this is sort of what we, we landed on. Again, the business, um, I believe the, the owner and manager are online if you have questions for them. They are looking at other options now that we have changed the code so that it's not just food sales. It now says that you cannot have more than 55% in um, liquor sales. So we, uh, this is this is the uh, what we all felt. We also ran it by Randy and the city attorney's office, Randy Larkin. And this is what we thought would be the appropriate action at this time was to go ahead and uh, renew it for six months. And then um, that would come back to you in six months for approval beyond that, because currently our code requires commission approval for any liquor licenses. And if there's any additional information that you want, just let me know. Yeah, I might want to follow up on um, something you said there, which is that um, in a case such as this, is, um, that might be a question for Jeff. Did you mean generally planning issues or uh, where someone comes out of compliance with code in general or specifically with um, alcohol sales? Uh, 
it would be more of a planning issue, but I would let Jeff respond to that. Jeff Craig, Planning and Development Services. Mayor, yes, it's when we have an item like that, we allow people a period of time to kind of correct and come into compliance before we go through, excuse me, go through an enforcement procedure. So it allows them a chance to, to kind of get back into the into the right side of the code before we go through all of that process. And we felt it was warranted in this instance also. Um, knowing um, the level of public engagement that this community expects, do you actually think six months is enough time to change um, something as crucial um, as the percentage of alcohol in downtown? It may be. It just depends on the extent of the amendment the, the applicant proposes to put forward. And we have not received one yet, to my knowledge. I don't know the extent of what they're submitting for, but it, it is possible, yes. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? Mayor, this is Commissioner Sellers. This is a question either for Cherry or, or Jeff. Um, do we have, have we had any other businesses that are up for renewal? who because of the pandemic may or may not be impacted by this. So we know that, is this the first one or is this the first one that's utilized wanting to present a tax amendment because they were not able to be in compliance due to the pandemic? We would, we would need to do a little bit more extensive review, but we haven't had this issue come up yet, but these are two-year licenses. So we may not see a trend in this until we move through the next couple of, you know, through this next year as people are getting into that renewal cycle. And correct me if I'm wrong, Eliza, but I don't believe um, we do. We are aware of a new business that will, a business that changed hands and is struggling to meet that Typically, uh, they are not required to submit them until their two, first two-year renew, renewal and it, renewal periods. Um, they initially submit a statement of gross receipts, basically saying what they think their sales will be. But that mm-hmm. issue is they're struggling to get the, the, the kitchen in, and they're struggling to get supplies, and they're struggling to get contractors. Right. So again, as a business is trying to make changes to meet this, they're running into those types of issues. Right. And I'm just wondering, because of the pandemic and because of the shift that allowed for outside to go sales, for those businesses whose two years overlap those pandemic years of 2020 and 2021, how much of an impact that would be on them or if we would know if they've been doing some some due diligence to see where they're at with their receipts to know if... There's going to, if it's going to sh- you know show that they've maybe they've gone over the 55 percent and what do we do in that case if there's a business that was open during the pandemic and they benefited from staying open but it resulted in an increase in more alcohol sales and food sales you know what are we going to do in that what would we do in that situation well we would be doing uh, something similar. I'm not suggesting they would do a text amendment, but we would assess the situation, whether, you know, if that's going to be a long-term problem. And right. we've addressed this with issues similarly in the, with other businesses similarly in the past. Again, it's the six month period was because that is what we had done previously. We thought even if it takes longer for the text amendment, at least in six months, we could see where they are in that process to ensure that they are pursuing that process or if they are pursuing other opportunities to meet the retail sales. 
Right. Um, I, I think, Sherry, you indicated the applicant is here. I can't see everyone, Sherry. So if you see them or they raise their hand, I would be happy to hear from them. Oh, oh sorry. Huh? Everyone. Hi, thank you, Mayor Shipley and commissioners. Uh, my name is Dante, and and I am the uh, the general manager of of the establishment in question. Um, we really appreciate everyone's consideration, Sherry. We appreciate you you working with us, Jeff, um, uh, of the the planning um, planning office. You as well. We um, we have indeed um, finalized as of today our our um, amendment proposal, and we'll we'll be submitting that to through the plan. We've been working with Jeff for for several weeks now, and, and sort of have have come up come about this um, this plan with Sherry in the last last few. Weeks as well. Um, we we certainly are not, you know, uh, asking for for a you know, like overthrow of, of the city code as as it was written in, in this particular provision that was part of the city code. Um, but um, but we are asking just that that we be given some time to to help that that um, amendment our amendment proposal move through the system and to be considered fully by by you all and by the community. Um, we really again appreciate that the code is in place and we. Um, but, but but we do want to be able to account for the existence of businesses such as such as ours, which are very very different from um, the ones in which the law was written in 1996 to to um, uh, address in the first place. And so, again, we certainly are not um, you know against anything with regard to this this code in the first place. But we are um, simply asking for for some time as it related to the pandemic. Um, we were not able to meet. Um, that 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 percentage, and um, we we believe that that our um, uh, our plan going forward is 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 will simply be to to kind of address that. So thank you. I hope that answers your questions. If yeah. there are any any others, I, I would be happy to answer them. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, is there any other questions from? Uh, are there any um, public comment from uh, the room? My name is Dr. Justin Spies. Uh, I'm running for uh, Douglas County Commissioner as a Republican here in District 1. And uh, Amber Sellers, I, th this point always has to be addressed, always. It wasn't the pandemic. It was the response to COVID. And my question is, I wonder if it's your guys' dumbass policies that contribute to this mess. So about closing down businesses, mask, making sure everybody has a mask out pumping out fear to your community that they don't even go out and support each other. I mean, you guys didn't even come back into the building until just this past April. What kind of leadership are you guys setting? No wonder everybody stayed in. I wonder if your property taxes contribute to that, man, not being able to afford that stuff. So I would suggest instead of coming in here and falling all over these fools, you start holding them accountable and say, what did you do to my business? Why'd you shut me down? It's always the response to COVID, not the pandemic, the response. Oh, sorry. All right, I'm going to read a friend thing. Hi, I'm Gary. Thank you for allowing this time. 
If we're including the letter of the law within the scope of this meeting with regard to the 45% of gross receipt requirements for an operating business, I think we should address the spirit of the code. This place that you were discussing is of tasteful and admirable, admirable business model that simply didn't exist when the law was written in 1996. I think given the original script of the law, which I understand to have been to keep clean and tasteful commercial district in Lawrence, this establishment does not negatively impact the culture, appearance, or safety of Lawrence. I've personally been helped and provided care for the staff who show this to every single customer they have. The six-month stay or extension of the liquor license, I don't see as a one upsmanship or giving them a competitive advantage just simply due to COVID and extenuating circumstances outside of COVID because it wasn't just that. They're working with you and hopefully can become a collaborator with the city and with the community to craft a whole for businesses that in America did not exist in 1996. Uh, thank you for the time. Hello, I'm Linda. Um, last time I spoke about uh, the Queens Road and also the Fantasyland sc uh, sculpture out there, and I wore my beautiful 25-year-old. Hold on, is this is this about specifically about this alcohol issue, or is this oh, general is public comment? About? Yeah. Oh, well, if you just if you wait just a little bit longer, we'll have our general public comment. Sorry. Any anyone else on this uh, item? Is there anyone online who wants to comment on this item? No, Mayor. Okay. Uh, Wait, I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> did you find someone? Yes, uh, Kyle Aldridge. Thank you. Can everyone see and hear me? Yes. Great. Hey, um, thank you for uh, taking the time. I was a little late with the raise hand button. Um, I just wanted to voice my unequivocal support um, to um, the proposal to grant the six month extension for John Brown's. Um, you know, I grew up in Lawrence. Uh, downtown Mastery is a great place. And John Brown's is one of the things that makes that great. Um, I don't think it presents any danger um, or, you know, negative effect to the community to give them this six months. Um, removing them from business, though, um, would be a huge loss to the community. Thank you. Thank you. And we have Brent Zay. Yes. Hi. Um, yeah, thanks for the time and allowing comments. Uh, yeah, I would also like to voice my support of uh, the three years I lived in Lawrence and was a grad student at the University of Kansas. And after school, um, I found incredible community and uh, sincerely found great um, compassion and, uh, as I already said, community within this uh, um, establishment and they bring so much uh, brightness and um, incredible uh, stellar craftsmanship to um, a business in downtown Lawrence that I think a six months extension to not only just work out new language in the law, but also help them come up to code would be more than uh, uh, more, more than more than enough time and, and adequate for a business that is this uh, stellar and brings a lot. Um, to the community. Thank you. Thank you. That is all the comments, Mayor. Okay. I'll bring it back to the commission. Anything? 
I'm fine with it. Okay. I'm fine with it as well. Um, I, I, I will be voting against this. The purpose of this is to, um, was whether I like it or not, the purpose of it was to prevent the over proliferation of bars and a business that primarily sells alcohol is a bar, regardless of how nice it is. Um, that is what the rules are. Um, this bar has been out of compliance in the past. Um, I probably would not have noticed it had that not been the case. Um, and so I appreciate the um, flexibility of staff and I appreciate the position of my um, commissioners, but I have to also respect the uh, people who created this um, and, and what their expectation of it was and their expectation of it was that I would um, enforce it. Um, so with that, I will accept motions. Mayor, real quick, this is Commissioner Sellers. I would add just a brief comment. I, I think um, if we weren't looking at this out within the context of a pandemic as it relates to an infectious disease that is COVID, um, you know, I would I would support your rationale for wanting to vote against it. Um, but I think within the context of, of a pandemic and knowing um, due to the safety measures, the public health measures that we had to put in place to protect community uh, did impact businesses and there are resources available out there to protect those businesses. Unfortunately, you know, we have code that doesn't speak to that and didn't speak, doesn't speak to pandemic type of uh, of situations. And so um, I think we have to remember that context and knowing that in other instances that I don't want to say grace, but there were extenuating circumstances that would allow for an extension for community for businesses to come back online or to meet compliance due to the pandemic. And so we have to look at that. And I imagine that this establishment may or may not be the only one um, that may come to us and may be impacted by that, or it may be impacted by this. So I just want us to keep that in mind that if we were looking at this outside of the context of a pandemic, my thoughts may be different, um, but that does have weight um, in this discussion and, and, and in this situation. Thank you, Commissioner. I'll entertain motions. This is Commissioner Sellers. I move that we approve um, licenses as recommended by the city clerk. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. All those opposed? Aye. Nay. That passes four to one. Um, next, that brings us to D7C. So I pulled the, all three of these were related to the Sustainability Advisory Board um, submitting to us some various ordinances. Um, and each one of those is asking for guidance from the city commission. So I just wanted to um, give us an opportunity to, to look at those to see how we want to handle them going forward. Um, do we want to, well, we can decide at that point, I will say. Okay. Um, my feeling about 
two of these at least is that they have not been reviewed by staff. And certainly with the first one, if we want to go in order, uh, the noxious weeds, invasive plants um, and managed natural landscaping, um, at the very least, I would like to be sure that Parks and Rec um, looks at it and is aware of it, um, as, as well as I I'm going to guess some other departments. Um, so at, at the cost of um, uh, putting in back into staff's hands, um, I think that's really the wise move here. There were some things in there I found um, very interesting, and we, we really need to take a very uh, measured look at uh, some of the verbiage. I would only add on that one, part of that, is related to new developments, which hmm. would likely be part of the development code, likely oh, yeah. be part of which Planning. will be looked at. Not all of it's related to new developments, and there's some different aspects to it. Um, but as it relates to the development code, I think it needs to be part of that process. Uh, I would concur that uh, it, at the very least, look, have it looked at by Parks and Rec and also the legal staff, um, just to make sure. So. Um, Commissioner Finkelty, are you suggesting just planning staff or planning commission? Well, I'm thinking about the Development Code Committee. Oh, okay. The Development Code Committee, um, because it, again, part of it applies to new developments and upon development and all that. Mm -hmm. Now, again, not all of that would be looked at by the Development Code Committee. That has several aspects in it. Some of it's parks and rec. Some of it's Enforce code enforcement and then uh -huh. some of its new development. So, yeah, definitely had questions about code enforcement. Commissioner Sellers, you have any thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I want it. Yes, I do believe it needs to go back to to legal and the staff to take a look at it. Um, because I could tell it the way it was presented to me, it almost looked like what I would consider in my neck of the woods a department document. So it's more like a policy document. So I, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to a policy document over an ordinance. And I don't know if that, you know, I'd like for staff to look at that as a recommendation um, since this covers, you know, a whole, this covers different entities as far as development code and sustainability and other pieces. So I don't know if an ordinance is the best place for this to live or should it be a policy document, almost like our economic development policy um, manual. So that would be just high level. That's where my thoughts are. Um, if this is something that the advisory board wants us to take a look at, I would like to see it as a policy document as opposed to an ordinance. I think that seems reasonable. Uh, would like to see staff take a look at it for sure. And and to see what they, um, how they analyze it. Um, and then at some point, if it needs to go that far, the attorney's office, but I think the idea of policy should be looked at. Um, I see Kathy here, but I did want to say one more thing. Um, I also don't know that it got very much public engagement, which is something we have dedicated ourselves to. Um, and and so I don't, I don't know to what extent that board feels it has capacity to get uh, public outreach and engagement um, on items such as those. But um, I, I, I would expect um, some discussion with the broader public um, on that. Um, was there anything you needed to say, Kathy? 
Good evening. This is Kathy Richardson, um, the Interim Sustainability Director. I'm just here in case there were any uh, questions. I will also note that we do have uh, three of our Sustainability Advisory Board members on Zoom that were lead on each one of these topics. And so if, if there's any questions for them, um, they'd be happy to answer uh, any questions or provide additional information as well. And I do see one raising um, their hand, Ben Sykes. Go ahead, Ben, I'll let you go. Yeah, thanks, this is Ben Sykes. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, thank you. Sorry, I'm at a soccer thingy. Um, so Mayor Shipley and commissioners, thank you guys very much for taking this up and, and thinking about it. Um, I appreciate the, the input that you guys have. I just wanted to speak to a few things. First, uh, the key goals of this were to first revise the weed ordinance itself, the text of which doesn't appear to have changed since 1979. We've also tried to revise the violation procedure, which includes a progressive fine system and the creation of an arbitration path. And then finally, we were trying to promote sustainable landscaping within our community, which offers numerous benefits that align with several strategic plan outcomes and indicators that are listed there in the ordinance. So um, just briefly, we've been working on it about 15 months. Uh, members of the public were actually the ones that first brought the issues of the weed ordinance to us, and that's how we took it up. Um, the subcommittee actually included both SAB members and members of the public as well as um, first Jasmine Moore and then Kathy attending. Um, I did uh, meet with um, Brian Jimenez, code enforcement manager, uh, twice during the crafting of that. And uh, we certainly appreciate more feedback from him. I also met with a representative of the Lawrence uh, Board of Realtors as well about the development aspect of this. Um, but otherwise we're keen to have more input from staff. Um, definitely legal review, which we've not been able to get so far. Um, particularly on things like the progressive fine system. And I just uh, say that, you know, we're happy to engage on it. Uh, I, I can understand that there are aspects of it that are policy, but certainly the, the elements of it that are the weed ordinance is an ordinance as it stands. And a lot of those concepts are revisions to the ordinance. So uh, I think it, it does occupy a tricky place in terms of uh, the elements of it that might need to be an ordinance. And I'm happy to answer any other questions you guys have. Thank you. Um, I, I think what I want to do here, because I think we have some consensus with commissioners, I don't want this to um, take over our agenda right now when we want to send it back to um, staff. Um, so I think what I'll do is make sure there's no public comment in the room on this item. Good evening, my name is Michael Allman. I'm with Sustainability Action Network, different from the Sustainability Advisory Board. Um, I just wanna point out the question of whether ordinance or policy. Right now, chapter, um, I believe it's chapter eight of the development code is where the weed ordinance appears. And like Mr. Sykes pointed out, it hasn't been changed since 1979. It's a very draconian section of the code. It uh, comes down very heavily on people who are trying to express themselves um, with landscaping designs, with food growing. Uh, it criminalizes certain kinds of plants improperly. It criminalizes behavior. It's something that 
we feel definitely needs to be changed and a policy will not do that. It's code right now. It needs to be addressed as code. And I think uh, Commissioner Finkeldeye's uh, note that the development code itself is up for reevaluation re and change, that this is a prime area for it to take place. Um, I struggled with the, the weed ordinance for 13 years in my permaculture urban landscape, trying to grow food, grow prairie plants, um, medicinal plants, pollinator attracting plants, uh, plants beneficial for um, for butterflies, monarch butterflies, for instance. I was I was uh, fined and um, told that I had to mow my property for 13 years until the city itself finally started growing natural landscaping all over the place, which is good. And it just needs to be codified so that everybody can do that legally. And I appreciate your time. And I'd like to see this uh, sent to staff to review for a code. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone online who has comments about this item? specifically the weed ordinance. Stephen Watts. If we're just talking about the weed ordinance, that's not what I want to focus on. Thank you. Okay. Um, let's bring it back to commission. Um, in terms of direction, is will that be enough for staff? Um, uh, this will, um, yes, we'll take a look at this prioritize it. We've heard some of your comments about the type of input you'd like. We'll put it into kind of a schedule and we'll try and figure out who it needs to go to next and kind of map that out um, and bring it back for a city manager's report sometime in the next uh, month. Is that satisfactory? Yep. 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 Commissioner Sellers, is that good with you? There's a motion we have to make? Is it, we just I think we're just yeah. receiving. Yeah, okay. So then let's go ahead and move to the next one, which was the plastic bag. And uh, Commissioner, you pulled it. So. Yeah, kind of just the same situation. Um, uh -huh. They've asked for guidance. And so I think um, it would be prudent for us to give that guidance. Um, and, and I would have the same feelings, which is that it very much needs to be looked at this more by legal staff than the last one, I think. Um, I would make the argument that this actually had quite a bit of public engagement, so I'm not going to make that argument, although anyone else is welcome to, um, because we were talking about this way before COVID. My recollection was we had um, some in-person public engagements um, by our previous sustainability um, uh, director, and, and, and there was quite a bit of um, engagement. So uh, nevertheless, there's some things in it I found um, surprising. Um, and just to throw it out there, the signage, the portion that required signage, um, I found um, perhaps a little onerous. Um, and I only say that because if others agree, we needn't bother staff with uh, researching that if, if we think that's um, outside, out, out of bounds. Um, any other comments? Well, I guess I'd just say. Sorry, go ahead, Commissioner. Just a minute. Well, I was just going to say, I, I mean, I, I do think that the sign part of it is is unique. Um, and and here, I think, though, a little different than the other one, um, like this one doesn't really have an enforcement provision. 
you know, and, and, and I think SAB even said they wanted the city staff or city to figure out how to enforce it. Um, so I think this would be one that we would get some general guidance from staff and then bring it back to us to have a more detailed, you know, not an in-depth review by staff, but, uh, you know, the other thing I would say is, you know, as I recall before COVID, the, the idea was a, a fee for the bags and that got a lot of attention. And then when it's come back to us, it's a bag ban. And, and so again, um, just bringing back those big issues, I think, to decide if, how, when, way we do that. So I, I do agree staff should look at this, but then I think it should come back more for a discussion where we could get people to provide their input and have a bigger discussion on which direction, if at all, we want to go. Commissioner Sellers. Yes, just to kind of echo a couple of sentiments from uh, Commissioner Finkeldai. Um, you know, I do want legal to take a look at, I did have some questions on a couple of the defined terms, um, specifically produce bag and product bag. Um, I do have some concerns with that. I'd like to hear from the advisory board their rationale with going with a ban instead of a fees when we know that, um, I mean, we know that there's been some initial studies around um, compliance as it relates to a bag ban, as it relates to bag fee charging for using bags. Um, I did notice that, um, you know, there wasn't, a, there was a section in regards to exemptions and it puts the onus on the, uh, on the establishment to provide those exemptions. Um, so I do have a little bit of a concern with that and then also with the enforcement piece. So um, I do like how this was provided to us in, or, in ordinance format, which was a little bit different than the noxious weed policy that was policy recommendations that was shared with us. Um, but I do want staff to take a look at and specifically in regards to some of those defined terms, the enforcement piece and some of the exemptions and to get a little bit more rationale from the advisory board as their rush, the reason for going with a ban as opposed to uh, a fee and not calling out in the ordinance uh, some of those exemptions for vulnerable populations. Any other comments, commissioners? Nope, I think that covered uh, mm -hmm. a lot of the things I was interested in or and or. Okay, so I want to be clear with the public what the commission is saying right now is they want to bring this back for further discussion and more time. So I'm sure there are lots of people that have opinions about this, um, but you don't have to talk about it today if you don't want to. Um, but if you would like to, you are welcome to. But this will come back again in the future and there will be robust discussion about it. But if you have a comment, sir, you're welcome. My name's Dan Cady and I live in Lawrence, Kansas. I've got a few things to say. We just came through a public health crisis. And I think that uh, reusable bags are a public health crisis. University of Arizona in 2011 did a study. Only 3% of the people uh, studied washed those bags on a regular basis. 99% of the bags had bacteria in them. Over 8% had E. coli. This uh, study was, was confirmed through the CDC. In 2013, uh, Loma Linda University did a similar study, same conclusion. 
also a paper bag. It's been shown to take four times as much energy to do as plastic bags. And I would, I would uh, challenge your board to, to go visit a, a plant that does um, recycled paper. And I've been to one. I've toured it. There's one in North Kansas City. It's not that far away. Go visit them. Go see what, what goes into that. And you can find it because when you go across the bridge at, in nor any time in North Kansas City on I-35, if you look down, you'll see all the smoke coming out of that tower. And that's from that, that recycling paper plant. The other thing I'd like to say is we pay enough for groceries now. Inflation's up 20% on groceries, and then you're going to stick a tax on the back end for sustainability? Good job. Good job. Okay, hold on. Hold on, doctor. I want to make sure the people out there can hear. Um, staff, that sounds like or uh, the video's frozen outside. I would also like to remind the uh, audience that um, it is our tradition not to clap. Um, it's distracting and it's also harder for people to hear. Um, that has been a tradition for many years. So it helps thank my you very much. Health to have people clap. So thank you. If you're concerned about other people's well-being, then be concerned. For Your time has started then. All right. Dr. Justin Spies running as a Republican candidate for uh, Douglas County Commissioner, District 1. I can't believe the time and money wasted for you guys to sit up here and talk about definitions of bags. Lord, help us. Terry Wilkie, citizen of Lawrence, Kansas. I'd like to thank everyone present for your kind consideration of these ordinances. And in my overactive imagination, as I drive around Lawrence, I see things and I'm critical. I'm, oh, this could stand improvement. And if I were a city commissioner, I would be so proud of the work that you all do for us. And I just wanted to say thank you very much. Thank you. Anyone else in the room on plastic bags specifically? Anyone online regarding plastic bags? Joel Campbell. Hi, my name is Joel Campbell. I'm with the Sunrise Movement. I just wanted to really quickly bring to the commission's attention um, the fact that there was, sorry, there's a cat in the background. I don't know if you can hear him. Um, there was a bill that was almost passed in the Kansas uh, legislature this year that would have put a ban on plastic bag bans. And so I'm concerned that they will try something similar given the history of the Kansas legislature next uh, legislative session. So I just wanted to encourage the city to really move on this as fast as we can, because the sooner we start, the sooner we can have the infrastructure in place to continue it, even if there is a ban on plastic bag bans. If it's easier for people to just keep not using plastic bags, I feel like that would be an easy way to do it. So I just wanted to bring that to everyone's attention. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Erin? Um, Hi, um, thanks so much for, for giving me the space. Um, I just wanted to say um, that I realize that you're sending this back and I hope that when you and whoever else is working on it relooks at this, um, that 
you think about the, the cost that this might, I'm all for reducing plastic, but um, this either a having to pay for plastic bags or requiring people to have reusable bags is going to be a cost for consumers. Um, it's already difficult for people who have transportation barriers to have to haul their groceries back and forth if they have to take a bus to the grocery store and then arriving at the store and realizing that they have to have a reusable bag or purchase a reusable bag um, is going to be a problem. Um, I also heard when that preemption bill that was previously mentioned was in the works at the state level, someone testified and said that some businesses purchase plastic bags and other things in bulk. Um, I think it would be best for those, if there are bags just sitting in the back, not to just be thrown away. Um, and then I think that the signage is good because people need to know, like I said, if they have transportation barriers, um, we wouldn't want them to just arrive at a store not knowing that they are now going to have to have reusable bags. And I would love for there to be a program to, um, if it's going to be enforced on consumers at all, to provide reusable bags at low or no cost for folks who have um, barriers for that. Thank you. Uh, Nancy Moom. And I'm sorry if I put that. Oh. <laughs> um, I'm a member of the Sustainability advisory board, um, particularly the subcommittee that helped to develop this um, draft. Uh, thank you so much for considering it and um, thinking about this important um, piece of, of ordinance. Um, the reason that we decided to, to suggest that the plastic bags be banned instead of a cost is for businesses. There were several businesses that suggested that this would be easier on them um that it would be less onerous than them having to charge um for the the plastic bags um if individuals didn't have their own reusable bag um the nine month pause was to allow businesses to use up the plastic bags they have and to purchase paper bags and reusable bags that they thought they would need it would also give the public an opportunity to learn that this is coming for us to educate the public, um, that, that this is a big problem. And so these are the things that we considered when we redrafted um, this uh, ordinance. So if you have any questions, we'd, I'd be happy to tell you the rationale behind the discussions that we had uh, when we changed this. So thank you so much. Thank you. Karen Pagel Miners. Hi, my name's Karen Pagel Miners. I've been a Lawrence resident for 30 years. Good evening, Mayor Shipley and city commissioners. I have three concerns uh, regarding a potential plastic bag ban or ordinance for the city of Lawrence. Um, lots more detail, and I just want to be really brief uh, with some thoughts here. Uh, firstly, I would like to strongly urge you to broaden the scope of this ordinance to include uh, straws, plastic tableware, those stirring stick thingies, uh, styrofoam, uh, those dreadful styrofoam-backed posters, uh, non-medical use vinyl, etc. Uh, in the fall of 2014, the local Sierra Club group um, discussed the results of a survey asking local members what they wanted us to focus on. 
One member suggested working on a plastic bag ban. And the chair at the time said, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. We should be able to achieve that in a year. So that was fall of 2014. So this has been, uh, what, eight plus years. Um, I'm urging you to broaden the focus of all single-use plastics because addressing these plastics one by one will take way too much time. And really, do, you, do we want to go through this whole process multiple times? Um, there's a German saying, Venschon, Denschon, which loosely translated is something akin to, if we're going to do something, then go for it. Um, the best English equivalent I have found is um, in for a penny, in for a pound. So if we're going to work on reducing plastics, let's really uh, just be more inclusive and uh, uh, ultimately save time. So that's the first thing. Secondly, um, there has to be a strong educational campaign, or I think this is just not going to work very well. We need to move from a linear model of thinking about consumption, where it's fossil fuel extraction to manufacture, use it for a few moments, and then it becomes waste. We need to move from that linear thinking to a more circular model of zero waste. I like the motto, if you're not for zero waste, how much waste are you for? Uh, so that's uh, those two um, things being said. Um, I do have some concerns about, um, about just this focus on plastic bags. Uh, we are finding ourselves in the midst of a climate emergency and seeing climate collapse all over the place Hi. with things becoming more and more dire. I'm and sorry, Dr. Miners. Uh, we've reached your time. I appreciate you. And um, um, okay. I know, you've, yeah. I know you've, you've written in the past, so of course you're, you're always welcome to, to write more. Okay. Is there anyone else on public com um, on, online? That's all the comments. Okay, let's bring it back to the commission. Well, I think this is, you know, another one that's at the point to where we need to decide if we want staff to look into it further to actually look at the, the ordinance that they've drafted or the, um, which, you know, I think would be a good way to start this off is to send it to staff to start the process of getting into it and seeing how it would work based on what the information that the board has provided them. I would agree. Uh, Craig, are you going to give a similar answer? I will. I heard you're one of, you want to focus much more on the legal review and the enforcement mechanisms, and that's something that's a little more restrained. Um, if you want to broaden it out, then, you know, we staff can engage in that a little, a little deeper. Um, I also just want to reflect this back on the strategic plan and see where the alignment is with this, with our top priorities. So wherever we fit this in, regardless of the staff work on it, we will be bumping something down the list. So what we're trying to get a gauge for is, is this a high priority for our city commission, considering all of the ambitious things that we have on our agenda already and that you have before you in the next coming months. So that's where I, I'd love some feedback as well. Any thoughts? 
I think Commissioner Sellers might say something here. Oh, not quite unmuted. Working on it. Um, you know, I would say that this is a moderate priority. I know that one of the previous public uh, commenters um, did mention the legislature. I mean, whether there's anything that preempts a ban, um, you know, we're at, we're not at the mercy, but we have to play some strategic jujitsu with the legislature as they're, you know, whether they impose a ban or what that would look like. That's why I was concerned about an ordinance that just focuses on a ban and, you know, hearing some initial discussion around a fee structure um, would, I would like more of that um, because I don't know if I can fully support just a ban, especially since we're leaving the exemptions to the establishment, whether or not they provide it, which then really kind of doesn't speak to the authority and strength of the ordinance. Um, because like I said, this is going to disproportionately impact vulnerable populations. So there's no provision in here for seniors. There's no provision in here for individuals who receive WIC and SNAP benefits. Those are vulnerable populations um, that may, who will more, who may typically use plastic bags as opposed to reusable bags, um, which is a distinct uh, population within itself that is going to take some education. So. I'm not, you know, I do think that this is a discussion we can have. It's a discussion that needs to come back to us with some revised language. Um, I'm just not completely sold on the ban piece. I would like to see what a fee structure would look like and what this ordinance would, would also look like with some provisions in there uh, for exemptions as it relates to specific populations and not putting it on the establishment to choose who and how they provide those exemptions. That if there's going to be exemptions, we need to set those exemptions. So that's why I was recommending to go to staff initially to get their ideas on what, how how workable this is and, and, and what are some best practices out there that we know of. So I think that would be something that staff could look at and, right. and work with. Are you more or less like using it to also gauge like, you know, how long it would take? Um, kind of a... A timeline of you know kind of how it would progress thinking along the process yeah, yeah 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 i mean that would be great if they could give us an idea i mean i mean they i mean it is true this this subject has been before since before the pandemic so the um, the community folks who have backed this have been waiting a long time to get an answer but you know we have a lot of work though so. Well, I guess that's what I was saying. I think, unlike the last, unlike the noxious weed, I, I think this one needs, I'm not sure it needs much staff work now. I think it needs policy decisions, you know. I mean, we have them look at a ban and then we decide to do a fee, or if we have them staff look at enforcing a ban and we decide not to do anything, you know, I don't know we want to put a lot of staff time in until we as a board say, this is what we want you to look at. And that might also be, you know, um, we want SAB to go back and, you know, example, using Commissioner Sellers' point, if we decide we don't want a ban, we want a fee, then I think you send that back to SAB to come back with something, not send it to staff um, until we know what we're looking at. If we, you know, so I, I think this one really needs 
probably need to find a time in the schedule and just have a policy discussion, hear from the public, hear from all the people, and then give direction at that point before we spend much staff time on this particular one. You know, I, I think staff could provide us with some um, information regarding what's workable within the current code system. And that's what I'm kind of wanting to hear from staff, uh, whether you charge or whether it's banned or whether you don't do anything, um, what it would take for staff to implement something like that. So that's why I want to hear from staff on that. And this is Commissioner Sellers. I believe that that's the work of the Sustainability Advisory Board. Um, I think as it stands now, I'm not 100% supportive of a plastic bag ban because we know that the bans have disproportionate impacts on low-income and vulnerable populations. And there's no provision within the current draft ordinance that speaks to exemptions for those vulnerable populations. It puts it on the establishment, which means if there could be inequ inequities within it. So... I don't think that's something that's something that doesn't go to staff. It goes back to the advisory board since they were the ones that drafted the language around the that drafted the language of the ordinance. So I think we can charge staff through the liaison to work with the advisory board to bring us a draft that speaks to a fee structure if that's what the consensus of the commissioners, if that's what our consensus is. But I, I haven't heard that from any of my fellow commissioners. Are you wanting this to go back to the advisory board to look at enforcement? Are we wanting staff to look at it from a legal perspective? Or do we want to look at a different perspective as it relates to a fee structure? I didn't mean to break you. No, no I, I think it maybe speaks to what Commissioner Finkeldy is saying, which is that we need to take more time with it. Yeah, I mean, I think this agenda item is not to get all that inf information and give direction at this point. Um, you know, I I hear what Commissioner Lawson saying. We want some information maybe from staff, but I guess I, I think a lot of these are policy decisions. And so maybe a little bit of time for, for staff to have a few thoughts, but then I think bring it back to us and we have to make the decision of which way we go. Yeah. Yeah, I'm fine with that. <clears throat> Did that tell you what you needed to know in terms of prioritizing and scheduling? Yeah, this is what I heard, um, that we should look at policy options, um, do a cursory review of what those policy options might be, give you some idea of schedule and timing for those bring that back in the next month or two so that you can make some decisions, understanding that there's a legislative, um, that the state legislature may have some timing considerations on this again. Yep. That works for me. Great. Thank you. Then that brings us to E. E, um, pull this one. Let's see. The natural gas. I, I did want to just open it up to my fellow commissioners to see um, if they would uh, want to reconsider the decision that was made a few months ago or several months ago. Uh, when I read the memo from the uh, Sustainability Board, I did uh, some of the points they made, those four points, I, I don't disagree with them as to what they're saying. It's, it's just a matter of do we want to stop the process and it's going forward right now and um, consider some of these items that they brought up? Or do we just want to continue on the path that we're on right now? 
this is Commissioner Sellers. Is Melinda or Melissa on? I know the last time we had this conversation, you know, one of the points that I brought up was that we can speak in what ifs, but if we do not have a policy that leads this decision making, then we're going to continue to revisit this and create variances. And so if that's the will of the commission, then we can continue to move in that in that in that process. Um, but I know that there is discussion that we needed to have. We discussed the need for if this is the will of what the commission wants and that projects that come to us, whether they're public projects built with public dollars that impact the public, is there a policy in place? Should there be a policy in place that states that it meets the sustainability environmental standards? And so I didn't know if Melissa or Melinda are on because um, I know that there was, we, we discussed that and I know there, there was some discussion around what a policy could look like and I didn't know if they could if they had anything to add to that or could provide some context on that. This, this is Melinda Harger, Assistant Director of Municipal Services and Operations. Um, our Connected City uh, team has been working with Kathy and the Environmental Sustainability Commitment Team to start forming a group um, that would look at you know, what would be needed in terms of the policy and what is um, kind of the first steps and the schedule for that. So um, we want to pull all the stakeholders together, see, you know, what is the role of the sustainability advisory board in that policy. Um, so we're really in those initial steps right now. Um, you will see uh, coming to you uh, in August, some initial thoughts of, of ours on how we might pay for some of these things, because there is a financial um, impact if we're looking at using um, green rating systems on projects, which projects rise to the level, um, you know, of, of trying to get maybe envisioned bronze level, lead silver level, those types of things. Um, so as we bring the utility rates forward, uh, we will be showing kind of some initial looks at what that could be for some of those larger utility projects. Um, but this is very early on. We just know with CIP and rates, if we're setting three-year rates, we need to at least get a jump on it. Um, but it is still very early on in the policy development uh, stage. And I don't know if Kathy would have something to add on timeline. Okay, she said. <laughs> Thank you, Melinda. Yes, my question. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Commissioner. Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to, just to help us revisit, if we were to reconsider and reverse the decision on the, uh, on the transportation project, cost-wise and timeline-wise, what would we be looking at? and intersecting that with opportunities to utilize the Ferguson Group to see if there's any dollars available out there to us to subsidize that, that additional cost or whatnot. That was just my, my thought. What, what would this look like timeline-wise if we were to vote to reconsider and reverse decision? Or I guess we wouldn't, it wasn't really a vote, it was more like a policy, it was more like guiding staff. So if we were to reconsider that guidance, what does that mean for the project timeline-wise? 
Sure, I'm Melinda Harger, Assistant Director of MSO. Um, so we last week received 100% um, construction documents, biddable documents uh, for that project. Um, we have it in two different bid packages. We have the site uh, package as well as the building package. So we're actually having meetings this week with legal to look at um, you know, how to finalize the front ends and get those advertised. There's also um, an MOU that is in some final discussions uh, between KU and the city manager. So that would also need to be in place um, for uh, you know, a maintenance agreement and, and everything on that land lease uh, before we would be able to award. But what we're looking at right now is an award of the project uh, in September. And um, so that's the latest schedule. If we were to look at this, we did ask um, the consultant how long it would take if we wanted to do, you know, that detailed study of electric uh, versus 100% um, you know, electric versus the natural gas that's in the design right now. Um, that would take uh, about 12 weeks at a cost of 30 to $40,000. Um, and that would be before a decision was made to redesign those aspects of the project. Um, with the route redesign and uh, the desire to change routing at semesters for KU, at a minimum, it would be a four to six month delay um, before this project is is moving forward. So um, I guess that would be the ultimate um, timeline impact would be four to six months before we would have buses moving through at that location. And cost-wise, 30 to 40,000 to study it, we're still estimating 80 to 100,000 in additional capital costs. I would also mention the longer we delay bids, we are seeing price escalation uh, substantial with um, inflation and yeah. even higher for equipment. So we could see larger impacts if we delay the project four to six months. Any other questions? And um, I do think there's someone from, since I let someone from sustainability speak earlier, Kay, are you on here somewhere? Yes, I am. Let me uh, start my video. If I can do that. Hello, my name is Kay Johnson and I'm a member of the Sustainability Advisory Board. And I appreciate the opportunity to discuss Discuss this issue with you, and I realize it is at a late date, but um, the Sustainability Advisory Board was not involved or discussed. Um, we were not involved in this decision and didn't really realize it was even involved um, for the multimodal transfer facility infrastructure until that work session. So, um, sorry that we're getting this information late, but um, we do feel that we sent, we sent you a letter. We had a special meeting on June 30th, and we discussed the decision with concern relative to climate change and the emission reduction goals uh, already in city ordinance 9744. Methane is not a renewable energy resource and uh, generates significant greenhouse gas emissions. SAB voted to approve and send the letter referenced in this agenda item, and uh, we really do want you to understand that 
we believe that the policies, I'm sorry, that's kind of weird lighting, but the policies are already set um, and available for staff to understand that um, we have um, provided to uh, commissioners and the commissioners have voted on um, policies for greenhouse gas emission reductions. And that's not only in the um, climate protection plan and sustainability update, and that was in April 2019. Plan 2040 discusses it. Ordinance 9744 discusses it regarding cities' adoption of renewable energy sources by 2035 for all uh, sectors of municipal operations. And then also the strategic plan discusses renewable energy goals, as well as we have the five guiding principles, which were adopted by city commissioners to direct staff to utilize these principles for all actions and projects and more specifically to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions. Um, this decision also doesn't take into account or doesn't take advantage of the Evergy's Direct Renewable Participation Service Agreement that provides 98% of its energy from wind for the next 20 years beginning in 2021. So uh, we have an agreement now that locks in a, a city rate that's below the uh, new 2021 rate. Uh, this decision also doesn't effectively utilize city funds um, because the methane infrastructure could be replaced and should be replaced according to the new the ordinance. And so this decision also intuitively reflects an actual increase in greenhouse gas emissions each year uh, that methane is used for operations at the new transfer facility. We, we realized that uh, costs were discussed at that work session, but those weren't available. Um, it's hard to understand why they weren't available, but then um, if the, we really feel like that if staff um, feels like that the cost or structure is concerned that the schedule is that they really should uh, pause this and appropriately develop and evaluate the cost. Um, what is it gonna to cost to replace the gas structure in five to 10 years? That still needs to be developed. The SAB also recommends the city staff in the future stipulates all electric and energy efficient equipment and infrastructure systems be provided for CIP projects, facility remodeling and significant facility operational improvements. Each of the policies that we listed uh, promotes greenhouse gas emissions reductions and energy efficiency as an imperative for the city of Lawrence. And so in consideration that the SAB therefore really still urges uh, the commission to reverse its decision. And we understand that has an impact on your schedule. Thank but you. I am available for comments and thank you very much for allowing me to speak. Thank you. Um, let's make sure there's no public comment in the room. Hi, Michael Altman again, Sustainability Action Network. Um, the staff report, first of all, indicates that you're, they're seeking guidance regarding the legal review staff analysis and scheduling, but that's not proper. That's by a template from the previous two ordinances. This really is supposed to be a request from the memo from SAB to go back to the consultant for redesign. Um, in March, 
the consultant said, it's designed for methane because, quote, electrification is an emerging technology, end quote. The technology has not caught up yet. They totally mis misguided you. Uh, they may know their transit hubs. They don't know heat pumps. Um, they also said that the and the staff just said this would cost an additional hundred thousand capital investment. That's less than one percent of the entire budget. That's not a budget buster. And I could point out that the Infrastructure Act from last year has three hundred and seventy-two million dollars beyond electric buses for bus facility grant program. It's to buy or rehabilitate bus-related facilities. There's money out there. Um, future electrification would use electric resistance heat from boilers when they transition from methane to electricity. They're, they're doing boilers. That's the most inefficient way to use electricity, uh, in addition to the cost of the, the capital um, rebuild. Um, Let's see, where am I going with this? Uh, the city pre is preempted from restricting methane in private construction by the legislature. However, the city is free to avoid methane in all of your own buildings. You have 100% renewable energy commitment within your ability. You can do that. Uh, the fact that you got misinformation back in March now may cost you 30, 40,000 more dollars to redesign. Well, that's the price of run, doing a business. What about the the, um, the budget-related cost for carbon, the carbon costs? And what about the climate heating impacts? You know, these are costs. They're not dollar costs, but they are costs. We are now in a heat wave in North America, in Europe, in Japan, in South America. Uh, there's a climate crisis, and I think we need to take this one little step at least to live up to our 100% renewable energy commitment and uh, address climate, at least in, at this case. Thank you very much. Any other public comment in the room? Any comment online? Mayor, it does look like we have someone. You don't see anyone? Oh, oh thank you. Do I sign in before I talk? You can if you want to wait. That's fine, too. All right. So um, you all know I'm a terrible public speaker. This is like literally a nightmare for me. Sometimes I prepare stuff way in advance and uh, it doesn't go well. Sometimes I do off the cuff. It doesn't go well. Let me just tell you, I, I am the chair of the Sustainability Board. I'm the original founder of, of the Sunrise Movement Hub here. Um, I'm not an environmentalist. I love loud, dumb, fast cars more than anything. Like a couple of years ago, I missed the, you know, the hot rod thing in South Park and I almost cried. I like hamburgers. I like, I like machines. I like innovation, but I'm also really good at climate science. And we don't have a choice about this. This is not something where you get a choice. This is like when you get cancer and they tell you what you have to do. We have to bring our emissions down to net zero. Methane is more destructive than CO2. We are in a bad, dangerous way. The repair and the work that it will take 
to handle all of the natural disasters that are baked in right now will be extremely expensive for the city. I know you think unimaginable things can't happen, but we are living in a situation where we now know terrible things can happen, even if you don't plan for them. We don't have a choice about this. We have to bring our emissions down. We cannot use methane. It is a very destructive chemical. I would urge all of you to start attending the sustainability board meetings. They're the second Wednesday of every month. We need public input because the city does not take the climate catastrophe seriously, and they will not without public involvement. Um, I appreciate those of you who are scientifically literate and fighting for the survival of the city. Um, and just one last thing, I will remind you that people right now are actively looking for cities and states that are prepared, that have declared a climate crisis, who are adapting and doing emergency prep. And those are going to be very lucrative zip codes. If we don't take this seriously, it will bring down prices, no matter what the developers tell you. See, so look at this. I, oh, yeah. I even have been doing like Toastmasters and my voice still just shakes. Mm -hmm. All right. I appreciate your help, you guys. You did great. My name is Dr. Justin Spies, uh, running for uh, Douglas County Commission, District 1 as a Republican. I don't listen to anyone that wears one mask. I definitely ain't gonna listen to somebody that wears two masks. <laughs> oh dear. Let me remind everyone online to put their mute button on. Um, any any further public comment? My name's Dan Katie. I live in Lawrence, Kansas. I think you owe it to the people in Lawrence to do this as cheaply and as efficiently as possible. It's not your money. It's our money. And where does electricity come from? Oh, you plug it in. Where, where is electricity coming from? It comes from coal plants. <laughs> it comes from, from water. It comes from a lot of places, but it still is out there. And a lot of it comes from fossil fuels, and it always will. So do it, do it, do it for the people. And think about that, the, the lowest person on the pole, totem pole here, someone who's on a, a fixed income. Uh, just how does it benefit the people that, that, that are in the, here? My name is Joe Herrick, and the one thing I'd like to add is with all this climate change, there's not one person that can tell you how much is caused by humans. Mother Earth is going to take care of herself without a bunch of idiots. I can't help but look at this circle, thinking it's a spaceship, a flying saucer, and if there's aliens up there looking for intelligence, they're going to fly right over Lawrence. All right, that looks like all the public comment. I'll bring it back to the commission. There's one online. Oh, there. is there? Uh, yes, Joel Campbell. Oh. Hi, my name is Joel Campbell. I'm a part of the Sunrise Movement. I just came to uh, just kind of express my 
very deep frustration with this entire process. From the very first step, the five principles of sustainability uh, have not been considered, even though they are supposed to be considered at every level, uh, especially from the boards that make the decisions that affect the city so significantly. Um, there was no, there wasn't even a mention, as far as I understand, of any sort of um, renewable option even though that's what we're moving towards and that's what we will have to do just given our own our own goals and things like that like we will have to replace the infrastructure eventually sooner rather than later so it just doesn't make just sense in general to build this thing and then immediately tear it down and replace it with the thing that we need to replace it for like that just does not make sense to me i'm a very big fan of transit i think we need to be doing as much as we can to expand it but it doesn't make sense to build something that we need to renovate that will affect product like productivity of that thing like that simply does not make sense to me and i guess this is kind of a broader concern because um like it just seems as though these five principles and our supposed uh prioritization of sustainability just simply does not exist in the city despite everything the city has been saying that you know, we support sustainability and we're moving towards net zero and then the actions don't support that. So I guess um, I just kind of wanted to broadly state my frustration with the fact that the city is not following promises it's it's been making for a long time and we are going to pay the price if we don't change that. So thank you. That's all the comments. All right, good. Let's bring us back to the commission. Um, I had a question. Uh, I don't know if uh, Linda's still here. Um, uh, on, I'm trying just trying to recollect from March on the facility itself. It was intended to have. Uh, it would first use uh, the gas first, but it would also have the hookups for uh, electricity uh, also built into it as well. Was that? Am I misremembering? Melinda Harger, Assistant Director, MSO. They designed it such that we could, at um, a, the lowest cost possible, be able to convert it over. Facility, the consultants who do a lot of this electrification said that we're going to see um, large changes in what the technology looks like over the next five to 10 years. And a lot of grants, as Michael Allman mentioned, um, grants available to modify existing uh, transit facilities. And so um, that was their recommendation. I know just yesterday there was the announcement made by Black Hills about a pilot program. There may be the option um, you know, to have renewable natural gas in Lawrence within the next five to 10 years as well. So um, it was designed so it could be switched to that if that um, is you know, the, the technology we want to move to in about 10 years. Um, there could be other things such as uh, you know, solar panels um, and other things added also to this project. So we, all do, we are um, including in the design, there are other sustainable features, um, alternate bids for um, solar panels, enhanced filtration uh, for our storm uh, system there, um, knowing that we have um, uh, a lot of buses going through that facility. We're trying to protect our, our stormwater system there as well. So um, there were a lot of features um, that were highlighted um, at that meeting back in March in addition. So I just, I wanted to 
um, mention that just for the audience tonight here at this meeting. So Melinda, real quick, so we're having hookups with the idea that, that we could eventually go to electric or some other technology. Why don't we just do that from the start? I mean, is there a reason why, remind me why we decided not to do that. Sure, Melinda Harger, Assistant Director, MSO. Um, when our consultant took the initial look at this for our size facility, we are renewing, uh, reusing an existing building, modifying it, looking at the usage that we have in that building. Um, they did not see that right now that would be um, as beneficial to us. There would be a lot more capital cost, um, as well as our continued utility bills would be higher. And that was their, you know, initial look during um, preliminary design. And um, they did take into account the comments they heard um, at the public meeting where they talked about sustainability in the spring of 2021 um, and then additional um, public engagement earlier this year. Um, so they did try to, you know, um, incorporate a lot of the sustainability features that they heard. But that was something that when they just did, we didn't ask them to do the thirty dollars to $40,000 study. But when they took initial looks at it um, and had their team that does the electrification um, projects take a look at it, they were not recommending it for our project. Uh, just to follow up on uh Commissioner Larson's, or I'm sorry, Vice Mayor Larson's a question. Um, I just, I, I thought I heard, it, we are using an existing building for that, so it would be retrofitting it. Okay. Melinda Harger, Assistant Director MSO, that is correct. And so that was also a sustainable uh, decision that was made to reuse an existing building. Because as we know, anytime we have new construction, the more we can reuse existing materials and reduce, um, you know, the, the transportation of those materials to a site. Um, that leads to a, a lower carbon footprint as well. Melinda, I don't know if you'll know this, but a few weeks ago we had our review of grant um, opportunities. Is this one that is um, being considered or, or on the radar of staff? Melinda Harger, Assistant Director, MSO. Um, TFG, our consultant, has not identified any additional uh, grants for this project that um, that Adam um, Weigel has not already um, gone after as far as um, our transit. I, I think Adam and his team do a great job of going after every available um, grant. So he did receive grants for the downtown transfer facility, um, is my understanding, and for some um, amenities at this facility, but not for um, electrification. So if there had been a grant available that we could use to apply to 100% electric on this, then that definitely would have, you know, change things a little bit, we would have dug into that anytime we can utilize money from outside the community, we, we tried to do that. If I may, Mayor, I might piggyback a little bit on that. Um, Adam Weigel, Transit and Parking Manager. So one of the um, big considerations for this site, this will be a site that's shared by both Lawrence Transit Services as well as University of Kansas Transit Services. Um, really anything we do where both of our uh, equipment is using the same site because we're very leery to federalize those projects and bring federal money into them. Um, KU is not a uh, recipient of federal funds and operates charter services. So um, as part of the coordination with them, with transit, we just have to be uh, real thoughtful about what we um, include and don't include federal money on. So that would be a consideration in the future for what type of grants we'd go after for this type of thing. That's good to know. Thank you. 
Adam, while you're on there, can you talk a little bit more about the impact of delaying the opening four to six months? Sure. Um, you know, I think Melinda spoke eloquently about the time and cost, you know, from uh, in my role in thinking about operations. I mean, I'm certainly thinking about, um, uh, you know, emissions reductions just from improving transit. You know, the faster we can improve transit and get uh, better infrastructure out there, um, trying to reduce the number of people driving in our community. So um, that's one of my considerations, just trying to, to push our stuff fast, faster in that regard. The other piece is uh, equity. You know, some of our most vulnerable community members are the ones who ride the bus. Um, we've been working towards transit facilities for about a decade now. So, um, you know, four to six months may not seem like a big deal for um, for some folks who, who aren't riding as much. I do think it's, it's quite a big deal for some of our passengers who've been, um, you know, making do with what we have out there. And uh, so those are a couple of the, the additional things I'm thinking of. Thank you. <laughs> Any other questions for staff? Discussion? Optimally, I would love to see that comparison, but I can understand why the um, uh, why the consultant did what they did, and uh, uh, I was probably going to go either way on this, but uh, it's uh, what uh, Adam provided did provide a little bit more of a nudge and a little bit more clarity for me in terms of the equity piece and folks that already ride the bus so much or already have been waiting for this for so long uh, for a centralized hub for, to, for their ease of transit. So um, even though it's not perfect, um, the it's, I'm a little bit eased by the fact that there will be the electrical hookups to um, make it um, all electrical in the future. So I will, um, I, I would vote to proceed with the current plan. Um, I, 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 I disagreed with our um, consensus last time. I, I, we've known for many years that um, doing some things that are progressive cost extra money. And we certainly know that's true with sustainability and climate change. And, and I did feel like we weren't taking our ordinance um, uh, for emission reduction into account when we had that conversation at the time. Um, but I do not uh, expect my fellow commissioners to um, think that that is worth the cost at this time. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've, it's not worth the cost of a four to six month delay or the cost otherwise at, at this point. So, uh, and, and I agree with Commissioner Little John. This is a project that needs to move, move forward. And those um, options that, you know, can be had in the future as well if, if that's the direction we go. I assume there's no motions that needed unless we're going to do, unless we're going to direct staff differently. 
Yeah, I do think it's a missed opportunity. That's for sure. I thought the sustainability board's points, those four points they made were were spot on. Um, and the way this project was bought, brought before us in a work session item, I thought was not a good way to do it because they asked for a binding decision and we're not supposed to do those in work sessions, but that's what they got. So that's what they built their design on. I don't blame them for doing that. I mean, that's what we gave them, but the whole process of this deciding on this multimodal um, hub, um, it, it, you know, it, it was just disappointing, disappointing how it came about. Um, um, my, you know, the idea of putting it off for six months, that's just, um, tough because this hub process has been going on since I got on the commission trying to get it. So it's a long time in waiting, which is, which is not good. Um, so, um, whatever my fellow commissioners decide, my preference would be to take a look at it because I, I just think the process was wrong. This is commissioner sellers. Um, I don't want to be a dead horse, but I'll beat it again. Um, the process worked because it followed it followed the steps that it has in front of it. And I shared this 20 minutes ago, and I shared it in March, and I'll share it again. Unless we define what that process is, we're going to continue to cycle through this. And so where the missed opportunity is, is that not in the policy questions that were asked of us in March, but in what we did or did not direct staff to do following that. Melinda and Melissa are working to identify policy pieces as it relates to those standards and sustainability standards moving forward. But what I took out of what was provided to us in the memo in regards to this item was a missed opportunity of how do we incorporate the charge of our boards and commissions and working with staff on projects, on all projects, but specifically related to sustainability. So we talked about the ordinance, but the one piece that we did not talk about in the ordinance is the part about procedure. And 1-1104A reads, and I quote, the development of strategies and actions helps to achieve the goals outlined herein and will be integrated into the climate action and adapt adaptation plan engagement process and ultimately each adopted plan. So what I would so what I heard from to, what I heard today was that the sustainability advisory board was not involved in this process because there was no place for it to be involved. So what do we as commissioners want that process to look like? Do we want to say sustainable action the sustainable advisory board to come back with what that process should look like? what the parameters are, utilizing those five principles, what does that look like? Are we, and are we going to charge staff, charge the, the board to do that? That would be something I would like to see is instead of, instead of us hearing how we have an advisory board that is here to advise us on projects as subject matter experts, how do we utilize them? So I would like to know, I would like to see the advisory board have discussions with, with staff about this? What should that process look like? Should there be, you know, how do we transition those, those renewable goals? What does that look like as we, as we continue to look at improvement pro at capital projects that relate to public dollars? So the missed opportunity wasn't in, in my opinion, wasn't in what we discussed. 
It's in what action did we not embolden our board and staff to do so that we don't have to continue to revisit this conversation? Because until we address that, it's going to be another another project will come up and we'll be having this conversation again. So my recommendation would be, I would charge the, advice, the Sustainable Advisory Board to look at what does that system's process look like in, re in relation to this? So should projects of this nature, should they flow through for recommendation <laughs> through the advisory board before they come to us? What does that look like? Should there be policy, you know, how does that work align with what Melinda and Melissa are working on that they're going to present to us um, a couple of months here down the road? So I'd like to see more of the involvement as it's stated in ordinance of what the advisory board is supposed to do and how they are supposed to, to charge us in this conversation and not just say, oh, we missed an opportunity because we didn't miss the opportunity. The opportunity will be missed if we don't move and create an action so that we don't have to cycle through this again. I didn't, I didn't hear you say you support any change <coughs> of direction. I mean, due, no, due to the timeline and where we are, I, 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 I didn't want, I didn't pull this, so I think the person who pulled it didn't make a motion, so there's really, where I stand on this is, is, is neither here nor there. I didn't pull it. All we're supposed to do is provide guidance to staff. We're not supposed to vote on it. Um, well, I hear overwhelmingly an interest in moving forward. Did you hear something different, Craig? Yeah, no, I, I heard a majority uh, have that direction. Um, so we, we would continue to move forward on that project. And I did also note the uh, desire to have some policy developed so that we don't have to have this conversation each time. And if that seems to be something to be desirable for everybody, we'll work on that as well. I, from my, my, my standpoint, yes, I would agree with Commissioner Sellers. That was a, a lot of why I was not necessarily comfortable. I mean, I made the decision I made, but it would have been better if, as Commissioner Sellers said, it would have been woven into policy and we could have had something, some sort of backbone to stand on. So um, I know that this isn't the first time. It was also a uh, senior citizens project earlier this year that had the same dilemma. So she is correct that um, if we don't try to amend this, we will be facing this again. So. Very good. Um, that brings us to public comment. The public is allowed to speak on items or issues that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items during this time. Individuals should address all comments and questions to the commission. Each person will be limited to three minutes. Mm -hmm. 
My name is Dr. Justin Spies, and I'm running as a Republican candidate for Douglas County Commissioner District 1. On July 9th, I protested a baby murder rally here in, down, uh, here in town outside the courthouse on Mass Street. During the rally, one of the baby murderers intentionally hit me with her sign and was charged with misdemeanor battery. That day, the editor and founder of the Lawrence Times, Mackenzie Clark, was informed of all this. Later that day, she ran a puff piece story on the pro-baby murder rally, but did not mention any counter-protesters or me getting attacked at the rally. The Lawrence Times photographer for the story, August Rudisill, who also runs the Lawrence, Kansas Community Police Scanner on Facebook and Twitter, posted a video of the rally on Facebook, which received a comment noting that the anti-mask guy, me, was at the rally, and August Rudisill replied saying, he, meaning me, was not included in this production. Let him film his own efforts. The following day, Ian Brandon, founder of the Kansas Constitutional Newsletter, covered the incident of me getting hit at the rally, and in the story, he included a May 26, 2022 tweet from Mackenzie Clark, again, editor and founder of the Lawrence Times, in which she says, quote, I just hope this community knows that it Lawrence Times, we don't leave out half the facts just because it's convenient for us. You don't, Mackenzie? Seems like you did here, and you and I both know for a fact that when it comes to me, you leave out half or all the facts every time because it's convenient for you. This is propaganda. No other word or name for it. Straight up propaganda. Check out Ian's story and lots of other unbiased articles on the Kansas Constitutional's Facebook and Substack pages. What other facts are you conveniently leaving out of your other stories, Mackenzie? Is Lawrence actually getting the entire picture from you? Doesn't seem like it. I wonder how much influence your omissions of fact have on the community's views on issues and people. Probably a lot, I imagine. I wonder if your reporting on COVID has been factual. Probably not. Why do you employ a journalist, Andrea Albright, who openly admits in her Twitter bio to being a communist? Are you a communist too, Mackenzie? Based on the propaganda you spew, seems like it. Never did run a story on me when I was attacked while peacefully protesting at Sunset Hill Elementary in September, caught on video clear as day, open and shut. No report from you on that. KCTV5 covered it. Why not you? How do you not consider that, that to be newsworthy to your own local community, but it is newsworthy to a Kansas City station? You also intentionally didn't cover the story of when a guy pulled a gun on me while I was protesting on the corner of Six and Castle on May 13th. Why do you support gun violence in our community, Mackenzie? Same question also goes to Chad Lawhorn, LJ World editor, since he didn't cover it either. The other day, both the uh, Lawrence Times and the Kansas Reflector ran the same story about the value of them both vote. I wasn't mentioned in the article because the story had nothing to do with me and I had no part in it. So it's confusing that for this story, both the Lawrence Times and Kansas Reflector included photos of me protesting the June 4th baby murder rally here in town. How's come you guys went with those pictures of me for your story when they're not connected in any way? Even more interesting is the Lawrence Times didn't even include that same picture of me in their actual coverage of the June 4th baby murder rally here in town, even though that was part of the story. So you don't include something that is part of the story, but you do include something that is not part of the story. Talk about disinformation and an assault on democracy. Mackenzie, you have an obligation and responsibility to the community, to the integrity and credibility of the journalism profession to America and to report the facts you are and you are delinquent or you are uh, derelict in your duties. Time. I'd call for you to resign, Mackenzie, but if Lawrence has any sense at all, they'll stop reading your lies and you'll naturally just go under like you should. Who got voted in over there? Hi, I'm Linda Weinmaster, and um, I was here a week ago or two weeks ago regarding um, the Queens Road. And since we're revisiting things that have been in the past, I see all new faces here with probably the exception of vice mayor that voted to give an extra taxation to single family homes in within a two mile radius of Queens Road. And I think that should be revisited because I just happened to find some information that you are um, violating and breaking the law of the 
interlocal agreement established on February 15th of 1993 and before that the full cost of any street intersecting with 6th Street will be fully paid by the subdividers. I do not believe I'm a subdivider, and I do believe you need to revisit that. I've been digging through things, and there is a lot of things that are not adding up to the decision to give the privileged out in West Lawrence an extra bill on top of their already extremely high taxes. And I'm very proud of this community for coming out and standing up for Prairie Park Nature Center. I hope more will come back. Nate. My name is Nate Morshus. I'm the president and co-founder of RPG. I also sit on the board of the Lawrence Restaurant Association. Today, I wish to speak on behalf of my company, RPG. The purpose, my purpose is to urge the city commission to pass the ordinance to establish permanency for the parklet program. Hey, Nate, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Can you hold on, please? So Pretty sorry. Please. It's okay. This is just general public comment about things that are not on our agenda. Well, I'll, I'll call on you when we get to it. Thank you. Hi, my name is Sue Herrick. I'm here tonight speaking off the cuff about my observations while I protest the Vax Clinics for Children. It's a pretty tough thing to do. What I want to emphasize here tonight is that most of these parents are going there out of fear. We show them signs stating facts, most of which they're completely oblivious about. The fact that a child's chance of dying from COVID is less than one in a million. They would rather you believe that it's imminent, when in fact the child would more likely be struck by lightning than to die of COVID. The media, the public health department, the three-letter agencies are all trying to scare parents into attending these clinics and vaccinating children. I'm asking you to please do everything you can to stop the, I don't know what kind of power you might have over the, the county health but this needs to stop. We need to protect the children. Thank you. My name is Joe Herrick, and I'd like to share a few of my observations. Um, it seems to me that when we're in the midst of a recession, our economy is imploding, we have unsustainable debt. Everyone in here has $91,000 worth of federal debt hanging around your neck. 30 trillion in debt. And we have released the most dangerous biological ever released on the human population. And it's the biggest fraud ever released on the population. And it's killed probably millions by now. 
And here we are talking about plastic bags. Why don't we talk about 10% tax on food? We're talking about bus transportation. I would be the first to say that we need to provide transportation for people in need. But I would ask anybody in this room, do we know within $100 how much it costs to move one passenger one mile with our buses? I think this is information that needs to be relayed to the public. If we can provide the people in need with stretch limousines and a chauffeur for less money, we should do that. It seems to me like we have no common sense. We try to micromanage things when we have all these huge problems facing us. Like I said, climate change. Nobody can tell you how much climate change is affected by humans. The earth is a big entity. It will take care of itself. All I'm asking is open your eyes and see what's going on. We are killing people with these vaccines. And we're talking about plastic bags. Thank you. Good evening. I'm Lori Greenfield. I'm uh, vice president of the Prairie Park Nature uh, Prairie Park Neighborhood Association, and I would just like to express my sincere appreciation uh, on behalf of the association for listening to the public um, last um, time and um, letting us reach out. Um, to each of you um, and show our um, love for the Nature Center. Uh, and we look forward to continuing working through this um, so that we can be fiscally responsible and yet um, meet the strategic um, plans of the city um, by um, having the Nature Center open. So thank you again. My name is Rick Sells. I've lived in Lawrence for 45 years. I've come to talk tonight because a lot of people have called and called and called and wanted me to come talk to you about the gun range that you opposed to build for the police department. I'm not going to tell you the police department doesn't need some place to train. They do. They need to be able to do what they need to do and take care of us. But $12 million, people have called me and said, Rick, how big is your facility? And I've told them 14,000 square feet. How much did it cost you to build it? Less than a million dollars. So what in the world is our city commission going to build for $12 million? I said, I have no idea. They've all said, we know nothing about the gun range business. You do. You're in it. You've done it. You built top-notch club here in Lawrence, Kansas, and everything about you, what you did 
was nothing was below standard. And why are they going to spend $12 million? And I said, I don't know. And then I get here tonight and find out that you're trying to raise taxes because you don't have enough money to pay for what you're going to do. And now you're going to top another 12 million. Is this the Joe Biden build back better program? Because if it is, it's not working, people. I'm not saying the city don't need to have stuff to take care of the police department and that. But a $20 million office building that doesn't have one jail cell or one holding cell in it, that's not a police department. That's an administration building that somebody in here wanted to build. And that's not right. And I cannot say everything I'm going to say in three minutes. So I hope you don't mind me coming back for the next three or four weeks. Because you guys have had gun ranges in this town. Eighth and Vermont, where the fire department is. That used to be the city police department when I first moved here. They have a gun range in the basement of that. They don't use it. It's been abandoned. They abandoned it when they moved to 111 East 11th Street and built a new judicial center. And they put a gun range in there, which they already had one in the community building. And so of all of you here, none of you know me. I know Miss Larson knows me because we've talked several times when I was trying to do what I wanted to do. But the bottom line is, until I told the city commission that the gun range that they had in a community center wouldn't pass EPA because it didn't have a HEPA filtration system in it, nor would it pass OSHA because of the traps it had in it. And I think when you're looking at this project, by the time you get it built, it won't be 12 million, it'll be 18 million. And then do you guys know anything about running a gun range? Do you know that you have to have a HEPA filtration system? And because you're dealing with lead, those filters have to be changed. At my club, it's about six. Oh, sorry, I'll be back. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Right now, or you got to wait? Yeah. Are you ready? We won't be able to share that because of, of the, the rules related to the agenda. So I just sent you a chat on that. So, hey everyone. Uh, I'm Yoav. I'm here to talk a bit about climate change. Um, I'm sure as everyone has seen, it's been a lot in the news recently in Europe, here in the Midwest, uh, unprecedented heat waves. So I'm here to talk about what we can do today um, to start combating that. Uh, so I'm going to talk a bit about the city's race to zero, which is an initiative that we can join. Um, what is the city's race to zero? It's an initiative. Um, it's a coalition of cities worldwide working to create resilient and secure plans to combat climate change. There are about 1,184 cities currently in this initiative, including two in Missouri, uh, Kansas City, Missouri, and Columbia, Missouri. I don't know about you guys, but I don't personally want to be behind Mizzou on anything, especially not climate uh, action. Um, we would be the first city in Kansas to actually join this initiative, so that would kind of cement our status as, as regional leaders. Um, but what, what does this initiative really give us, right? Um, so what this initiative can give us is access to partners who can give us free feedback on climate action plans. They can give us uh, advice on strategic improvements for future plans. So I know we have a climate action plan currently in the works for later this year. Um, maybe we would want to outsource advice for that. Usually we would have to pay. This would give us that for free. 
Um, right. So, and this also gives us access to a whole host of partners and cities and people have been doing this for, for years. We don't have to go it alone, right? We have access to these kinds of networks, uh, these kinds of resources, and it's, it's super easy. I mean, it's free to join, uh, all it would require is the mayor to sign on. Um, we can have resources from the world wildlife fund that have experts that are willing to give us uh, a feedback and strategic improvements on plans. Like I said, um, and it's critical that we that we kind of act now. I know we've talked a lot about sustainability initiatives today, um, and you know those are more kind of long term things. But this is something that our plans are kind of in line with. This is something that we could very easily join, and it would kind of more set in stone these goals, and it would put us alongside a lot of cities globally. Um, right. So I, I think this is something that that we should definitely join. It's like I said, it's a it's a simple form. Um, and it would give us a lot of resources that we wouldn't otherwise have access to. Um, and it also would give us some credibility. We get recognized by the United Nations fr framework on climate action. Um, and like I said, we would also become the first city in Kansas to, to become a part of this coalition. Um, and as we've seen with heat waves across the country, you know, tarmac melting uh, across the pond, even we have to do something. And this is something that we can do today. Um, it's all it entails is that we take a pledge, you know, kind of recognizing the climate emergency and pledging to do a few actions, a lot of which we're already doing. So I hope we can consider, the, consider that and have a good day. Further public comment? <laughs> Well, as I said a few weeks ago, or what was it last week? I get to ridicule now because nobody wants to do anything about the problems that we have. It's obvious that city staff doesn't really want to hear from the citizens. Craig Owens has been so engrossed in his computer over here the whole time. Public, the public, the citizens you work for are up here talking, but you're too busy. Don't worry, man. Go back to your computer. I'm not going to say anything you're interested in. Where's my August 29th complaint report? We were supposed to get that from somebody. I doubt if we've done that because we're too engrossed in our computer. Courtney Shipley, that was absolutely amazing, that, that proclamation that you read after your citizen manager citizen manager i think that's what we ought to call him. you speak to us please i'm speaking to you don't correct me don't interrupt me anymore this is my time this is my meeting it's my time and i'm requiring a certain kind of comportment and that and is to speak i to am us. following your time place and manner don't interrupt me this is my time so i've trained your police better than you can I've gotten more change out of your police department than he can, than you can, than your citizens police review board can. Two years ago, they were threatening to throw me in jail at the law enforcement center. Now I can walk in a scene and they have to ask me if I got a shell casing under my tennis shoe. My camera was a dangerous weapon. I walk around with a sidearm now and I'm not considered a threat. How's that? That's pretty cool. But yeah, Courtney, as I was going along there, you, you interrupted me. I, I uh, have a problem with the fact that you come in here and read that proclamation about how important parks are, but you guys defund Prairie Park, or you're going to, your city manager over here wants to. You gonna approve that, or I assume your proclamation today is a vote no on that? 
My page, Lawrence Accountability, has a nice little video of your thingy out there by the police station. $350,000, but you're going to defund Prairie Park. <laughs> That's incredible. Major Troy Squire's gone. That's change we can believe in. Mike Burns gone. That's change we can believe in. What's Neff doing these days? You guys want to act like you don't have a bias problem? Why is Officer Brad Williams got a C-post hearing in about a week and a half, two weeks about his bias-based policing? He may be decertified for his bias-based policing in Lawrence, Kansas, where we have no bias problem, right? They watch out for me now. It's nice. How many of you pull up to a stoplight and wonder where the cop is? I don't anymore. They look out for where I am. Safe and secure. That pop can right down there has been there for at least a week. Safe and secure. You don't even check your room. Somebody could have left a bomb in here, but we don't check. Thank you. You got a comb underneath there. Don't worry, Courtney. I know how things are right now. Is there any other public comment? Here is someone online. Okay. I'm going to let Sherry call on the people online. Stephen Watts. I thank you. Was that you. a threat, sir? Was that a threat? Go ahead, Steve. Go ahead, Stephen. You know, last week uh, was quite a showing from folks that are not represented by Downtown Lawrence, the Chamber of Commerce, or Leadership Lawrence with respect to places that, in my view, make Lawrence a safe and secure place. That would be the Nature Center and the Humane Society. And so I started thinking about it in terms of how to come up with the money. And it's very simple. The, the, the $600,000 that is used by the police department, that's $600,000 plus that is used by the police department to fund uh, police people in our schools needs to stop. That never should have started in the first place. That isn't police work. We need those officers out in the public doing what they do. That puts more eyes and ears available for police work and, and not babysitting in an effort to ferret out crime and create cases and criminals, which is very clear what goes on in the schools and police in the schools. They don't belong there. Our community's police review board has been struggling for more than two years because they've been hampered by city staff and an insidious view by the police that they run the show. The police review board has done nothing in the last two and a half years and in fact have gone backwards and they're basing it on supposedly what the city commission has said that, well, we need for you to do this based on what a bunch of police consultants with police ideas, that's the city gate people, suggested that happen. You know, you're going to make a committee and sit around and twiddle thumbs that is cop heavy. It's just incredible. When is this city commission going to get control of the police department? I'm very clear. I want a police review board that determines policy for the police department based on community input and expertise. I want to share policy and policy changes in publicly accessible formats. I want discipline and dismiss police officers done by the review boards. Hold public disciplinary hearings. Select the candidates for police chief to be hired by the mayor and the town commission. Evaluate and fire the police chief if needed. We work with a police department that was permitted to run, essentially electronically lynch, the first black police chief. We still don't know why. 
You guys do. And you can sit there and be smug and pretend like it was in the best interest of the town, but it will never be in the best interest of the town until things come forward and the truth is told, why does this happen moving forward? We want to receive full-time competitive salaries for members on a police review board. Do you see how expansive it can get? And all we want to do in this dinky little town was receive complaints and they couldn't even do that. You know, three minutes isn't enough. It's been outlined. And I appreciate the time coming in here. This is not going to go away. You guys, it is not going to go away. Please. Could you show some, show some leadership? You are not hurting. Thank you, Mr. Watts. By taking the officers out of the schools. Thank you. Thank you. Any further public comment? Ray Segebrecht. Thank you for this opportunity to speak. I appreciate it. And commissioners, thank you for this opportunity to follow up on my email that I sent you all, as well as my comments last week. I'd like to just speak to the designation. Mr. Is this about the item of, of the, your neighborhood water tower? It's about the interconnection between the Prairie Park Nature Center and the Water Tower Park and how they interrelate to the designation uh, provided by the city tonight for July 2022. So I can comment on the interconnectedness now um, in a way that would tie them in together um, to sort of set the stage for consideration with those multiple items, or I can comment after the water tower park item where the other items, you know, may not be as pertinent. Yeah. Can you, can you come and talk to us during the water tower discussion, please? Thank yes. you. Any other comments? That's all. All right. That brings us to our work session. Take a break. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, commissioner is notifying that they need a comfort break. Uh, let's do 10 minutes. So that'll be at eight 19. Thank you. Yeah, sorry about that. Okay. Welcome back, everyone, uh, to our um, July 19th um, City Commission meeting. Um, we um, are returning now to our study, our work session, which is to receive strategic plan update from the Prosperity and Economic Security Outcome Team. Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. This is Britt Kremkenna, the City's Economic Development Director. I'd like to start by sharing my screen. Um, I believe, Porter, you're going to need to give me permission. There you go. Sorry. <laughs> that works. Thank you. Okay. So, um, I wanted to begin this evening by continuing our discussion on economic, um, pro the prosperity and economic security outcome area. Um, hold on just a sec, I've got to 
There we go. Okay. Um, so um, we want to focus on some of the priorities for this outcome area and some of the work being done to uh, progress related strategies. Uh, I'm going to briefly recap those priori priorities. We will look at some of the context data and then we will hear from some of the working group implementation team members on what they are doing to advance those strategies. Um, I would like for us to keep in mind the importance of this work and it's interconnected effects on all aspects of community well-being. And finally, I will briefly foreshadow policy considerations for future discussions. So um, just to recap, prosperity and economic security works to foster an environment that provides all people and businesses the opportunity for economic security and intentionally acknowledges, removes, and prevents barriers created by systemic and institutional injustice. Our community succeeds because of collective prosperity and a vibrant, sustainable local economy. Uh, the prosperity and economic security priorities are a result of the merging of two very important new plans, the city strategic plan and the community economic development strategic plan. If you recall, the community plan provides prosperity recommendations over the next 20 years and the city's plan over the next three to five years. Um, although we ultimately want to tackle all the recommendations over the next 20 years, resources and capacity dictate that we must prioritize and select those that can produce actionable results to best move the needle on progress. So therefore, in the short term, the prosperity and economic security team will focus on five action areas for progress. We want to streamline the development code and permitting processes, target commercial and industrial growth and entrepreneurship, develop a strategic marketing plan to attract capital investment for commercial real estate assets, focus resources that grow the commercial industrial tax base and provide additional economic benefits and grow local women and minority owned businesses. This work is being done within a network of collaborative partnerships. Uh, traditional economic development has been implemented in a top-down approach where a select few organizations dictated the actions and the directions for economic de development. Alternatively, a strategic doing approach um, involves an ecosystem of community networks, which is, you can kind of see it's uh, displayed on this graphic, each actively pursuing the strategies, tactics, and actions to make progress and interacting in partnerships to leverage their ideas, resources, and the capacity to get more done. So tonight, we're taking a cl closer look at three uh, prosperity and economic security strategies. Uh, PS1, the percent of businesses satisfied or very satisfied with Lawrence as a place to do business. PS3, target industry employment growth. PS5, women and minority business ownership growth. Uh, so for each of these, I'm gonna provide some data and then we will hear from those boots on the ground team members that are working diligently within these areas. Uh, just a reminder, when we are measuring progress, we're looking at both um, current data as well as historical data. So we're trying to get a more holistic perspective. 
Okay, so the first uh, strategy is PS1, percent of businesses satisfied or very satisfied with Lawrence as a place to do business. Um, we have uh, been working over the past several months to develop a business survey. We've never done a community business survey. And so it will be used to help us set the baseline data needed for our future work. And at this point, I'm gonna turn it over to Sam Camp. He is here tonight and he'll provide us an update on this survey. And Sam, you can let me know if you want me to stop sharing. Uh, if you could just go to the next slide, I don't have the presentation pulled up. Okay. Um, so good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. Um, Sam Camp, Economic Development Analyst. Um, so it's been quite some time since we've talked about the ETC business survey. So I thought I would just start with giving kind of a refresher of how it came about, where we're at. Um, so the process started in late 2021, early 2022, um, when some additional funds were identified in the ED budget um, in order to produce this survey. Um, we will be using the same company um, as our regular community survey, so it'll be ETC. Um, our purpose is to engage the business community um, to essentially answer the question of, are you satisfied with doing business in Lawrence? Um, the survey uh, at this point has been through several rounds of internal and external reviews, both from staff as well as some of our ED partners, including the Chamber of Commerce, uh, KUIP, and Peasley Tech. Um, and as Britt mentioned, this is the first time we are doing a business survey. Um, so we're really excited to see what kind of data we get back from the business community specifically. Um, so some highlights. Uh, right off the bat, we asked the question, how satisfied are you um, as a business in Lawrence? We do that on a scale of one to five. Um, most of the questions in the survey are on a, um, are on a scale, you know, zero to five, satisfied, very uh, dissatisfied. Um, we do uh, have sections regarding uh, workforce. Um, so we have questions on availability of workers, quality of workers, um, and the education or technical skills. Um, this will allow us to kind of pick apart uh, things like, you know, does, uh, is Peasley, um, do they need to maybe invest in more? Do we as the city need to invest in different areas to increase uh, workforce development? Uh, we also have a section regarding different um, internal staff departments. Um, so like things like development review, the permitting process, um, sewer and wastewater, things like that. Um, and then towards the very end, we do make sure we include a, for the demographic kind of portion, we do make sure we include uh, that we're asking, are you a women or minority owned business? Um, so moving on, uh, back in, February or March, I believe, when we first introduced this, um, the commission had a question on oversampling. Um, so while the community survey will be doing oversampling, um, it was discussed and uh, kind of agreed on by staff that oversampling for the business survey wouldn't be prudent at this time. Um, one of the main reasons is cost. Um, in discussions with ETC, um, the cost of oversampling would be about $5,000 above the current contract, um, which would eat into the, the ED budget, um, the kind of leftover 
budget, we currently have $9,000 in discretionary funding. So it, it would eat into over half of that left over for the rest of the year. Um, the other consideration was um, we didn't really see the, uh, the value. There, there are other actions that we could be taking or that since uh, we have discussed oversampling are already being taken um, that better serve the women or minority um, business community. Um, I will say, for example, the chambers work on um, creating a BIPOC network space um, to allow minority um, and women-owned businesses to kind of get together and discuss um, their, their, maybe their frustrations or their successes in Lawrence. Um, and that is attended by um, myself as city staff, as well as some other service, service providers, including um, the chamber, uh, the chamber and EDC, KUIP, um, Douglas County Corps. Um, so it's not just people sitting in a room, you know, making complaints and nothing gets done. Um, we as the service providers are hearing those kind of, uh, we are hearing their stories, which I think um, we all kind of agreed at staff and external partners would be more effective than just kind of getting uh, uh, blank survey results, if that kind of makes sense. Um, so at this point for next steps, um, it's really very similar to the community business survey. Um, this is kind of the last stop for us um, at this point, um, as long as the commission is satisfied with how the survey looks, um, it's ready to go back to ETC for, um, uh, you know, creating a, a messaging plan, getting it out into the mail, creating the website for it, getting all the results back, um, and then compiling all that data um, for a presentation. Um, for the ET, per the ETC agreement, that process will take about, I can pull it up, it'll take about um, two to three months. So similar timeline to the regular community survey. Um, and then they can come back and give um, the commission a presentation on everything that we learned from the uh, survey. And then we, as staff, can kind of go from there and figure out where we're lacking, where we're succeeding, and kind of make adjustments on that. Um, so that's, that's all I had on the survey. I don't know, Britt, if we wanted to do questions piecemeal, if we wanted to go wait till the end. I think that's up to the commission. Uh, Mayor, if you guys would prefer to, to intersperse questions with each presentation, that's fine. Or if you want to wait till the end um, and we can be open for questions and answers, um, that's really up to you. Um, it's a little hard for me to see with your um, slides up. So let's just go ahead unless one of the commissioners stops me. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Thanks, Sam, for that update. Um, next, we're going to look at target industry employment growth, and I'm going to show you some historical data on that. Um, through the Ernst & Young study, they recommended um, target, in, target uh, in, in industry employment growth in four major um, service sectors. And you can see from this that that involves several different NAICs. Um, we do have a, a historical census database that we can pull from so we can plot uh, historical data. The, um, the advantage of that is kind of looking at trends. The disadvantage of that is the data is um, um, 
it's aged quite a bit by the time it comes out and we can actually pull the data, but at least you can see uh, kind of what's happened um, you know, over the past several years. It's kind of interesting to see how biomed actually peaked through our COVID years and the rest of the um, uh, rest of the, the sectors kind of decreased. But um, we're also going to hear from, um, again, the boots on the ground, people working in these areas to, to grow um, employment growth in these industry sectors. And so at this point, I am going to turn it over to our first speaker, which is Adam Courtney. And he's gonna to talk to us a little bit about what KU Innovation Park is doing. And Adam, again, the same thing, would you like me to, to keep this up or? Uh, you can keep, well, I don't care. Uh, whatever's okay. best for the commission. Okay. So Adam Courtney, uh, KU Innovation Park. Uh, first, thanks for to the commission for allowing me to be here to discuss how the park is aligned with the city's strategic plan and and at this point uh, specifically with the target industry growth. Um, as a reminder, the uh, park is a unique partnership created in 2010 between the city, the county, the university, and the chamber of commerce. Um, the park's mission is to create, recruit, grow, and retain life science and tech companies. Um, so it it aligns directly with these uh, target industry growth um, initiatives. Um, and as part of the uh, metrics that it reports out, um, it, it reports companies, jobs, and payroll associated with that. Um, so it'll align with the tracking that the city's gonna do. Um, and currently the park has 62 companies with 563 jobs and about 34 million in annual payroll, which is about uh, 60,000, just over $60,000 per job. And you can see um, from Britt's previous slide here that it, it uh, significantly exceeds the uh, target median wage for uh, these jobs, which is $5,000 over the current median wage of $33,000. Um, and then just a, another comment, uh, the park's about to open its phase three project here soon, uh, which will expand the uh, park's ability and its company's uh, capacity to grow these target industry jobs. So I can either take questions now or uh, we can take them at the end or whenever the commission's I'm ready. Not see any questions. Go ahead. Okay, thanks, Adam. Steve, would you like to talk about your efforts at yes. the Chamber of EDC? Certainly. Thank you, Brett. And thank you, commissioners, uh, for the opportunity. Steve Kelly, the Lawrence Chamber of EDC. Um, and I'll talk about a couple of things and then we'll hand it over to someone who's actually uh, with a company in this space, uh, and he can talk about their experience. But, you know, the community has experienced, and, and actually the county's experienced, you know, significant wins over the last several years. We've had companies like U.S. Engineering and Pretzels, Inc., uh, Modern Manufacturing in, in uh, neighboring Eudora. We've had a number of pretty substantial expansions, and a number of those companies would be in these categories. Uh, some of them have just opened in the last year or so. So we don't have a lot of job data yet, but the, the preliminary reports that I've had are, is that they have all been pretty successful in terms of meeting what their initial projections were in terms of job growth. Uh, and so uh, we're, we're pleased with that. Uh, and in respect to you know, marketing the community, not only for industrial, but for other projects, one of the things that we've been trying to do in the last several months and have had meetings with the Kansas Department of Commerce, meetings with the Kansas City Development Council, and that, and, and certainly with University of Kansas, and that is to try to highlight some of the, the areas of, of demonstrated strength 
of the university and the community and try to leverage some of our competitive advantages vis-a-vis uh, -vis other communities around the country. Uh, so some of that work is underway. And again, I've had a couple of discussions with the folks at the Department of Commerce uh, and have been working with folks in, in K at KU about how we can, can highlight some of these areas of strength to better position ourselves for not only companies to relocate or locate to the community, but also to be research partners with the university, which also can grow into some real opportunities over time. So that is underway. Um, we are also looking at some targeted marketing things. We're participating and working with Brit and others on the strategic marketing initiative uh, that's being done in conjunction with the, the city's rebranding. Uh, we are also participating uh, with the Department of Commerce and with Cancer Development Council and some of their marketing efforts. In fact, I'm in Indianapolis on Thursday at, at an event of that type. Uh, we are also uh, have taken the initiative to work on development of a couple of what I'll call FAM tours or familiarization tours, where we will, our plan is to bring in consultants and real estate folks, uh, maybe one that would be of national scope where we bring in people from around the country and another one that would maybe be more regional and targeted towards Kansas City region folks to bring them into the community. Uh, we've been working with the KU Athletic Department to potentially uh, work something around KU basketball uh, as kind of the attraction piece or, or part of the, of the carrot for a, a visit like that. And I think we're pretty confident that we'll be able to get a couple of those accomplished uh, by the end of the calendar year is our target. We're trying to do it before uh, the beginning of the new year. So those are underway. And then another area that we've been putting a lot of time in uh, is in trying to do more to work with existing companies that are within our target industry, particularly on the tech and maybe the bioscience side of things to see if we can help elevate and promote growth and support growth by these existing companies that already have a presence here. And there's a pretty lengthy list of those. You know, Some of them that come to mind just off the top of my head are companies like Matterport, Ariadne, Niantech, Triad Ventures, Avium Technology, um, and then Alarm.com. And you'll hear from Brandon Allen here in just a moment. But these are companies that are in this space, are the types of companies that we really, I think, have an opportunity to grow. Uh, and we've been trying to support them, trying to connect them with resources, because uh, there are programs at the state and other levels that can be pretty substantial in terms of their ability to financially support uh, companies that are growing in these spaces. And so that's been an area that we've had a lot of focus. Uh, and I think that we have a lot of opportunities in this community to continue to grow some of these existing companies uh, that already have roots established here. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Brendan. Hey, hopefully you guys can hear me and see me. Uh, so Brendan Allen with Alarm.com. Thanks, Steve, for handing it over. And thanks, uh, the Marion Commission, for hearing me out here. Um, so as Steve mentioned, so he's kind of helped us a bit. Um, so we're a uh, tech-based company uh, based out of D.C. in the Virginia area. And uh, we have a satellite office here. When I started three years ago, we were two people. And now we have 25 people. We've moved to a new office uh, above the um, Southwest and Maddie's location in Lawrence, and we're actually looking to grow probably to 50 or 55 people in the next three years. So, um, and these are interesting jobs, I think, um, being a longtime Lawrencean, moving away and moving back. Um, 
it's uh, great to do something in the community here. But I mean, we hire people out of college usually at ninety to hundred thousand uh, dollars a year for our starting salary, which I think are great jobs to have in the community. Um, as Steve mentioned, he kind of helped, um, you know, with his history at the Department of Commerce to work through some incentives we have. So we have uh, the PEAK program and also the HPIP program, and uh, which gives quite a bit of incentive to our company to hire people here. So they had similar incentives in Virginia and stuff like that, but the ones here were more aggressive and that actually allowed them to uh, expand more here. Also the recruiting we have through the university. Currently we have four interns that we have for the summer um, through the university. And so we're trying to, I guess in the tech industry, as it becomes more contracted and people can work remote and stuff like that, it is very nice for a company like Alarm to have remote locuses like Lawrence, where we can recruit from the university and allow them to not compete maybe as directly with places like Amazon.com or Google or places like that. So um, we've been able to have a lot of success here. Um, I guess another success story I would talk about would be um, we've had people actually move here due to cost of living and other things like that from Texas, um, from Denver, and then also Iowa City. So that's like three of them. I think we actually have more. And we have people commuting from the Kansas City area into our office as well. So uh, I think it's a pretty good model because we get funding from a larger technical entity that's based out of the state and are able to expand and give them something that's hard to do in that area. So, um, you know, I, again, I, I think with the incentives that are offered by the state, I, I would say the one thing that we have a hard time with is finding, uh, especially as we grow, uh, finding space for offices, especially in the downtown area. I consider that a very big recruiting tool to be in downtown. Like if I can get someone to Lawrence, and they see it and they see the downtown area, it's very easy to get them back again and definitely to try to get them to stay. Um, so as we look at that, um, you know, I know there's a lot of other nice office space in Kansas, but I mean, in downtown and uh, in, in the west side of Lawrence, but um, being able to keep them downtown in that area really is the selling point for Lawrence. And if I can get them there, it usually ends pretty well. Um, and, and I guess the last point I would make is to the, presentation that was given to, it was very interesting for me. They did a diversity um, study across all of our offices. So we have offices in Redwood City, in Denver, Boston, DC, uh, Greenville, South Carolina, and then in, in Lawrence, those are the main ones. But actually Lawrence, Kansas was the most diverse um, office we had in the company. Um, and uh, being able to grow that and having the opportunity to do that uh, I think speaks well for the area. So again, uh, I appreciate your time and anything I can provide to help understand the tech economy a bit better. And again, thank you, Steve, for all the time you spent with us and helping us find some of those incentives. Um, I appreciate it. So hopefully uh, it becomes uh, a bigger success story here in Lawrence, but happy to uh, have your time. Thank you. Thanks, Steve, and thanks, Brendan, for that uh, for for that very interesting update. Now we're going to look at PS five women and minority business ownership rates. Um, and one of the things I'd like to do is kind of show you some data. If you recall back when Ernst and Young put together their recommendations, they benchmarked Lawrence against thirty nine other communities. Out of those 39, staff have uh, whittled it down to our 
neighbors, our close, our, our neighbors that we feel our strongest competitors. Uh, those are the ones in Kansas. And then also our university peers, certain uh, towns, I think, have a closer alignment with our um, economy than others. So we, we're down to 10 now. You can see where we fall when it comes to women and ethnic ownership. Uh, business ownership. This is as a percent of all businesses. So um, we're almost middle of the pack when it comes to female ownership. And actually, I'm going to share another slide. I think this shows it a little bit better. We're a little bit um, stronger than our peer communities with female ownership. And we're, again, um, mainly stronger, but kind of more in the middle of the road when it comes to our ethnic ownership. Uh, this is all third-party data, so um, we're getting this from another database. Um, what I'd like to do now is uh, turn it over again to our speakers to have them talk about their boots on the ground, uh, opportunities, and accomplishments, and uh, progress in this area. So, uh, Adam, would you like to start again uh, with KU uh, Innovation Park? Sure. Uh, again, Adam Courtney, KU Innovation Park. Um, the park began uh, collecting um, data about its companies, more data in 2021, um, and started tracking women and minority-owned businesses at that point. Um, and so as of today, we have 62 companies, 11 or 18% have female founders or owners, and about 22 or 36% have BIPOC founders or owners. So system-wide, 35% of the companies have women or minority founders or owners. And of those companies, they represent about 41% of the system jobs. Um, so primarily, you know, we needed that historical data. And so we started collecting that last year. And so um, that's an important start. Um, also starting in 2022, we took our uh, city and county incentive fund, which is funded by both the city and county uh, to $50,000 a year and earmarked about 25% of that every year, not about, 25% of it every year uh, for women and minority businesses. Um, in addition, the park's focused on um, finding tools and resources uh, specifically for women and minority owned businesses um, that starts locally with what uh, the chamber's doing and Steve, um, but also at the state level and at the federal level. And so um, we're, we're trying to build that network of resources for those companies to help uh, make them successful and help them grow. So that's uh, what we've done so far. Thanks, Adam. Steve, you want to talk about the networking program that you guys have going on? Yes. Thank you again. And again, Steve Kelly with the Lawrence Chamber and EDC. Um, and, and just a real brief background. Uh, we became involved with, the, with some of the efforts um, that were a reaction to the county health uh, study that identified poverty and, and, and poverty for children as a, as a major concern and issue and, got, and became very involved in some of the anti-poverty work around entrepreneurship. And as a result of that, and also I think just the feeling that it was something that we needed in this community, uh, it was built into our Rising Together Capital Campaign uh, that we would establish a minority uh, or a BIPOC revolving loan fund uh, and, and from that beginning spot, we have, have worked from there, uh, learned a, a lot more about what needs to be done, what some of the shortfalls in the community are, 
And uh, now it's, it's really turned into a combination of networking, training, and then capital access that will be represented by the revolving loan fund. Um, with the networking, we've been having monthly networking meetings for minority business uh, owners and aspiring entrepreneurs from the minority community. The, the, the average attendance has been around 23, between 20 and 25, uh, some a little larger, some a little smaller. Uh, we've got another one coming up in, in uh, August, uh, but they've been a really good opportunity for people to come together and to begin networks. And one of the things we learned very quickly in the first one was that the, the folks who were in attendance didn't have really good connection points with other minority business owners. And so there's been a, a, a Facebook group formed that now has 120 or 130 members at, at last count and is continuing to grow. So that's been very positive. There's also been a lot of exchanges within these groups between people uh, who may have known of other people in that, have, that are in attendance, but really didn't know what they did. And, and so there's a lot of opportunities to cross-pollinate and maybe build collaborations, which I think has been very positive. And we're going to continue these. The next one is, is going to be at the Chamber SBDC office. Uh, we kind of build these around a resource. Uh, we've had, a, the first one was at the public library and we had the late, someone from Network Kansas talk about their programs. We had a, a session at Peasley in the crunch space. Uh, and, and that information was about uh, crunch and what that can do for, for companies in that particular space. We were at KUIP so that people had a sense of what is available and, and the assistance is available from, through Adam and his colleagues out there. And Christina Meese of the SBDC, who you hear from in a little bit, is a speaker at the next one. So this is about giving people access and knowledge of resources and putting, in some, putting them in some of these spaces that heretofore a lot of them have not been in. And so that's been a positive and that we hope to continue as well. We're launching a training. One of the other pieces that, that we found that would be important or felt was important was some sort of training for aspiring entrepreneurs from the minority community. So uh, we're working with a certified provider that's, that's been engaged with Network Kansas and is doing some programs in other communities across the state. And in August, we're going to begin our first cohort uh, of a training curricular pro curriculum called JUMP which is a 12 week program for minority entrepreneurs uh, that we're gonna launch. Uh, right now, I think at the last count, that was a week or so ago, we had eight or nine signed up. We're hoping for 20 to 25, but that's gonna be a program that will kind of soup to nuts, uh, help these aspiring entrepreneurs or even some of these businesses that are already established become more knowledgeable and, and more proficient in business uh, uh, to help them support them through it. And then ultimately, uh, you know, the revolving loan fund is something that we're in the process of developing. We just had a, an organizational meeting for advisory group earlier today, uh, which will be made up of, of a number of service providers, people who are working in the space and, and economic development. And we also have five members of the minority community who are going to be paid consultants helping us develop this because we wanted to be sure that when this program was rolled out, it was something that was built around the needs of our potential customers and clients, uh, the actual entrepreneurs and small businesses. And so it's a combination of, of people who are working in the space, uh, like the Chamber and, and Peasley and, and Christina and others, 
uh, along with some actual members of the minority community who are entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs so that they can help us build it. And so that's where we are now. Again, the training, we've been doing the networking. We've had three, the, the next one's coming up in August. Uh, we are launching the training program uh, in August and hope to have 20 to 25 people participating. And then the, the, the desire is, or the, the aim is to have the ROF in place, developed, uh, and ready to go sometime later in the year. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Christina at the SBDC. Hello, everyone. My name is Christina Meese, and I am the new regional director at the KU Small Business Development Center. I recent, recently took over from our longtime director, Will Katz, as some of you may know, who was with the center for 15 years. I've been at the SBDC for about five years now and just loving every bit of it. Um, I briefly just wanted to share a little bit about what we do at the Small Business Development Center for those that aren't familiar. Um, so the KU Small Business Development Center offers completely free and confidential advising services to new and existing businesses. We help businesses at all different stages of the business life cycle, whether they're just getting started or currently in existence. We cover a number of different topics from business and financial planning to marketing, market research, and so much more. If a business doesn't know what to do, where to go, or they just want to know how they're doing, we can help with that. We have access to some really amazing resources to help small businesses navigate the unpredictable path of entrepreneurship all at no cost. Our mantra at the KU Small Business Development Center is to do great work and help people, and that's truly what drives us every single day. With a mighty team of two, we serve around 400 businesses a year, and that is typically increased around 10% each year of new businesses served. Um, this year alone, we've already worked with over 200 businesses. On average, we've helped businesses grow their revenue over $10 million a year and access over $15 million in new capital investment each and every year. On average, we help around 40 businesses start every year, and the jobs that we've impacted by the services are around 700 jobs created or saved. In addition to our support to the greater business community, serving women and minority-owned businesses is very important to us at the SBDC. This year, 22% of the businesses we've served has identified as African-American, Hispanic, Asian, or Native American. This number has been consistently increasing year after year. Our staff is 100% minority-led, and we really strive to support BIPOC businesses and grow that support every year. Over 65% of the businesses served this year alone identified as women-owned businesses, and this number has continually increased year after year. <clears throat> we strive to truly be an excellent resources to the businesses we serve, but also be an excellent community partner. We're very participative in community efforts. We spend over 500 hours each year working on working with various community organizations and supporting various community initiatives. This includes time spent on city strategic planning. We are participating on the community health plan. Um, we've been working a lot with the chamber in developing the BIPOC networking and lending initiatives, among other activities. Um, I just want to say, end by saying that the KUSBDC is staffed by two very energetic, passionate individuals that absolutely love what they do. And we really want to help support and grow the success of our local business community. Um, I just want to thank you all for giving me the time to speak today and happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Christina, and you are very enthusiastic. Uh, and thanks, Adam and Steve, for the update. Uh, there's a lot of good things happening right now, a lot of work. We're all extremely busy with economic development. Um, one of the things, though, I would like to always keep in front of mind is why this work is important. 
Um, first of all, Lawrence is a first-class city with an unbalanced real estate tax base, which restricts the resources and the capacity to enhance prosperity, provide quality of life infrastructure services and amenities. Um, Lawrence is unbalanced by not yet having the private sector job and commercial property tax base a city of our size demands. So while housing is a priority, the growth of housing without commercial development to balance it will place a heavier burden on the city's budget as residential development generally tends to consume more municipal services than it contributes as compared to commercial. So um, the other thing I'd like to, oops, got ahead of myself here. The other thing I'd like to emphasize is that this work is all encompassing and it touches everything we do. Uh, it's integrated throughout all of our outcome areas and it's key to moving our community forward, uh, keep, which would keep us you know, competitive in an always increasingly competitive arena. Uh, it provides the resources we need for valuable services to make us welcoming, healthy, safe, and secure, to give us infrastructure and the means to maintain it for a connected community, to embrace our heritage and culture, preserving our unmistakable identity, and finally, to, buy, to provide us uh, community wealth and not just the wealth of a select few, but to advance the healthy uh, prosperity of the entire community, making it stronger and more resilient to the next economic shock, which we all know will come. Um, so keeping in mind, it's imperative that we support and grow economic development. Uh, before I end, um, what I'd like to do is kind of foreshadow some future considerations of policy revisions uh, specifically. Um, our economic development policy has had some minor tweaks throughout the years, but it hasn't had a major overhaul since before I was here. Um, I would like us to take a closer look at that and review it in uh, these various lenses. Um, including support for entrepreneurship and small businesses, encouraging sustainability, promoting affordable housing, and a business-friendly approach. So the next steps really is to form a working group to review and provide recommendations. This is work that is going to take some time. It's never... Um, a fast thing, but I did want to let you know that it's work that we're gearing up for, and we hope to get that going and then be able to continue uh, policy conversations with the city commission. So I think that basically wraps everything up. Um, at this point, I'll stop sharing. And if you'd like to and, uh, ask any questions, we'd be happy to help answer those. Are there any questions? Uh, yeah, it's actually quite a few, but I will just only limit to a couple and let other people <laughs> jump in afterwards. Um, thank you guys for this presentation. I really do appreciate it. And uh, also very timely considering the great news that uh, came in recently from the state 
and all the hard work that they've done. Um, so uh, this is very top of mind and uh, things we need to be thinking of for the future. Um, I know that uh, one of the, the future considerations you were, t- you were looking at were support for entrepreneurship and small businesses. Um, I know, and earlier, I, I believe we talked about, uh, you know, how interrelated all of these resources are. And I was wondering if there had been any progression in sort of creating a roadmap for future entrepreneurs and small businesses um, so that we can easily direct them to the resources they might need in the community. So like if they wanted a little bit more um, of hard metal to go, you know, direct them to Peasley and the resources they're in, or if they had a little bit more biotech to KUIP, or if they wanted to, you know, um, coding, um, maybe core. So is, is there, has there any been, been any progress in kind of creating that roadmap? Yeah, we didn't have speakers from Core Talk, but they're very, very active in continuing to map out the ecosystem as well as uh, I think pretty much everybody who spoke tonight. So uh, if um, uh, Steve or Adam or Christina, if you would like to add anything more in, um, with these presentations, I can only have a few speakers so we can have everybody kind of give an update. Uh, so um, last time around, we had a speaker from CORE, but uh, not this time around. So I'll be quiet and see if anybody else can, can yeah, jump. Brett, if I could just comment very briefly. Uh, again, Steve Kelly with the Chamber EDC. It's my understanding, and, and I, I believe that it's the case, there was a request in the county budget for uh, a resource mapping uh, investment to have a, a group or a, a product to do some of that resource mapping. And I, I can't certify that it's that it's through the budget process, but I think they were pretty optimistic that it was going to be something that would emerge and that would be a tool that would be um, available or a process that we would undertake countywide to, to do some of what you're talking about where, you know, and we have a really good partnership uh, among a number of us entities and share information and, and direct people appropriately through the various resources. But uh, I think a resource like that, it would be helpful. And we also have looked at and are trying to be more involved and engaged with Network Kansas and like KC SourceLink, which do some of those same sorts of things. And, and would we could be included on their system that would allow us not only to have access to information within the county, but then you'd have the ability to go out regionally and even statewide to see what other kinds of resources might be available to, to local companies. And so we're looking at all that because it is an important part of it. Oh, thank you for that, Steve. Actually, you followed into my second question is uh, if we were still, um, you know, uh, I know that we, we had so many great ideas coming from Northwest Arkansas in terms of regionalism and um, interconnectedness between our various municipalities here in the county and uh, near us. Uh, if there'd be any, uh, any sort of ideas to go ahead and keep that momentum going. Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and jump in real quickly. Um, well, to some degree because of those conversations, but also because we've already been thinking about it. Uh, and, and I know the commissioners have all at one point or another participated in some of our uh, community facility tours. We are looking and, and have not actually reached out yet, but are, are looking at maybe including some opportunities to visit 
facilities in Eudora and, and in the Baldwin City area as part of it. It creates a little more logistic challenge because of the additional drive time in that. But we think that there's a, an opportunity to do that and are looking at, at doing some of that. And, and certainly, as, as it was uh, referenced earlier, I think in your comments about the announcement about DeSoto, uh, there's going to be all sorts of things happening in Lawrence or the potential for all sorts of things to happen in Lawrence and throughout Douglas County. And I think to the extent that we can be working together where it's appropriate and makes sense, it will behoove us all to be engaged in that because uh, things are going to happen. And I think to be partnered and working with each other is going to make it a much more effective, poss you know, the, the possibilities are going to be much more enhanced if we're working together and, and connected throughout this process. Because it's, it has the potential to be something that's, that's, that, that really changes the landscape. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Steve. Other questions? Uh, um, real quick, I saw Christina and Adam turn their cameras on like they wanted to say something. I wanted to give them a chance if they had something real quick. I was just going to add that uh, um, Commissioner Little John mentioned our trip to Northwest Arkansas with Topeka, and um, we've had some additional contact with them, and they're planning to make a visit to the Innovation Park because they're getting ready to develop their own innovation building in downtown Topeka. Um, so as part of that, they thought it was important to see what we're doing here um, so that we can um, have an additive uh, process in, in terms of them not be building redundant systems, but um, something that might make the whole system more effective um, by working together. I did want to add to your first question, Commissioner Littlejohn. <clears throat> One of the things, and I'm relatively new to this leadership role, I took over about six months ago um, as the regional director at the Key Small Business Development Center. But over the last couple of years, the resource partners have definitely taken an intentional approach to getting together. So I often talk to the individuals at KUIP, Peasley Tech, the Chamber, and other local resources. Um, so we could build genuine relationships. And what I mean by that is we truly understand what each other does. So if an entrepreneur goes into KUIP, they can refer appropriately if they don't have the resources. Um, same thing with the chamber. So that's something that we've been really working on. I see them every single week. We have conversations often. And anytime there's something new that we learn about, we try to distrib distribute that information to each other. That way we're all aware of what's available. Um, so at whatever point in the stop, we can direct an entrepreneur um, to the right resource. I had... Like Commissioner Littlejohn, I probably could have a lot of things to say and ask, but keep it short. And some of you guys we see more often than others. So, Brendan, Alan, are you still on? I would ask you, besides getting some more office space, what are one or two things we could do to, to attract more tech jobs, jobs like yours, um, to Lawrence and downtown Lawrence in particular? Yeah, it's kind of a... I don't know, chicken and egg problem in some ways, because especially when we try to attract people here, I would say one of the things we often run into is that um, people are worried about the next job, not the job they're in right now. So it's okay. So alarm.com doesn't work out. What's my other option in Lawrence? So uh, it's one of those kind of <laughs> virtuous cycle things where we need to have more tech 
here to hire more people here so that they have more security. But I also look at that as also expanding more in the Kansas City area and the surrounding areas in Topeka as well to show them that, you know, hey, uh, you know, your commute in DC is an hour and a half and you can go to Kansas City uh, in 30 minutes to Odeland Park if this doesn't work out. I mean, obviously we try not to push the fact it might not work out, but that, that's one problem I run into here. Um, I would say the, you know, uh, the other problem is just kind of the preconceptions about Kansas. And again, I think that's one of the big things about getting them here. Like if I can uh, get people to visit or do recruiting trips, especially from outside the state and have them see the downtown area, have them see the community, um, it makes a huge difference. Um, I don't know how that's actionable, <laughs> to be fair. Um, but, uh, you know, that that's uh, the downtown area. I really can't um undersell how big of recruiting tool that is um for uh anyone probably but especially tech companies when you're trying to hire people from the coast and stuff like that to show them a really innovative uh downtown area and, and also as you know steve kind of brought up there's a lot more companies here than i think people know about and so making people aware of those companies uh that there are other options but also that lawrence really is a burgeoning tech uh, hub. I know there was a study by Axios and then uh, I can't remember the other one, but they, you know, recently showed that the tech growth here is pretty high. So I've actually sent that out to everyone that we're talking to, uh, to try to grow the operation here. And I think that makes a, a big difference. Obviously having a big recruiting pool at the university helps a lot too. Uh, Alarm.com expands a lot out of university hires. So the more that we have multiple places we can do that and have a locus. Again, I guess I'd end with, I think there's a model there. I mean, obviously we've talked a lot about, you know, entrepreneurship and growing a new business, but I think there's a big model to, to attract, especially places on the coast to have satellite offices here due to cost of living, due to, we actually have a large talent pool. Some of the best engineers I've ever worked with are here. And so being able to use I guess the capital from the coast to bring it in here, give some incentives and, you know, use our natural advantages to grow that. Um, but hopefully that answered your question. I kind of meandered yeah. there a bit. No, thank you. If I could add just a little bit too, I think one of the other things that as you look across some of the companies I mentioned, that's a key piece is you have someone like Brandon, who is a champion for the community, for the area. That makes a big difference too, because it's not someone who's just there filling the space. Brandon, Brandon is very passionate and goes out of his way to make things work and to sell the community and to sell the resources and the assets here. And I think that's really important. And we're really blessed that a lot of the companies that are in the tech space have people like Brandon in them. And that's, I think, really important as well. Commissioner Sellers, you're, you're not muted, so I hope that means you have a question. Yeah, um, real quick, um, Mr. Allen with Alarm.com, you had mentioned that your um, that the office here in Lawrence is one of the most diverse in the, in the in your company. Could you kind of go into a little bit of high level detail about what that what those indicators are, or what does that look like? Are you diverse by age, ableism, ethnicity? What is that? What is that? What do you mean diverse? 
Right. Yeah. So the study they did was actually, uh, again, um, probably uh, they did break it down a bit more, but uh, for the most part, diverse being, uh, especially in the tech industry, I would say, we're challenged, especially with um, uh, women engineers. So we have a larger proportion of women in the tech space here. Uh, so our, our office, too, uh, we don't have other functions like we don't have marketing, don't have um, other things like that. So it's purely a tech office. And traditionally, that's been underserved. Um, so that, that is part of it. The other part is, um, looking at, you know, minority representation. So, uh, again, it, to be honest, it was a bit surprising. I, I, we always try to take that into consideration in hiring. Um, and again, I, I think there can't be enough said for having more diverse opinions in our workspace, especially in the tech workspace. Um, but I was actually kind of surprised again, when we go up against major metro areas like Denver, DC and stuff like that, seemingly the work pool would be more diverse to hire from, but yet we still ended up batting above our average um, in that space. So uh, it was broken down. Uh, unfortunately, they haven't made that public to our company, which I've been working on um, to try to get that more exposed. Cause I think it's a, it's a good story. And it's also, I think in the tech industry, especially those uh, numbers seen and working on how we can get more diversity in STEM, like, you know, working with KU, working with, they have a, a program at KU called iHockey, um, which we work with quite a bit to try to get more diverse candidates into our pipeline um, to hire here. And it's a great program. So the more that we can do, the better. Um, and I'm not sure to answer your question, but so they didn't break it down a lot, but um, when you look at it overall, the diversity was measured by minorities and women in tech. And we were actually the highest out of any of the offices. It's good to know. I'd be. I'd look forward to. I. I mean, I'd be interested in seeing that that report. It's not necessarily a requirement, but it'd be something of interest to me. Um, real quick, Brett or uh, Sam, back to the the survey, um, and this could just be clarifying. So I can't remember if we if this was discussed earlier, but for businesses that have more than one owner, one partner, does each partner complete the survey, or is it? one survey per business? I believe it's a randomly selected audience. So I don't, uh, I would imagine the chances of a survey going to two business owners would probably be pretty slim. Um, it's probably going to be sent to a business address. And uh, Sam, you may have to um, chime in here a little bit more because you've been talking with Ryan Murray, who is the ETC rep about this, but I don't believe we have any constraints. I think it's just randomly selected. Yeah, from, from what I remember in conversations with ETC, it was based off of address rather than individual. Um, it would be in the same way that uh, like the community survey doesn't get sent to three people in the same household or it, I would think it tries not to. Um, they mainly pull from a list of addresses. Okay. And but then, also, so I just wanted to, it doesn't, it doesn't preclude multiple business owners from um, answering the survey. So, cause we will have an online, like a website component. Um, and so the, the minimum goal is 300. Once they reach 300, then they'll kind of just stop the survey and then they'll start collecting results. Um, but if in the, the one or two month time frame they receive like 600 results from online or paper surveys, 
they will compile all of that. They won't just set it to 300 and stop. So it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily stop more than one business owner from answering. Um, it's just, that's how the paper survey will be handled. Okay. And I'm going to try to word this in a way so that it's a question, because this is question time and not comment time. So knowing that we are cutting surveys off at 300 and we don't plan to do any oversampling and targeting women and BIPOC businesses, how do we plan to ensure that a women and BIPOC voice is identified in the survey? Because I love, look, you know, because aggregate data is aggregate data, but that's not, that doesn't tell the picture, uh, that doesn't tell the story, and it doesn't speak to these indicators. So how do you plan to connect and engage with women and BIPOC businesses since that we're doing random sampling and we're limiting it to 300 survey responses without any mechanism in place to strategically and intentionally connect with a certain sample of women and minority-owned businesses? Sam, again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought we had some identifying demographic questions on there so we can at least find out what percentage is represented. Um, again, I think we feel, staff feels that the survey wouldn't really provide us that much data on women and, and minority-owned businesses. We felt like there were other mechanisms that would do a better job of that. And again, um, the, the biggest constraint is just finances. Um, Sam, would you like to add to that? Yeah, so um, I mean, like in internal staff discussions, it was mainly, um, it, it was this money issue, but it was also the fact that if you look at the survey um, and how it's designed and how it's kind of, it's not a complete carryover, but it is formatted very similarly to the community survey. It doesn't get to the heart of what are pretty well-known issues in the women and, and minority-owned business community. So Steve, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but networking, capital, and uh, you know, information, these are all things that are very niche, I would say, that are very specific, that aren't really covered in the survey itself. Um, so I think the idea would be to continue and engage those communities in like these BIPOC networking spaces, or if we felt a need to go further um, back when we had wanted to present this to the commission back in, I think, May, one of the alternatives or just uh, suggested alternatives was to maybe just have, let's say like a focus group um, or like a series of focus groups. So that way we could hear those intentional, supposedly niche, concerns um, that maybe aren't felt by the broader business community in Lawrence. Because um, as, as the stats that Britt showed, we're talking about 5% of a nine, you know, 5% of 100% of these businesses um, are only registered as women and then one or one to 2% is minority. Um, so when you look at that capture rate, it's not gonna be, they're not all gonna have these niche issues. Right, and I can see that. But when I look at PS1, percent of businesses satisfied or very satisfied with Lawrence as a place to do business, that includes 
women and minority-owned businesses. And if we are looking at the women and minority business ownership rate, whether they're satisfied or very satisfied is not niche. It's, I want to know, what do those specific businesses in our community think about Lawrence and, and its systems and its networks? And most of those businesses are not chamber members. Most of them are not connected to SBDC. And many of them have not attended any of the BIPOC networking events, nor do they participate in CORE. So I know we had it in the original presentation to talk about some focus groups, um, but I, 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 I'll digress because we're getting in the comments and this is question. So I, I would like to know where that plan is. If we're deploying this survey, where, where are you all at with developing that idea of the focus group to, attention, to intentionally reach out to women and BIPOC business owners to gauge their thoughts on business ownership, city services, and things of that nature. And Commissioner Sellers, I do wanna mention that we can still pursue the oversampling. It's just that staff due to budget reasons thought that it was going to, it was gonna leave us with very little left over to continue any kind of work in economic development. Uh, 2022 is a very tight year budget-wise, um, but if directed by the city commission, we can go ahead and do that oversampling. Um, I'm gonna let Sam talk a little bit more about what the cost is and what they're gonna be doing, as well as some of the alternative alternatives we have thought about in terms of um, collecting that information via other avenues. Yeah, so for the specifics with oversampling, um, after talking with ETC, it was, um, so the, the basis 300, the kind of guaranteed oversampling that they had laid out was about 50, um, 50 additional guaranteed results from women or minority owned businesses in Lawrence. Um, the cost mainly comes from the extra legwork of the ETC staff as well as um, incentives for responses from the women and minority owned business community. Um, I think similar to um, how the regular community survey will be providing uh, incentive or a chance at an incentive, if I remember correctly. Um, and so um, it, it, it would push the limit up from 300 to 350, so that's, uh, Sorry, I'm trying to do math in my head. It's about uh, a business per business, roughly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, that was mainly where the cost comes from and what oversampling would look like. Um, and then be, because they would have that additional 50 results, they would also be able to do um, either the aggregate or the cross sectional data of specific results um, from those businesses. Um, so we would have that information. Um, with regards to, I guess, these specific alternatives, um, when we had discussed this, it was back in, um, I want to say like late April, early May, um, and time has passed since then and things have been worked on. So for example, we had listed, um, you know, these focus groups, um, which if we have those listed down, if, if the commission doesn't feel that the 
BIPOC business space is not an adequate way to capture that or not an adequate rev, uh, avenue to capture that kind of uh, information, we can certainly look into um, setting up specific design focus groups for that. Um, we'd also put down um, development of like seminars um, or uh, workshops, which I think I believe will be covered um, with the Entrepreneur uh, Business Basics program uh, with Kira Cherie. Uh, and then lastly, uh, we had put down um, a creation of a, of a city certified uh, list, I guess is the easiest way to, to phrase it. Um, it's, it's been pretty common in the past few years for other communities to have a, a digital um, database of women or minority owned businesses, whether that's um, pulled from the federal list of registered WBEs and MBEs, or the community just decides to create that themselves um, and create their own criteria. Um, from discussions with either business owners, the Department of Commerce, um, as well as um, some internal staff, the, the, the requirements to get that designation, a federal designation, um, is pretty onerous, um, especially if you're, if you're just like a restaurateur. Um, the program was made to like guarantee or put you in a higher standing for like federal contracts or government contracts. So if you're like a restaurateur, there's no real need for you to go through that whole process. Um, and so it would be easier for us, both for us and for the business community to create something like a, a self-registered list that we can um, just verify in, in some way, shape or form, which that would require some further research. Um, but those were some of the kind of things that we had come up with in the past um, as, as alternatives, both for spending and action to kind of gather this data from women and minority owned businesses. I think staff also felt that we would we would obtain better quality data through these other mechanisms, especially focus groups, whereas the survey uh, would be very restricted in terms of the type of information that we could could gather. Um, that being said, um, again, we can go ahead and pursue the oversampling. I would ask that the city commission provide us direction on what to do, um, it, whether you want us to do oversampling or not, because basically we are ready to go and we're just waiting um, for your final direction on this. Any further questions? Good, uh, let's see if there's any public comment on this item. Nope, anything online, any public comment on this item? No, Excellent. Uh, let's bring it back for discussion to the commission. So, uh, oversampling was 5,000, correct? And what is the current budget that you guys are working with again? I'm sorry. We currently have 9,000 total in discretionary dollars for economic development for the rest of the year. Commissioner Sellers, what's your thought on the oversampling versus the um, focus groups? 
$5,000 for 50 additional surveys is not a good use of money. Um, I like the idea, so I'm, I'm, I would be against using the $5,000 for oversampling. I think we have mechanisms in place, whether it's through, through partners with CORE or with the Chamber, with the BIPOC network, that those spaces can be used to deploy the survey within, there just needs to be some structure to, there needs to be a little bit more structure to it. Um, and also a more active and not passive, um, um, there needs to be more active um, engagement and inviting businesses to come with that being the premise and whether it's an incentive incentive i don't know it i don't think it necessarily has to be because we have the the bipoc networking events that i have attended have been well attended and there's good discussion there there's a mix of individuals who are looking at growing at creating a business growing their business um as well as establish um bipoc business owners and women business owners so i think that's the that would be an environment, a, a, a space that we can deploy this, and I would like to see it. It's just more of how do we ensure and we're being authentic and intentional about reaching out to women and minority-owned businesses because a lot of these groups are not part of the. A lot of these businesses are not part of the chamber. They're not, and we'd be fooling ourselves if we thought that. So my goal is is that five thousand dollars is not going to reach those. It's not going to reach those groups, and it's going to be. It, 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 it's going to be futile. So I think there's things that we can do in-house. It's just doing it with the, the level of intentionality and working with our partners to ensure that we, in, that we find some way to engage and encourage that participation so that we can do that. So I, I think the core group, the BIPOC network group, those are great spaces to do it. We don't need to do the sampling. We don't need to do the oversampling. And Commissioner Sellers, this is Britt Crumkina, Economic Development Director. I would just like to clarify that ETC, the ones who will be doing this survey, will be pulling from the data axle uh, database of uh, businesses in Lawrence and will not, so it's not a chamber database. Uh, we're not specifically targeting um, chamber members or anything. So it should be randomly selected. And yes, we can, I think we could do something a little more focused and intentional if we were um, to, to go with focus groups or even maybe a set survey just to, to kind of tease out some additional issues that we think these populations might be experiencing when it comes to business ownership. Thank you, Brett. And, and, and yes, I, I know that it wouldn't be just a, a chamber list, but one of the things that we talked about in the networking groups is the, a passive approach to engaging women and, by, and especially BIPOC business owners. So getting a, getting a survey in the mail without, you know, I mean, with a letter, that's, that's passive to me. And it's not really, it doesn't speak to I'm really wanting to know what these specific business owners, what value that their words have and their experience and their perspective have on our community. You can't do that by mailing something. They're, you know, it's creating a space. And I would love to see us, if, since we have 
partners in a space to do that, to, 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 to essentially do it with some, some intentionality and, 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 you know, just some dedicated care. These are the things that we have to do to show individuals in our community that we do care and that we want them to be prosperous and that we're here to provide them with, with those supports. So, um, you know, I, I, again, I don't want a survey to go to these groups in the mail. I think there needs to be some level of personal touch to it. And whether it's a, a direct invitation to attend, whether we're using those advisory members that the chamber has with the revolving loan program to connect. I know, I know the chamber is doing um, DEI work using their champions to reach out to these business owners because they're not being, they're, they're not being talked to. They're, you know, they're just now being engaged and there's a little bit of coaxing that needs to happen. And there's a little bit more work that has to be done to show BIPOC and women business owners, especially BIPOC women business owners, that you truly do care and that you're not just looking to um, exploit their thoughts and their, their feedback to benefit someone else and not them, so. And Commissioner Sellers, I also wanted to mention that staff has access to the same database that ETC will be using. In fact, that's what we use to pull the women and minority business ownership statistics that I showed you earlier. And that particular database gives a ton of information about the business, the type of business, who owns it, uh, their ethnicity, uh, their gender, um, and contact information. So we do have a really strong list that actually ETC would be using that we could provide to our partners for directly contacting those women and minority business owners. I would, I would love that. Uh, I think we're just gonna have to, to realize that there's just a little bit of coaxing and, and, and care and, and, and with that intentionality in it and those processes that we're not used to doing and that I understand capacity. I truly do. But if we are targeting this and we're wanting to hear these voices and we're really trying to move and elevate women and in, 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 in minority business owners and creating a welcoming environment for, for different ethnic communities within Lawrence, things have to be done a little bit differently. So, I, and I'd like for us to be you know, to speak to that and, and, and actually be, and be actionable in those, uh, in those efforts. So I think that's the only common piece I had, you know, it's just that intentionality piece that the survey we discussed. Um, there was something on page five that I just wanted to speak to in your, in the memo. Let me find it real quick, sorry. The note about developing to create the creation of a city certified program for w, for WBs and MBEs, and I, I know we have some neighboring organization, neighboring communities that does that. I know One KC um, has um, their was their Women's Business Center and their Women's Capital Network and their Women's Employment Network. I mean, these are all organizations that I've had the the privilege to, to be a part of and to engage with. And so um, seeing that 
I, I really felt like we do have mechanisms in place to make that happen and for that and, and to be successful in that piece. And so it was nice to see um, discussion around a city certified um, program that supports women and minority owned businesses. Thank you for those comments. Um, I hate to rush us, but we have not even started our regular agenda and it's 930 of a lot of public comment. Um, so I want to thank um, Britt and Sam and Steve and oh, where'd he go? Brandon, <laughs> Brandon, yeah. uh, did I get everybody? Um, and Christina. So uh, thank you so much for being here and sharing with us. Um, that brings us to our regular agenda item number one, which is to receive the final, the draft final site plan for the Stratford Water Tower. And I believe Sandra Day will be presenting on this. Good evening, Mayor, Commissioner Sandy Day with the Planning Office. Also in Engaged in this presentation will be Leah Morris, who is the project manager with Municipal Services and Operations. Before we get too far into the presentation, I do need to um, request that you all declare any um, ex parte communications. Um, I, I've received the same correspondence. I presume everyone else has. I haven't spoken in person to anyone for a long time. I, I went to one of the public engagement sessions previously that you document here, but um, I don't think I had any particular conversations with anyone. I've just spoken to city staff about it um, regarding this particular item. I have not spoken to any individuals regarding this item. None to disclose. Commissioner Sellers, I have no ex parte communication, so it's to disclose. Thank you, Commissioners. I will now uh, be sharing my screen, Porter, if that is available. Can you all please confirm that you can see the screen? Yes, thank you. Thank you. This item is actually a site plan that you are receiving essentially as the property owners of the project. Um, it is related to the special use permit that we considered at the end of 2020. And as a requirement of that procedure, a site plan has also been submitted. There is a lot of process with this project. We want to spend a little time uh, in this presentation going over process, but we also need to uh, kind of recap some of the project history. So Leah and I will be going back and forth in that presentation. Um, the site plan uh, that you are receiving is a condition of that special use permit that was outlined in ordinance 9821, um, addressing specific uh, details of that proposed development. Uh, as you're familiar with, this is Water Tower Park. It 1225 Sunset Drive, the use as, um, as a utility use for the new construction of the new tower was specifically approved as part of that special use permit. Um, the next couple of slides will go over the project history and I will ask Leah to step in at this point. Good evening, commissioners. This is Leah Morris, engineering program manager. And I just wanted to kind of update on the history because this has been a long ongoing process. So um, back in December of 2014, we completed an evaluation on the Stratford report, um, evaluating um, what would be the be best benefit for the city in terms of uh, having a structural reevaluation, 
and repair of the tank or proposing a new tank. And it was found at that point that the new tank proposal was going to be the lowest cost of ownership. So in July of 2019, um, we went out for an RFP and city commission authorized engineering services uh, with Black and Beach. In November of 2019, um, we completed an alternate tank memorandum to choose what, what tower style that we wanted to incorporate into the park. And that was a composite tank, similar to what we have at Stone Ridge. And then the first project public meeting was in July, 2020 to present to the public. And there was neighborhood meetings in the interim, but this was the first uh, official public meeting. Um, then we went to planning commission in August to uh, put, put forth the preliminary plat and special use permit. And then in September of 2020, we did more uh, public engagement to select the tower location. If you remember the four quadrants that we kind of produced during those meetings. And then in October of 2020, we went back to planning commission for the second time um, to get the preliminary plat um, and special use permit authorized. And then in December, we went to city commission uh, where the ordinance 1921 was passed and the final plat was received and approved by city commission. And then we went back in July 2021 for uh, additional supplemental engineering agreement. And then also in September 2021, we did three uh, public engagement sessions and two of those were in the actual park and then one at City Hall to try and make ourselves available to the public. Next slide, please, Sandy. Um, so, so from January through March of 2022, we uploaded site plan documents into our uh, our community development system and worked with planning to make sure that that was prepared to go as final site plans were approaching. Um, and in the interim, we were still working on KDHE approvals on the sanitary sewer, um, as well as other uh, KDHE approvals that you'll see later on. Um, we did a public involvement update and sent that out in March. And that was based on the ordinance, which was you know getting public engagement on the concrete, the lighting, as well as the tree selection. And then we also incorporated some of the other concerns into the plan set as well, which we'll kind of summarize as Sandy had stated. Um, and then tonight we are, you know, summarizing this and in the ordinance, it stated that this site plan was to be received by commission, which is what we're doing tonight. And we're also asking for some initiation of the ordinance um, and SUP regarding the lights and the north-south walkway, which we'll show here in a little bit. And then that will um, commence notice being sent out to the public, as well as the additional plan city commission meetings for um, the final site plan approval uh, with the ordinance as well. Next slide. And Sandy, you were going to walk through this. Yes, the next the next couple of slides are again intended to uh, provide kind of a graphic overview of the design changes in the project that um, have been implemented based on the different comments through planning commission process, through public engagement, and direction from the city commission. So this is uh, a slide of the drawing that was um, that we started with with the uh, new water facility being located with direct access to sunset. Uh, the tower was originally designed with the idea or the concept to be able to co-locate uh, commercial communication equipment with those um, supporting ground facilities accessed from the north side of the park. Um, as we move through some of that engagement, um, 
this obviously changed. This is also showing that larger tank size um, that was originally in the uh, plan preparations. Um, some of that engagement included moving and rotating the tower um, to come off uh, the north side of the the property through the existing pathway that could be converted to um, a multi-use path that would allow for uh, maintenance access and emergency access from fire if that is ever needed um, through controlled access. Um, it also reflects a change to the plan that removed um, co-location of communication equipment. Um, that was uh, something, a recommendation that came out through the public hearing through the Planning Commission and was forwarded to the City Commission when they considered the a special use permit. And this was yet another one of those revisions that talked about, um, again, removing the opportunity for co-location of the commercial communications, and then also either retaining the building that is currently used by Douglas County, or if that building could not be reused, um, including a building where that new equipment could be located on the site, and that is required equipment um, for emergency communication and uh, fire communication as well. So it is critical infrastructure, and that would be the only communication equipment that would be co-located on the structure. At the city commission meeting meetings in December, um, the commission recommended ultimately approval of the use with a number of conditions, specifically addressing um, items that we also look at in a site plan component. So special use permit approved the use in the site plan component is looking at the details and specifications of how things are arranged on that property. Um, one of those things was a requirement to provide landscaping. Um, this uh, revised plan that is included in your packet now shows um, the required street trees for the project. Um, we also um, have a plan that shows the water tower itself being relocated to the west, so further to the park to provide more of a buffer from property owners to the east. Um, the, the tower location was shifted actually 37 feet. Um, the condition that commercial communication equipment is prohibited from being located on that tower, the site plan has been designed without um, any forecast of where that equipment would be. Um, the city as the property owner also controls the ability to uh, prohibit the use of co-location equipment on that tower. Um, the proposed uh, structure uh, was actually downsized to not exceed the 500,000 gallons. Um, and then one of the other site plan components was about um, fencing of the water tower that has been prohibited. Um, again, the site plan reflects that there is no fencing proposed for the site. The only fencing that is proposed is that related to the Douglas County Communications Building. That is redundant security that is required at the federal level to secure that equipment. And the fence that is being proposed is, proposed is a decorative fencing um, so that 
that will open up much more usable park space than is currently available in the park today. The other fencing that is shown on the plan is fencing that is related to tree protection. Specific trees will be protected during the construction of uh, the new tower and also for the demolition. So um, there is a robust uh, plan to protect those trees during that construction. And then the other uh, fencing that's shown on the plan is the construction fencing. Um, it shows kind of the extreme boundary of where that fencing would be located during certain phases of the project. And that will be managed by uh, the contractor and the construction crews to make sure that the site is both safe and secure um, during those critical phases of the project. Uh, there are a couple of conditions that were identified in the ordinance. One of those was specifically to show a 10 foot wide pedestrian pathway along the west property line and also to show specific lighting along that pathway. And as we met with the neighborhood through those other public engagements uh, throughout the uh, summer fall of last year, um, it became very clear that there was not a desire to have the 10 foot wide pedestrian path or lighting um, along that west property line, that lighting would be something that uh, should be talked about and discussed and developed through a uh, master plan park initiative, uh, which the Parks and Recreation Department will take over that step of uh, planning and use of the park. Uh, the project is designed to include conduit that could extend lighting um, to the site, depending on what that master plan effort is. And then um, also uh, staff identified um, a modification to the special use permit and to the ordinance to change that 10 foot wide pedestrian pathway to five feet. The site plan that you see in your packet uh, does comply with all of those conditions except for the lighting at the moment. So the 10 foot wide pedestrian path on the west side is shown on the project. The lighting that is shown um, does comply with the city's um, requirements about site lighting. The only lighting that is proposed is that uh, security light over the door. for the city commission and for staff to proceed to the next steps of the approval process. And that would be completing the site plan. The commission could accept this site plan as we look at it today with the 10 foot wide path. And then a lighting plan would need to be provided to show pedestrian lighting along this west property line. And we believe that that is contrary to what the neighborhood's expressed wishes are for that component. In order to make those amendments, the special use permit and the ordinance need to be amended. And that is an action that rests with the city commission. You have the authority and the prerogative to amend, suspend or revoke a special use permit subject to a public hearing. So that would in, in essence bring this project back to you to amend that special use permit to modify those particular conditions that were set out in ordinance. To just cover the process a little bit, um, this is a very heavy uh, 
a process-oriented project and there are multiple steps yet to come. The item that you're doing tonight is to receive this final site plan with that 10-foot path and if you so direct with the additional lighting. Once that step is complete, staff would publish the administrative determination, notify property owners of that determination, and that would begin an appeal process. Property owners would have nine days to make an appeal of that site plan, which would come back to the city commission for you to consider the site plan component. Alternatively, or as an option, you could initiate an amendment to the special use permit, as we've described in the documentation. Um, in order to do that, your action tonight would be to initiate that change. That would then require public notice uh, to the property owners, and I believe that's a 20-day notice, or that would be the soonest it could be brought forward. Um, then you would hold that public hearing for the amendment to the special use permit to specifically address those particular conditions. Um, one would be to reduce the pedestrian pathway is what staff's recommendation for you is. And then also to actually remove the condition about lighting and let the lighting be developed and evolve through a very specific uh, master plan park effort um, that would be conducted by the Parks and Recreation Department as part of, of the pro programming for the open space. Um, once that happens, um, we would revise the site plan, publish that administration, that administrative determination, and that actually brings us back to um, where, where we would um, pick up with the site plan, publishing that administrative determination, notifying the neighbors, um, offering that nine-day appeal process in which time the site plan could be brought back to the city commission. Um, a couple of things of note, uh, the items that we have for consideration are a site plan. A site plan is not a construction document. Um, the requirements in a construction document are very explicit details. So things like um, pavement cover color, um, we know that in the site plan appropriately documents that the pedestrian pathway on the north side is going to be 10 feet wide with the three additional feet on either side that will be a stamped uh, pavement typology with um, an earth tone color and that is based on that uh, information staff gathered during those public processes um, and then the exact color whether it's beige 301 or earth tone XYZ, those would be specified in the construction documents and not necessarily in the site plan. Um, these are the options that I've described for the city commission on this slide, which is to receive the site plan. It would move forward with that process, 10 foot wide pedestrian path on the north side, uh, revised photometric plan to provide lighting along that west property line. We would complete that process, publish the determination, notify property owners, and let the appeal, pro appeal process begin. Um, or to, um, we're asking the city commission to initiate an amendment to that special use permit and to the ordinance, um, as I've described in the other, other slides. Um, specifically, uh, item G 
in the ordinance, which was to amend that from the 10 foot to the five foot and item G in the ordinance to just really remove that condition for lighting. I'm happy to answer any questions. Uh, Leah is also available to answer any questions. It's a lot of process. It can be confusing and hopefully we've tried to simplify it a little bit. Um, I, I do have a question about the uh, the path, not the not the one on the west side, but on the north side. Um, I understand that. I, I thought I understood that that was for emergency vehicles to access um, the um, the water tower um, and the the other building. Um, is it both, or is it an emergency path or an emergency road that is also being used as a path? Um, Mayor Shipley, this is Leah Morris, Engineering Program Manager. Um, the use of the 16-foot wide access path was the width was determined by the fire department so that their emergency vehicles could access the building. However, city staff specifically um, for the water section will be also utilizing that path to do tower maintenance and sampling. Um, the normal schedule of that is typically sampling about once a week, um, but if there's issues with the instrumentation or anything um, in terms of the operations up there, it could be more frequent. Um, and then there is the AMI, the City of Lawrence AMI uh, stuff that will be uh, located up there as well as, as well as Douglas County, and so they will need periodic access, but not at a, you know, maintained time that I'm aware of. So its intended use is for is for emergency use. Some people are using it as a path because it goes from one street to another, but its its actual use is for emergency and, Emerge and access. Yes, emergen emergency and MSO operations, yes. And there will be bollards, collapsible bollards located on either end so that it can't be used as like a, a drive-through or a cut-through pass that the bollards will remain erected when not in use. Um, and on, on the subject of that, um, access um the extra three feet of stamped concrete can you remind me what the cost of that will so be yes yes mayor shipley leah morris um the cost of the stamp itself is estimated to just be around twenty thousand dollars but the concrete the additional concrete when we shifted um the tower to the west and that initiated that path um, needing to be used is in the realm of two hundred thousand dollars so overall, the additional concrete needed in order to access the tower added just shy of a quarter million dollars to the project. But not the extra three feet that is ultimately cosmetic. Correct. That's $20,000. Well, no, that's just, <laughs> that's just for the actual stamping of that three feet. The, it, the concrete is not just for aesthetic, the 16-foot use is for emergency vehicles. It had to be that wide for the turning radius and the apparatus used by the fire department. But using the three feet on either side presented a more aesthetic look for the neighborhood so that it didn't feel like such a driveway that it felt more like a typical shared use path. So it was incorporating a little bit of um, more positive aesthetic features into it, which I would classify as $20,000 additional for the concrete stamp um, and die. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? So what we're deciding on tonight is just the, the, the two points that you had spoken about. Um, could you put that slide up again? 
Sandy Day planning. Is this the slide that you were requesting? Um, oh, you can't see it yet. Sorry. <laughs> Is this the slide you were requesting? No, it's the very last slide you had. Oh, kind of give yes. us our summary of what we're. That's not the slide. Yeah, there we keep. There we go. That was. Back. I'm actually going to go, go. Sandy Day Planning Office. Um, so, your options tonight. There, there are one of two choices that you can make. You can receive the site plan as it's been submitted with the 10 foot wide path. Um, and that would fulfill the requirements of the site plan with the exception of the photometric plan, as I mentioned. Or you may um, initiate an amendment to that special use permit that would revise those two components that we've identified or other components, I suppose, if the city commission so desires. So the path that uh, the mayor was talking about on the north side of the property, is that involved with the decision tonight? Um, it is not. Sandy Day Planning not. Office, it is not. Um, the, the design requirements for that north path um, meet the minimum. Uh, it's actually, it was a code modification for fire to actually have a reduced width um, acceptable emergency access way uh, from the public street to the tower itself. Um, and then those design components to be 10 foot wide, which would be what a typical multi-use path would be with the additional uh, pavement width provided through that stamped and dyed um, feature on either side of that 10 foot path, which is called out as a note on the plan. What it does not, what the site plan does not specify is the exact pattern or the it. exact color um, that will be used. That would be a construction document detail. Is that something that the commission would be able to weigh in on at some yes. point? Not? Sandy yes. Day planning, yes. That is okay. something the commission could direct. I'm sorry, uh, Com Commissioner Larson, this is Leah Morris, Engineering um, Program Manager. I, I wanted to wait for the project to be bid and the bid awards come through because depending on where the, con where the concrete was being supplied and the vulnerability of the market, I wanted to make sure that the stamp was going to be reasonably supplied by the concrete um, supplier as well as the color of the dye because um, looking at this investigation of you know sustainable choices for the city I wanted to make sure and as I was doing my research they were saying that some dye wasn't available for six to eight months and so I wanted to make sure at the time of bid the colors that they had available were presented to us so that it didn't further delay construction um, and so I won't be able to do that until a contractor is uh, awarded. Any other questions? Okay, then let's see if there's any public comment in the room. No. Uh, public comment online. Uh, Sherry will call on you. Uh, if you can use your raise the hand function so she can see you. Raise, take a breath. 
thank you so much for the opportunity to speak. Commissioners, I appreciate this opportunity and follow up to my email to all of you and also my comment last meeting. I'd like to start by thanking you all for your thoughtful consideration of making July 2022 Park Month for Lawrence. I think it fits right into the values of the community as expressed in the last meeting. And thank you so much for that. In regards to that, I think that this creates a great opportunity in being able to modify or direct changes to the soup in this, this night's meeting to save two parks at once. Unfortunately, the new water tower that in 2014 analysis showed to be more cost effective than rehabilitating the old water tower would destroy 7,500 7, feet of green space, 10 beautiful trees, the homes of countless birds and animals, and half of the baseball soccer field, as well as making the whole park uh, unable to be used for about a year. And it would cost the city $3.8 million. And that on old estimates, you know, 2014 to now, especially with inflation, and supply chain issues, the cost I expect will be much more. The company that did the analyzing in 2014 was Black and & Veatch, and they were also the company that was going to stand to benefit by being able to propose a new tower. You see, proposing changes to the old tower would award them just a small fraction of the cost in engineering fees which amount to over a million for designing a new tower. So a clear conflict of interest existed there. And not to mention it's again, old data. I appreciated how Commissioner Sellers talked about how she values you know, low income and vulnerable populations. And I think of how parks are free for everyone, you know, Prey Park Nature Center and this one, and how the kids that enjoy the park every day, they can't come to the meeting and testify um, you know, to how much of a benefit it is for them and how much losing it for a year during a pandemic would hurt them. But I hope that you'll consider another option in the modifying and directing changes to the soup, which is going back and looking at rehabilitating the old tower. We had an expert engineer from KU who specializes in water towers say that rehabilitating the old tower actually is more cost effective and better stewardship. There's over 20 years life left in it. It doesn't need to be replaced for $3.8 million in the middle of a deficit. And that money could fund Prairie Park Nature Center for 10 years. There are companies that specialize in water towers, water tower consulting, Tower Engineering Incorporated. Black and Beach isn't one of them. They even testified the only kind of tower they can make is the concrete tower, which is the least aesthetic and probably the most expensive as well. So I'd encourage you all to remember your values, save two parks at once, for the next 10 years, rehabilitate the old tower and modify and direct the soup to go back. And thank you. And I would leave you with all with the final remark, which is thank you. A comment from John Stewart, which is if you don't stick to your values when they're being tested, they're not values, they're just hobbies. Thank you. Steve Scannell. Thank you. Um, can you hear me okay? Yes, thanks. Okay. Um, my name is Steve Scannell. I live at 1005 Sunset Drive. I'm a retired KU architect. I've been actively involved for the past two years advocating for the best interests of both the neighbors and the city related to this project. 
here tonight to ask that you provide guidance to city staff on several important details that I'm not sure will get addressed in an appropriate manner unless you intercede on our behalf and express support for the recommendations that I'm making on behalf of the neighbors. Specifically, please direct city staff on our behalf to do the following. Require the consulting engineer to clearly show the extent of the pillar and stamped concrete on the final drawings and include other details related to it. Uh, and to share those updated drawings with the public for comment prior to bidding. Currently, we've been told that there's a note on the drawings uh, that covers this, which says stamping shall be three feet wide on each side of the drive. But if you take that literally, that means that uh, the, the border will follow the curved radii at each end, which was never the intent, nor what we understood was agreed on. Intent has always been to create 10 foot wide natural gray concrete bike path down the center of the 16 foot wide service drive with an ADA tactile warning strip at each end. So it won't look like an industrial driveway, even though it will function like one. But it would instead look like a city standard 10 foot wide bike path with a colored stamped concrete on both sides of it and the drive to the tower. Uh, please take a look at the drawings that I attached in my written comments towards the end from 2021 that clearly show all that. Staff also indicated that uh, a vaulted cobblestone pattern was the preferred pattern for responses to their survey. But during our on-site discussions with staff, almost all the neighbors present told staff that we didn't respond to their surveys since they were so poorly done. And we asked them to instead rely on our discussion comments. And during those discussions, I recommended that we use the running bond brick pattern in the sable color that is used on all of the city standard crosswalks. And a majority of the neighbors supported that approach. I think the cobblestone pattern that the survey uh, selected is a poor choice, given its irregular surface, as you can see in the photos I attached in my written comments. And I would ask that you direct staff or give them guidance to use the city standard crosswalk materials instead, which should both be more economical because it's something that's done all across the city and which they have on hand. You don't need to wait until after the project's bid. In fact, you're just asking for potential change orders if you do wait. Um, so, uh, and I would also ask that you please have them address other details that I won't get into that are written in my comments. Also, uh, the North Sidewalk asked staff to uh, indicate that it's to remain in service as long as possible. A fence can be added on the south side. Uh, can be moved, uh, uh, construction can occur in that area, and it can be shut off only as needed during that time, uh, and then restored. Otherwise, that'll be a major inconvenience uh, during the new towers construction and the old towers demolition. Uh, Thank you. Automated, I got a lot, please, just a couple more seconds. <laughs> I can't. You know what? You know what? Um, I'm certain that one of the commissioners um, here will ask you to uh, follow up here, but I want to give everyone their three minutes. Okay. Thank you. I, I thank you. I'll, I'll be happy to respond to questions and follow up. That's all the comments. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm surprised. Okay. Um, in that case, is there any questions? <laughs> So my understanding is that, again, I just want to go back to make sure we're just working with the 10 foot pathway right now tonight and that these items that the neighborhood has brought up and they've got some good points here. Those are items that's go that are is going to be decided at a later date by the commission. It'll be brought forth to the commission. Is that right? Um, Leah Morris, engineering program manager. So the two items that are being requested to be revised 
are on the west pathway, which is 10 foot, we would ask that to be reduced to five for a normal sidewalk and the additional lighting uh, required by the ordinance. Um, it was again discussed uh, actively with the neighborhood that they did not want lighting as part of this project, but part of the overall master park uh, planning process. So um, in terms of additional decisions to be brought to the commission, if there are things that the commission would like to have input on, then that is completely you know, up to the commission. But at this point, the, the selected concrete uh, pattern, as well as the color, is going to be determined after the bid process. So that process can be provided by the vendor. And if there needs to be an additional public meeting, because traditionally we will have a public meeting and an information meeting after the bid is awarded to go over schedule and what the determined construction schedule is when we have a contractor on board, if the public would like to be engaged at that point to select the color and the pattern that is provided by the contractor at that point, I think that that would be um, a compromise in terms of, again, keeping the public engaged in those options, um, but also getting good sustainable selections that don't push the construction back, um, you know, for additional time on the schedule. But I feel that the plans, the plans clearly call out that this is required as part of the site and part of the construction. So it will be in the bid and we are doing a pre-bid on this project so that, and we will be explaining that specifically at the pre-bid to the contractors that intend to propose on the project. Okay, got it. Um, what about the question that was brought up uh, regarding having the sidewalk open as much as possible during construction, is that feasible? Uh, Leah Morris, engineering program manager. Um, yes, Commissioner Larson, it is. We are going to explicitly talk to the contractor about, you know, wanting to keep as much green space in the park available um, during construction. If you look at the fence layout for the temporary construction, it is shown uh, crossing that north sidewalk. But we really want to make sure that, you know, we're, we don't typically dictate means and methods of the contractor, but the majority of the construction is going to happen in that northwest corner, and we are showing the construction entrance to the south. So um, until the water line goes in, as well as the north path is demoed, I think that it would be feasible for them to keep that open. And then once that construction starts on that northern part, then shift the fence at that point. Um, it, it, that seems reasonable to me, but again, that can be discussed with the contractor specifically, um, because if we dictate it in means and methods, then it does, you know, provide opportunity for higher costs. Okay, great. And then one other thing was the idea of, of potentially the, not potentially, the parks aspect of it. That's, does that come at a later date as the master plan for the park there? Sandy Day, planning office. The park initiative for the master plan is going to be a process that is managed and dictated through parks and recreation staff. Um, they can begin that process at any time. Um, I think they have been waiting just a little bit to make sure that they have a final project um, so they know where 
buildings and structures are located at, at kind of a final um, placement before they, they do that. They committed um, at some of those public engagement meetings to meeting with, with a neighborhood to talk about different ideas um, that people were interested in for the use of the park. Um, I see Mark Hecker um, on the line, so I think he may be able to address you more specifically about the plans for that. Mark Hecker, System Director of Parks and Recreation. Yes, we intend to engage the neighborhood here. Uh, we're basically kind of waiting for the site plan to settle out a little bit, but uh, we'd like to talk with the neighbors about what they'd like to see as the, the after the water tower is built and as we redevelop the park. Is that put a playground in? Is that sidewalks? Is it lights? What is it? So, so that process I anticipate will happen in the next month or two. And then there is some budgeted money this year that we may be able to get a start on purchasing whatever we decide we want to do. If we want to purchase playground equipment, we potentially could do that in this year's budget. Thank you. Any other questions? Uh, Commissioner Sellers, you got any questions? No, Mayor, I do not. Okay. Do I have any motions? Well, I think we definitely want to modify the ordinance to yeah. get yes. it going, and we'll see the site plan again. So mm -hmm. yes. I move we initiate an amendment for 2013-06. I think that's an L. To modify the condition set out in the ordinance number 9821 to allow for the west pedestrian path to be reduced from 10 feet to 5 feet and to remove the condition requiring lighting along the west side of the pedestrian pathway. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. That passes five to zero. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you, Leah. Thank you. Um, and Mr. Scannell, I uh, appreciate you. Um, and Mark, um, thanks for being here for this. Um, our next item is um, consider adopting on first reading ordinance 9928, establishing sidewalk and parklet hospitality areas. Good evening, Commissioners. Mark Hecker, Assistant Director of Parks and Recreation. The agenda item tonight uh, comes after about three months worth of work with consultant and staff to develop a, a long-term parklet program for downtown Lawrence. So um, if you go backwards a little bit to March 22nd, the City Commission requested staff to hire a consultant to come up with a long-range plan to develop a hospitality in downtown um, what this ordinance does, it combines our temporary parklet um, resolution that will expire here August 12th with the sidewalk dining program that's been in place for a number of years. So the commission authorized us to hire Gould Evans, which is now called uh, Multi Studios. So tonight, what I'd like to do is have John Wilkins kind of introduce his group. Um, Abby Kinney will be walking us through the presentation. And then we'll come back. There's a number of staff online, too, that have been involved with the process that would, can jump in for questions after they do their presentation. So I'll turn it over to John. Thanks, Mark, and good evening, uh, commissioners. I'm John Wilkins. I'm the managing principal of Multi-Studio, uh, founded in Lawrence in 1974. Um, we've uh, been working on this uh, uh, for a while, and uh, um, you know, I'm going to have Abby kind of walk through uh, the process uh, that we went through and, uh, and the results of that policy. So, Abby. 
Thanks, Thanks John. John. Um, and then to, to get started, started I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. screen so, so if I can just, just confirm that, that you all can see it. Good. Good. Yeah, so, uh, maybe not. The same. Maybe if, if I, I turn, turn it down, down a little bit, does that help at all? No speaker or something. Hmm. Is, 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 is it, it still, still echoing? echoing? Yeah. Yeah. It is, huh? Um. Hmm. I could jump, jump off and get, get back, back on, on the call, call. and see, see if that works. works. Um, let's see. Um, does this help at all? Yes. yes. It does? Okay, great. <laughs> great job. Um, yeah, thanks for your patience. Um, well, uh, thank you all for the opportunity to walk through this ordinance. I'll try to be respectful of your all's time um, and just kind of provide a summary of the process. Um, my name is Abby Kenny. I'm an urban planner at Multi Studio based out of the Kansas City office, and I've been working uh, with the uh, Lawrence City staff as well as uh, downtown stakeholders since. really uh, both engaging with downtown stakeholders on what kind of the big issues are um, with the pilot program, what they'd like to see in a long-term program, and what kinds of expectations ought to be set for that, as well as to conduct um, really extensive research on what best practices are, how other cities are uh, regulating parklet programs, what kinds of things um, that to be looking out for. And so really marrying those two things together um, throughout this public engagement process. Say um, people in the downtown area and working with them on, on what the kind of the big issues were regarding uh, parking, regarding utilizing parking spaces for parklets. Um, we had 10 formal meetings where we met with stakeholders. Um, we had extensive ongoing email and phone communications with a number of different stakeholders, um, some of which had had their own parklets and we were able to learn about kind of what has been working and what hasn't. Um, and we've also met with a number of different city staff members to inform us about um, what kinds of things ought to be um, addressed moving forward. And so um, really this is what we're thinking of as a data-informed regulatory approach where we're not only taking um, you know, best practices, standards that are typical in, in parklet ordinances in other cities. Um, we looked at cities both within the region like Bentonville, Tulsa, uh, Manhattan, 
Kansas City, Clayton, Missouri, but also cities outside of the region to kind of test what kinds of things are being regulated within the region against uh, cities on the coast, both the east and west. Um, and we're also really utilizing any other kinds of data points that we can get to understand um, the current parking capacity, which I, I, I know Brad has a lot of information about and can answer questions regarding parking capacity and operations in the downtown. Um, we've also uh, pulled the Lawrence Listen survey and went through the feedback that um, we were able to learn from that survey. And, and there were you know, 2,000 responses for that. Um, it really informed us that parklets from the public perspective are, are very popular as a concept. And really what this process was intended to do was to dig a little deeper and, and speak with um, people who are operating businesses in the downtown area to understand what kinds of things ought to be addressed. Um, so through our engagement and through the feedback that we have received, we, we heard a lot of different things. Um, this list really shows the, the feedback points that were uh, related to um, things that would inform a long-term parklet ordinance, so actual regulatory issues. Um, and some of the issues that were brought up are things that are standard practices, things that are typically regulated times regulated in similar ways. Um, but there are also things that are Lawrence specific, uh, such as the arrangement and shape of parking spaces and defining that through the ordinance, as well as extent li limitations, which I'll, I'll discuss um, briefly here. So the ordinance that, that has been um, drafted for your consideration tonight basically amends the current sidewalk dining program and uh, turns it into sidewalk and parklet hospitality areas. So that creates um, a program where there's consistency in terms of um, the uh, licensing and how the application process would work, um, as well as standards regarding uh, the, the approval, the renewal, the revocation and removal. So it creates consistency across um, both the sidewalk dining licensing, as well as parklet dining licensing, uh, it merges those things together. Um, it also creates administrative standards that are specific to parklets since it, it, it does um, it, it does have to do with parking spaces in the right of way, which is a little bit different than sidewalk dining. And I'll go through what those recommend recommendations are, but these are basically the five pieces that have been drafted um, based on our recommendations um, based off of both stakeholder engagement as well as research that's been conducted from other cities. Um, so the first has to do with location size and dimensions of parklets. Um, so first, what's been recommended is location or location limitations. So prohibiting parklets um, to be to be established in any ADA parking spaces, as well as public facilities and parks. So that would include those those bump out areas that are public parks, those would not be eligible in this current program um, for a parklet program. And the reasoning for that is because, um, you know, at some point in the future, there could be an amendment that could make those spaces eligible. But um, for the time being, there's some pro 
problematic issues that need further consideration in order to utilize those spaces. Um, and if there's any questions about that, I think Mark can speak to, to that issue. But, but one of the things being, for example, is um, you know being able to put umbrellas up in those spaces closer to the intersections at the ends of the blocks creates some uh, site issues and some traffic safety issues. So there's kind of additional uh, considerations that would need to be worked through in order to make those spaces eligible. So for right now, we're just focusing on spaces that are actual parking spaces. Um, there's also a requirement that uh, parklets need to be set back within 30 feet of an intersection, driveway, or alley, and that really would impact um, eligibility on east-west streets rather than Massachusetts streets because most parking spaces are uh, on Massachusetts Street are set back at least 30 feet from an intersection. Um, also requirements regarding obstructions. So um, basically uh, creating a standard that licensees need to provide access um, for any reason for city operations, which take priority. Um, this is a pretty typical standard that we see in every single city, just to make sure that the licensees understand that if they are participating in this program, um, that you know they are licensing use of the right of way. And so if city needs to um, use that space for any reason to uh, do maintenance or, or um, make improvements, um, that there, there would be a no obstruction rule. The number of spaces that have been recommended for the parklet program are a maximum of three for angled spaces and two for parallel spaces. And these numbers are, are pretty typical for other cities, um, although most cities focus mainly on parallel spaces and can go up to four or five. Um, because of the concerns about the number of parking spaces utilized uh, for parklets amongst downtown stakeholders and the need to really be equitable about um, the number of spaces that are being utilized and balancing those um, considerations amongst businesses, we've recommended the two and three as kind of a middle, middle point. Um, we've also recommended uh, a program maximum, so making sure that parklets, that parking spaces are um, capped on a per block basis, so the licensing not to exceed 12 spaces per block at any time. Um, regarding design and composition, so these are pretty typical standards that we see in other cities um, recommending a perimeter buffer of, of a two foot setback on all sides, which is the current um, practice that's that of the pilot program. Um, at, one thing that would change here is that there wouldn't be the orange barriers, um, which is the one thing that every downtown stakeholder had consensus on um, of wanting to have an alternative to the orange barriers. Um, and, and luckily other cities don't use orange barriers either for their parklets and rather um, have, have uh, MSO, Public Works, install wheel stops and reflective posts in that setback area as a traffic safety as well as um, uh, visibility measure. Uh, regarding perimeter barrier walls, so this is, a, this is a standard that's been pulled over from the sidewalk dining program with a limit of 45 inches in height, um, creating or adding some standards regarding general stability, fire resistance, um, material materials, uh, making sure that it's compatible with the general downtown area, um, and also requiring a reflective material to be put along the top outside edges, again, 
for visibility. And this is a standard that is um, standard practice. Um, regarding ADA compliance, we um, were able to vet this with staff to ensure that parklets would be fully ADA compliant um, from you know, having the platforms flush with the curb to uh, having an ADA table and unobstructive pathways and turning circles within parklets. Um, and then the general composition uh, in materials, uh, some general standards regarding uh, that the uh, materials would be non-combustible, weather resilient, um, and this would be reviewed by staff as site plans would be submitted. We have uh, provided a, a section uh, for accessory components. So these are components that may or may not be included Uh, allow overhead structures. And one of the concerns for downtown Lawrence was that, um, you know, there are not only fire safety issues with overhead structures that would require some extensive standards, um, but there's also concerns about historic preservation and eligibility of, of um, the historic designation. And so we actually uh, made this consistent with the sidewalk dining program, which allows temporary canopies, umbrellas, but not a permanent roof structure in parklets. Um, and this is not very common, but there are some current parklets that have permanent uh, structure, roof structures that would be no longer permitted, permitted to do that if this were approved. Um, regarding electricity, so uh, this would need to be performed by a licensed electrician uh, with overhead connections to the subject property. Um, you would think this goes without saying, but uh, clarifying that electricity needs to come from the property that the licensee is, um, is, is operating from and not uh, any kind of public connections uh, for lighting. Uh, also, lighting can be supported by vertical poles, uh, clarifying that the lighting uh, should not be wrapped around the street trees. Uh, we've provided recommendations for standards for outside heaters. So we are recommending a limit of two per parking stall. Um, some of the concerns that were brought up through this process um, was not only some, some fire safety concerns with the over concentration of outside heaters, but also concerns about air quality as well as the health of the trees. So we've required um, some setback requirements from the public street trees so that the both the, um, the emissions from the outside heaters as well as the heat from the outside heaters are, are not adversely affecting uh, the streets, the street trees that are in the public right of way. Um, we've also included standards around open flames, vegetation, um, making sure that any kind of vegetation is not obstructing sight lines. Um, and then also uh, regarding sign, sounds and signs, ensuring that the uh, licensee would be complying with adopted city ordinances. Um, and then regarding operations, so uh, the parklet license, the licensee would be required to um, maintain their parklet, maintain the sidewalk outside of the parklet, um, keeping the area clear of leaves, snow, ice, uh, trash, and debris, um, as well as complying with any local and state laws uh, regarding stormwater pollution, smoking, and alcohol. 
Um, we have been working to develop a recommendation for the annual licensing fee. Um, so uh, this is one thing that other cities don't really have a standard practice on. And I would say that other cities uh, severely undervalue their public right of way. Um, the thing that I think is helpful about uh, uh, Lawrence is that you guys know the value of your parking um, due to the, the metering system that you have in the downtown area. And so Brad was very helpful in giving us an understanding of what the average annual revenue per parking space is and starting to use that as, a, as kind of the jumping off point for understanding what um, how, how a fee structure might be put together and recommended for this. And so um, at this point, we've, we've put it at a round number that is closest to 100% of the current parking revenue per space. Um, so if a parklet is utilizing one space, that would be $1,000 annually. If a park, parklet licensee is utilizing three, with that, there's a number of uh, staff people who have been really helpful in this process and um, I'm sure are, are happy to answer any questions you might have. And I'm also happy to answer questions. And I thank you for the opportunity to present this. Thank you so much. Any questions? Uh, yeah, I'll start it off. I got a couple. Um, if you could just go ahead and clarify just for all of us uh, in terms of the rental, uh, I'm sorry, in, ter in terms of the license, um, how long does that last and is it renewable? Yes, um, so the, the license would last one year and it would be renewable. Um, I believe if the city clerk is on, she may be able to um, speak to the specifics of how that is being structured or the city attorney. Assistant director Sherry, could you take that question? Sure. I, I mean, it's a one-year license from the time they apply, and we usually start sending out renewals two months prior to that. Um, and then they will have a specific period of time to renew or notify us that they don't plan to renew, so that we know that that space is then available um, for other individuals interested. Since we have that twelve um, uh, space limit per block. Thank you, Sherry. Um, and I just had a, an additional question. Um, I believe a business owner submitted comment and they, he had, a, I believe they had a question regarding one of the parklets and is, I didn't really see in the presentation or is there any sort of language or accommodation for um, uh, parklets or spaces that might be taken up that aren't directly in front of the, the uh, pertaining business? Um, so, so the based on how the ordinance has been written, the the business that is licensing the space needs to have um, doors and windows that are directly in front of the space that you know at least a portion of one of the spaces that they are licensing. So there needs to be a direct connection to the parklet, and um, you know. I think liquor licensing is really what drives that. Um, and so, so I think, you know, in downtown Lawrence, there's definitely um, a unique arrangement 
where you have the sawtooth design, which means that there's going to inevitably be parking spaces that may be touching more than one business. Um, but but it, hopefully I'm answering your question and in that the the storefront needs to have a direct connection to the parking space that it's connected to. But, you know, if they're utilizing three spaces, there may be some spillover where it ends up, you know, part of their parklet ends up being in front of uh, an adjacent business. Um, a little bit. Yeah. But uh, just a little bit more to that fact that for that parklet or that space that is in front of two businesses, as you're, you're saying, um, I think it would only be fair if they would have to go to that other business and get their permission or they're okay to go ahead and take up that space since it also services that other business as well. And I didn't really see any language to that in there. So, um, so we did not uh, create that kind of language there. I've seen that in a couple of instances in other cities. I think what may be challenging about that is, is that, most parklets will likely have that situation where, um, you know, the parking spaces will be in front of more than one business just because many of the storefronts are very narrow and the, you know, angled parking spaces are uh, relatively wide. And so I, that's the only thing that I think may be a challenge and that, um, you know, could, we could create some some issues actually being able to implement them, but I, I think that's worth considering. For the questions? Yeah, could you pull up the slide that shows the, um, the pricing, please? Yeah. So you, you have there on the on the spreadsheet part of it where it says 100%, $1,093. Is that 100%, is that um, if somebody was parked there all day long during the um, 9.30 to 6 o'clock, you know, throughout the year, is that what that $1,093 is? Um, so I'll let Brad clarify because I saw that he just unmuted. <laughs> Hi, uh, this is Brad Harrell, parking supervisor. So how we got this number was um, we took an average of uh, all of the meters on Massachusetts Street for the revenue that comes in annually and then divided it by the number of meters we have. So this uh, this number does not reflect if you paid, um, you know, eight hours a day, you know, 365 days a year. It does not do that. This is kind of an average of the city's revenue off of uh, the Massachusetts Street meters and uh, also through the mobile payment app as well. Okay. So why wouldn't you charge for eight and a half hours a day since it's going to be used for eight and a half hours a day. Brad Harrell, parking supervisor. Uh, this is one of those things that um, Abby and, um, you know, staff kind of uh, uh, wrestled with a little bit kind of both ways here. Um, you know, as she had mentioned, many of the other uh, peer cities that we, um, you know, looked at when we were trying to develop this policy and pricing structure, um, several of these communities did not charge for parking. So, um, you know, in return, they had uh, very, very minimal charges for um, the use of those right away or those parking 
installs. So, um, you know, we were kind of trying to do that balancing act to, um, you know, also, um, you know, figure out the community's needs and wants for a parklet program, uh, but also trying to uh, recoup some of that um, lost uh, revenue that occurs um, on Mass Street. So um, I, I don't know if that really answers your question, but that's kind of how we came across this scale. Brad, let me ask, maybe she and I are thinking the same thing. Did you generate the number for what a stall would be if it was occupied during the hours that we, if it was continuously occupied? Did you generate that number? I, I did not. It's about $2,500 a year. So that's about a 60% discount that we're giving them on a parking stall. If we're only going to charge $1,000. Any other questions? Um, hang on a second. Let me can retail. Oh, can retail rent the space? Yeah, so this would be eligible for for any uh, establishment in the downtown area. Um, they could uh, license. They could participate in the licensing program so long as they're um, following all of the standards that have been put in place. Um, it, it doesn't, the program doesn't discriminate between what type of business it is. So would they have to use it for restaurant type or can they use it to reserve it for their parking space for their clients? Um, so because it requires uh, an actual platform, an ADA accessible platform to be built in the space, um, you wouldn't be able to get a car into that space, but a retailer, if they wanted to build a platform and utilize it for a uh, sales space, that would be an option as well. Okay. Okay. So just for display or whatever. Um, one more. I, I tried to understand a little bit better about how you're doing the side streets because my did I understand right that you aren't going to, there's not a limitation as to the number of um, stalls that can be used on a side street or is that not correct? So uh, the, the per block limitation does not apply to the side streets. It focuses on Mass Street. However, there are um, locational limitations on the side streets that are going to limit which spaces are actually eligible um, due to the 30-foot setback requirement from um, not only the intersections on either side, but also the alleyways. Um, and, and that was due to a lot of feedback that we got around, um, you know, trucks and traffic coming out of those alleys and not being able to see past some of the parklets. Um, and so we worked with MSO on um, making sure that there was adequate clearance uh, requirements. So, so there would be, um, you know, much more uh, limitations in terms of which spaces would be eligible to be utilized on those on those uh, east west streets. Okay, great. That makes sense. Randy. Randy. Yes, this is Randy Larkin, Deputy uh, City Attorney. Yes, they would be limited to twelve as well. It's, it's per block, so there's a block between New Hampshire and Massachusetts, and Massachusetts and and uh, Vermont or New Hampshire. And there would be only 12 allowed on each of those blocks as well. But I don't think we could get 12 on there. So I think, as Abby says, it's, it's kind of a moot point. There probably won't be that many on each of those blocks. Okay. Thank you. A couple quick questions. It says the, flo the, the flowing material, lots of material, needs to be non-combustible. 
Um, I mean, I know most of the, them are now like decking, like wood decking. Is that considered non-combustible or is, or, or is everyone going to need to pull that out and put in metal or something else? Brick. Um, so, so if either, um, I think Jeff or, um, somebody from the fire department may be able to speak to specific materials. Um, typically in ordinances such as these cities will not provide a specific list of materials since, you know, materials are changing so often, but there will be uh, recommend, there will be standards around, you know, being non-combustible, being weather resilient, um, being sturdy and able to hold a, you know, certain amount of weight. Um, and rather than having specific materials, and then those materials would be reviewed at the site plan level as applicants are, you know, bringing forward what what kind and identifying the kinds of materials they're planning to use. Um, city staff would be reviewing that to make sure that those are appropriate. Chris King, did you have a comment on that? I was going to, but Abby uh, did it great. <laughs> No, I didn't mean to steal your fire. Oh, no, but... you did. You did a great job, really. Chris King, no. uh, division chief of prevention oh, with fire and medical. Um, yeah, so there are lots of different uh, design options, right? Uh, there's elevated uh, decks that, uh, that people use on roofs that are non-combustible. Um, those can be utilized um, uh, in in this instance. Uh, the it kind of ties into uh, the building code and uh, the fire separation distance is identified in that code. And that's kind of why we're trying to maintain that uh, those separation distances per that code. And, that, and in, the, in the administrative regulations that's identified, uh, that would be, those would be followed as well, so. But I guess I'm asking, I understand what you're saying and I understand that, but I mean, you've been on most of, you've probably walked through most of ours. I mean, are you thinking, I mean, decking material, everyone's going to have to pull those out and put in new new decking? Um, or do you think some of them qualify? Or do you have any idea? Um, we would have to get uh, uh, specific information on each uh, parklet, if you would. Um, uh, we haven't obtained that information. Um, uh, there, uh, There is, in the regulations, there's, um, and I don't know if it's in the regulations or it's actually in the ordinance that talks about um, uh, the sunset date or allowance uh, compliance uh, window of, of coming into compliance for long-term uh, parklets. And Abby, you may be able to speak to that. Yes, that, that, that was my follow-up question. How long, what's the timing of this? Um, so I think uh, I, I'll pass it to uh, Sherry to um, speak to the specific dates because there the the dates that have been outlined um, are intended to basically give give people a, a date you know in the fall to to submit their applications to basically say that they're planning to participate in this program um, and then give a little bit of a longer window to actually reach compliance um, and and that's really that's really been structured. 
uh, due to issues of getting contractors out, getting access to materials, um, and making sure that we're being reasonable with the, the business owners, with the licensees that may need to make modifications to their parklets or may need to build uh, a new parklet, depending on uh, what level of compliance they're currently at. Um, but, but I think city staff might be able to speak to those specific dates. Well, this is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. I think I can answer that. Uh, currently, if you have an existing parklet or existing sidewalk dining, you have until September 2nd to file an application that you want to continue with that. If you do not do that, then you need to remove your materials. And then from that point in time, you would have until January 1 of 2023 to come into compliance with the current or whatever has been proposed or whatever has passed. And then as it goes forward, as, as other people apply for these types of parklets or sidewalk dining, then they need to pre-apply to determine whether there's any eligible spaces. And then once that has been approved, then they would have 14 days to make a formal application. And then after that, they'd have 60 days to get site plan approval. And if there's other issues, then they can get an additional 60 days beyond that. So would the payment be due on the day of application? Yes, we would hold that currently. And, and then if something happens, they might they may get a refund or may not get a refund depending on what happens. But Thank that's you. to hold hold it, you know, to hold the space basically. Last question. I read the 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 the, the section on HEDOs to say you can have two HEDOs per stall or if you can meet the distance requirements. But Abby, I thought you said you limited it to two people per stall. That's not how I read that paragraph. Am I reading that wrong? Um, so if I understand correctly, um, you're wondering if if it's a, if there's the ability to expand past two heaters per stall based on the draft of this ordinance. Yes. Um, so we have written it to cap it at two per stall uh, without the ability to extend it. So it would be two per stall and there would be a requirement to, to make sure that those that those heaters are set back at least um, you know five feet from buildings and, and five feet from vegetation and utility uh, poles and overhead structures. And when it, I may I may just jump in there real quick. Chris King, uh, fire prevention. As we amended that section, so it'd be two um, in the in the administrative regulations. It talks about two heaters per parking space, or as allowed by the spacing requirements of the section. So it also talks about um, so if they have uh, larger setbacks from the the exit doors or those sort of um, areas, they may be able to have more than two in those areas. Okay. And so um, the key is, is that they have to maintain, um, obviously, the, um, uh, depending on yeah. how many trees they have next to them or how close they are to the buildings, the exits and those sort of things, or the other, the other items that are listed out, the combustible material, the vegetation, trees, uh, utility poles, those sort of things um, that, that may limit them. But yeah. if they don't have those things, then it may, it, it may might expand it. So. Okay, that's why that's how I read it. Thank you, Chris. That's all I have for now. One more question. Um, hold on, uh, Commissioner Sellers, you got something? You have yeah, your... I got two quick questions. Um, one alludes to uh, what Randy said in regards to the licensing fee. So, in Section Six Dash Twelve Hundred Four C, it states that 
the licensing fee shall, will not be prorated or refunded. So what, as far as the process and mechanism, there's a pre-application. Once the pre-application is approved, then they go into application process. And at that time, the fee is due. And so I guess my question is, if at some point, if they go into site plan approval and the site plan is not approved, because Randy said that it could be refunded, but as it's written down the ordinance, there is no refund. So I guess I, I have a little, I need some clarification on that piece. This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. You're right, Commissioner. Uh, as is written out right now, there does not allow any refunds. But there may be situations where we would probably grant a refund. If it was a revocation or some other type of deal where they did, just didn't do the work, but if they're working toward getting it and it just doesn't work out or something happens and they abandon it, and pull it back, perhaps there might be a situation. But as it's drafted right now, there is, there is no refund Okay. And then looking at the looking at the administrative reg, I noticed that there's the there's well we talk about implementing three of the angled parking spots, parking spaces, and then two of the parallel. Um, but from a capacity standpoint, what does that mean? I, I noticed that we don't limit capacity, and I know that Mr. King is on. Was there any discussion? Uh, within the focus groups around what capacity would look like based on the size of the parklets to perhaps limit capacity or to say capacity shall not exceed this many persons? Um, uh, Chris King, Fire Medical, um, and somebody else can jump in if they need to, or um, I don't recall any uh, discussion specifically um, in regards to the capacity or occupant load uh, for for the uh, the parklets, it would be similar uh, to uh, patios at any other assemblies or or outside dining. Typically, uh, um, with tables and chairs, uh, um, if you had a you know an area, uh, you divide it by uh, by fifteen, and that gives you tables and chairs, and that that would be your occupant load. And so. Um, if you didn't have tables and chairs and if it was a standing room only that would be five right so um but uh we could definitely look at that i think that would be a if, if that would be needed uh, i can step in with this uh this is brad harrell uh, parking supervisor when you compare the square footage of a parallel stall versus an angled stall they are very very close within um i think it's 15 or 20 square foot of each other so when you're talking about overall see i, I bet it's very very close on both of those okay uh, I didn't mean to bring this up now because I do want to try to get to our public comment, but it, it's sort of related and I'm sorry, I don't see where it is right now, but it does say somewhere where, um, and I, I thought it was a little too specific. It, it does ask that the people be sitting at, at tables. Um, I wasn't sure how we were going to um, um, enforce something like that. Um, Abby, do you, do you know? Um, could you refer to the yeah, specific... Um, 
I'll find it. What if, if anybody has any other questions, um, we can go to the public comment. There's people been waiting a really long time. I got one more question. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Vice mayor. So, um, I'll talk about the, um, back to the pricing part and how equitable it is that and staff can maybe fill me in on this is that, so we're going to charge businesses at a price that's a 60% discount from other parking stalls for there were cars will park. And so, so if we have somebody park in a stall, go to a retail business or another restaurant in town, they're going to pay a 60% higher price for that parking stall than what we're going to charge businesses. How is that equitable? Well, I think why don't we um, let staff think about that because I don't disagree with you, but it's also something we should talk about. <laughs> and I really do want to let people speak. Um, this is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. I just want to address that briefly. The idea was to recapture the loss of the city. So we're not filling those parking spaces 12 hours a day. Now, if the city commission wanted us to, to recapture the full price beyond what we're actually getting paid, we can, we can look into that, but the goal was just to recapture costs. And if the city commission wants something different, we can definitely be directed and we will take direction that way. Okay. Um, with that, let's go ahead and start with public comment here in the room. Nate, you've been waiting so patiently. Thank you, Mayor and Commission. My name is Nate Morshus. I'm the president and co-founder of RPG. I also sit on the board of the Lawrence Restaurant Association. Today, I wish to speak on behalf of my company, RPG. My purpose is to urge the City Commission to pass the ordinance to establish this permanency for the Parklet program. RPG stands for Restaurant, Pub, and Games. You can come to our establishment to eat, drink, and play board games together. Our mission statement is to build community through face-to-face -face interaction. Starting this business six months before the pandemic proved challenging. There are many reasons we have survived this far, the level-headedness of our ownership team, the perseverance of our staff, and one of the primary reasons we are still around today is because of the parklets. During the tight restrictions in Douglas County, it essentially doubled the number of customers we could serve in a safe way, bringing in the increased revenue we needed to survive. However, I have heard from others that the time for parklets is over because it has served its purpose and kept restaurants uh, from closing during the pandemic, but that they are obsolete now. This could not be further from the truth. It may not look like it from the outside, as we see many people going out to eat these days, but we restaurants are still suffering. Many of us had to go deep into debt when we were losing around 80% revenue month over month for two years. We stayed alive, but we now have much more money going out because of debt service. Add to that the soaring costs of goods, fluctuations in community health, and an, and an impending recession whose inflation is hitting the middle and lower classes the hardest. And you'll see that while cash is flowing much better than it was, we as an industry are not at all recovered yet. Moreover, some of us, including RPG, made the decision to pay our staff a living wage. We took a risk when revenue was flat, as we saw the suffering of our staff during the pandemic. While we are more than willing to continue to take that risk, we ask that you not remove a stream of revenue that allows us to pay that living wage. Many restaurants have not been able to afford to make these changes, and removing the parklets from any restaurant downtown only hurts our ability to continue to fight to bring the Lawrence hospitality industry into the more equitable labor model of the 21st century. 
Former County Commissioner Nancy Fellman once said that one in five people in Douglas County work in the hospitality industry. That is 20% of our population. For an industry which impacts the people in our community so comprehensively, it only makes sense that our city offers support where it can. Permanency in the Parklet program will keep restaurants open, staff employed and paid well, and it even makes our downtown area more vibrant and beautiful, promoting even more commerce. I've invested everything into my business, including all of my savings, selling my house, giving of myself into the community, loving my staff, and serving with my and my family's whole hearts. Thank you, City Commission, for your original work to start the temporary uh, parklet program at the beginning of the pandemic. Please make the parklet program permanent for the good of my family, my business, my industry, and the entire community. Thank you. Thank you. Any other comment in the room? Did you want to say anything? My name is Beto from Molcajetes and Tacos of Tequila and Open Local Lime here, um, two blocks down. But in regards to the pricing that you guys will probably speak about, right? Like I think uh, City Attorney Randy Larkin said, I, I get here at 8, 8.30 every morning and everything's empty. Those spaces are empty. Right. So with all due respect, is it not a little greedy to ask for full price on, I mean, take account those spaces that they're using right now that we're going to use are also producing tax dollars that sometimes people just park in a space. Yeah. You make a quarter or two quarters off of it and they go walk and they don't spend money. That's only, this just came up in the next last 20, 30 minutes when we're talking about it. But it, it's just something for you guys to consider that, I mean, I think it's reasonable what they came up with. You know, it's reasonable for us to stay alive, to pay a reasonable price and not get, not have to pay full price. It just seems a little greedy to me, in all honesty, to be asking full price on a thing that you guys don't get full price on anyways. So that's all my, my comments. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else in the room that wants to say anything? Um, let's go online. And um, if you'd like to speak, use the raise your hand function and Sherry will call on you. Um, Lawrence Accountability. Yeah, I'm here. I'm, oh, here's the video start. Somebody was blocking me out. Are we up? We can hear you. Are you ready? Okay. As far as the parklets go, I understand what the gentleman just said, and I can sympathize with his understanding of, of how the city gains money off the parking spaces. However, I'd like to see the overall parking gains that the city has compared to this. Because we all know that it's not just quarters going into the meter, it's tickets being paid in the boxes. And I've personally paid some of those tickets and one of those to Brad Harrell that was for $55. So I would like to see the overall projections and, and actual statistics on what has been earned off parking as a whole before we make that decision on the price. And again, I sympathize with the gentleman on price and I understand the struggles that restaurants are going through. But we're in a situation where we're getting close to and our next topic where we're going to be going against revenue neutral. Well, we're losing revenue here. 
we need to be cautious as a city. And the last thing that I want to say, I, I do find it discouraging that a commissioner is about to ask a question and uh, the mayor stops that question. I think that question was very pertinent to the discussion. You can talk about that in public comment next week. Any more comments on the park? Boy, I thank your sarcasm. Uh, Emily Peterson. Hello, good evening. Uh, I'm Emily Peterson. I'm joining on behalf of the Lawrence Restaurant Association. I'm currently serving as chair of that organization. And I just wanted to read a letter that we drafted with support from other individual businesses in support of the program. So we want to express our continued support for the Parklet program. Um, the benefits are plentiful. Many people have expanded on those tonight. And in particular, the Parklet support the downtown small business economy, providing the opportunity to make the most of demand which ebbs and flows in our college town. Um, for many, the parklets have been indispensable to surviving the pandemic. I'm sure you've heard that from others, but um, this very creative expansion on our normal dining during the restrictions uh, was just wonderful and so appreciated by our hospitality community. Our locally owned hospitality businesses are still recovering from the extreme hardships of pandemic closures and restrictions and face continued challenges with soaring costs of goods labor shortages, fluctuations in community health, and an impending recession. Um, you know, we're not just looking back and trying to recover, we're also looking forward and trying to plan. Parklets allow our businesses to be responsive and flexible and meet guest expectations for outdoor dining options. Um, this is something that I'm not sure that we've really hit on tonight. Um, guests are looking for something different. The pandemic has changed all kinds of consumer behavior, especially how people are looking to dine out. Um, and as we talk about Lawrence as a dining destination, and you know, earlier in the meeting when we were talking about downtown Lawrence being such a draw for all kinds of different industry recruiting to get people to live here and work here, um, it's really important we're looking at all those aspects. Uh, we support the need for structured and consistent approach, both for aesthetics and safe operations. And we encourage the commission to maintain the public space option for parklets. Um, the expanded sidewalk dining is critical for establishments that are located mid-block um, in front of accessible parking stalls or otherwise without storefront or adjacent parking. I know that that was discussed a little bit earlier and Abby expanded on that, but there are many. I mean, I think you could probably count at least one or if not two per block that are utilizing those spaces without other opportunities for a direct sight line to a parking space. Um, and we want to take this opportunity to also thank the commission and the city and multi-studio for offering the program. Um, it, it truly has been a lifeline. Um, our downtown landscape of hospitality businesses would look very different without this program. Um, we look forward to the future of the program and working together to keep Lawrence a top dining destination. And Lawrence Restaurant Association just wants to continue to reinforce that, that we're here to be a partner and work through anything we can to collaboratively approach outdoor dining um, for hopefully years to come. So as an organization, um, those are our sentiments. And then also several business owners wanted to add their name to this uh, communication. That includes Archibald's, The Bourgeois Pig, Burger Stand, Dempsey's, East Lawrence Wine Academy. Hi. Thanks. Thank you. Yep. Looks like that is all the comments, Mayor. Oh, well. Okay. Yeah, that's it. Uh, let's bring it back to the commission. Um, Abby, I found it. It's um, in the guidelines under alcohol. Um, E2. 
uh, possession and consumption of alcohol in hospitality areas is limited to patrons sitting at tables. So um, that's probably why I didn't recall it. So, so that is something that I believe, and I think Randy may be able to verify this, but something that's been pulled over from the um, current sidewalk dining program. So making those alcohol standards uh, consistent. So that may have to do with uh, state regulations regarding serving alcohol in the, in the right of way. This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. I believe Abby's correct in that we, so we don't have this uh, beer garden, up, you know, where people stand around and, and, and imbibe. So there's tables and they sit. And it's not a just a, a party deck, per se. Yeah. And actually, that leads me to one of my other questions, and maybe for Sherry, it seems like there's kind of two things happening here with the alcohol. If they um, if someone were to violate some of those, I feel like, you know, if I saw someone just standing around on the sidewalk in between the white lines, that would be something I would notify Sherry of as our city clerk. But if it's more about the building codes and the safety of the structure, then um, and this is something I was asked by some members um, of downtown, you know, who do I, who would they complain to? Would they call um, code enforcement if they saw an unsafe structure or something that was um, not according to, to our changes here? I, well, Brandy may want to add to this, but I would say typically when the license, I mean, they could call either, but generally people call my office and then um, if there's issues with, you know, cause it's related to the, uh, um, to the license. And then that becomes an issue, a communication between myself and code enforcement for them to go look and assess the issue. That's typically how we, we handle those things. That's how we handle it currently with sidewalk dining. And that would be the expectation on this as well. Doesn't mean people cannot call code enforcement directly, but it would be a communication between those, our two offices, regardless of where someone started. Any other comments? Um, I, I was also a little concerned with under site plan um, that, and I think Abby mentioned this, that um, some things may be approved or reviewed by Historic Resources Commission. And I think there's another place where it sort of very vaguely says, you know, um, that it be um, generally in the way of downtown looking. Some of that stuff's really vague and has become problematic in the past. Does anyone want to talk about how you arrived at that language? So that was language that, um, and, and, and I, I guess I'll first say that, you know, we worked with, um, you know, as many staff people as possible to try to properly vet the standards um, and revise them based off of staff feedback. And um, that was a component that was, I, I believe, brought over the language that's in the sidewalk dining program and brought over. It does create, um, you, you could say it's a, a little bit vague in terms of the materials. Uh, the, it's also intended to provide a little bit of flexibility and what kinds of materials could be utilized while also um, creating kind of a, a a barrier that that 
enables staff review for materials so that, you know, materials that are potentially inappropriate or not being uh, implemented for the parklets. Um, but that's something that's really been been brought over from the current sidewalk dining standards to, to reinforce um, consistency amongst the two programs. Um, and one last thing, um, the public areas you were discussing, which are not included here, I don't I don't want to fight that battle today, but it does look to me like there's at least three businesses using them right now. Yes. Um, and I think I even heard some of them listed in this letter earlier in our public comment. I do find that a little concerning. Um, uh, without opening a can of worms, could that be something on a case by case basis where obviously the safety and the sight lines are what's most important? So um, as this program has been set up, it could be amended to include those spaces in it. Um, that has not been drafted that way at this time due to, you know, the, the additional considerations that I think need to be made by, by staff to have a proper recommendation specifically pertaining to those spaces. Um, there, there's also an issue of overlapping licensing uh, and licenses that are, that are using those spaces in addition to potentially having dining. Um, I know, Mark, if you wanted to comment on some of the concerns you had as well from the perspective of, of those spaces being public parks currently. Yeah, Mark Hecker, Assistant Director. So we, we did discuss those at length. Um, what happens in those public spaces, especially mid-block, if you figure the city's already put in brick pavers and established a nice uh, smooth area for you to operate on, then the city's also maintaining a planter around that. So those businesses would literally have no expense to set up a parklet, whereas all the other businesses would have substantial expense to set up a, their own uh, containment area. And in those public spaces, those are basically designed as a gathering spot for people to gather and cross the street. So either at the corners or mid blocks. So if if you figure you might have a parklet on both sides of that, you're really restricting that flow of traffic or, or pedestrian traffic. So I think if we go that direction, we'd need to have a lot more thought on, on what the fee would be and how, what the limitations would be, what the setback off the crosswalks would be. Um, it, it's a little more than we were able to fit into this program with this first run through this ordinance. Thank you all. Uh, any other questions? I would like to go back to that equity issue on pricing. Um, if somebody could address that. Mark Ecker, System Director, could you refresh our memory on Sure. Sorry about that. Sorry. Um, so you have the business that's renting the space and they're getting a, about a 60% discount on that parking space. So somebody comes up beside that and parks there, goes into a retail store or goes into another restaurant. They are effectively paying a 60% higher price for that same spot or a spot just adjacent to it. And so we're charging businesses less than the average citizen who comes in and wants to shop. How is that equitable? Randy, did you have a thought on that on sparse? This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. Once again, we were seeking to recapture the cost that would be lost to the city because those parking spaces are not used 12 hours a day. We get about $1,000, $1,093 $1, a day 
per parking space or per year per parking space. And we're trying to recapture that cost. If the, if the direction of the city commission is for us to recapture more costs, then that's fine. But that was the purpose of setting this was to recapture our costs so we didn't lose any money on it. Well, I, I did. I'm sorry. Was was that all, Randy? Sorry. Yes, that's it. I mean, that's, that was that was the set. It was the original price, from what I recall, when we first did a draft, was six fifty, and it was eight fifty. Then we determined that the actual cost of per what the city was uh, obtaining through the parking meter, which was a thousand ninety three per year. So we said that a thousand just to round off the number. Sure. Okay. Well, I'm looking at our budget um, for 2023. And when you indicate that it's a matter of cost recovery, I'm looking at our parking budget, and we're actually going to be in the hole by $225,000 according to our 2023 budget projection that um, we are expending more than our revenue, projected revenue. So I'm concerned that we're maybe not looking at the whole picture um, as to what cost recovery is. And also... um, a few years ago, we did a parking plan that, and it, and there was 19 points out of that of items that we that was recommended to to enhance our parking situation. So if if the revenue, if you would charge exactly, you know, actually what what it would cost to park there for eight and a half hours, which is what we the time we charge, seems like we could start using some of that money to uh, to address some of those issues um, in our parking recommendation and also um, balance our budget because it's not balanced for 2023 according to the projections. Randy, this is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. Again, the $1,000 was to recapture our costs. It's merely a recommendation. If the city commission wants to direct that it be more, we will gladly put that in the ordinance. So, Commissioner Lawson, will you vote for it if we change change it to twenty five hundred? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I also wanted to ask about: Did we consider doing a part year, doing a part year program for the summer, spring, fall versus the whole year? Okay. Oh, go ahead, Mark. Yeah, we we honestly we looked at that at length, and several people recommended that. Well, we basically came up with through talking with quite a few people, cost to construct those platforms and then take them out and then put them back in is pretty high. So most people, when we start looking at it that way, they would just basically pay for the full year program. Uh, the other thing we looked at was some type of modular system that could be purchased maybe by the city and and then rented to participants. We weren't able to actually find anyone who was doing that with an angle parking setup. There are multiple companies who do them on the for the for the parallel parking. But yeah, I think that would take more research if we wanted to go down that road to make it more of a program that you could come in, put them in, use them for six months and pull them back out, store them, bring them back later. So I, I think that is something maybe we continue to research and see if we can find alternatives. And can I add to that? Um, we also discussed um, the impact on staff time. So when we talk about cost recovery, that's hugely impactful on staff having to inspect it when they remove it and then reinspect when they put it back in. So as opposed to doing that once on the initial install, once a year doing a walkthrough to make sure it's compliant, we would have to inspect to make sure that the parking space or the sidewalk had gone back to 
way, the way it was prior to, and then inspect it again when they reassembled it. So that's one of the reasons we didn't see that there was a benefit to that. I'll also add that um, as, as parklets are being installed, MSO will be um, responsible for installing and bolting the wheel stops as well as the vertical reflective posts, which will, would take you know, additional staff time if they were taken in and out and in and out each year. Mayor. Yes. Just as Commissioner Sellers, I have a quick question for Brad. And I can't remember when we initially had this conversation, if we discussed this or if I'm just imagining it, but on a typical day, week, do you know what percentage of capacity and parking spots downtown do we utilize? So whether it's a given day, a given week, what percentage of parking spots are being utilized on a daily or weekly basis? Um, this is uh, Brad Harrell, parking supervisor. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, yes, we did have that conversation. So um, our um, new um, parking enforcement system um, utilizes license plate recognition. So we are collecting occupancy data um, you know, every hour that we're out. Um, and so I, I do have that data. Um, if it's something, you know, I, I do have it in a graph form. If you'd like me to just kind of share with it, um, I might have to have Porter allow me to share. You can share, Brad. Okay, so this is um, this is our two-hour our two-hour lot. So um, there's a few of these that were left out there a little bit further away from, um, you know, kind of the core of downtown. But this shows you kind of the 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 graph of that. Here is. Um, the average two hour lots together, you can see, you know, at any given day where, you know, we top out somewhere right below 80%. Um, and then that kind of goes down here with this trend. Our parking garage is down below uh, the light blue here that you see that is our New Hampshire Street garage, which um, um, kind of has a max obviously I think it's 57 somewhere along that line. And here is our average use of our garages um, uh, throughout the day all combined. Um, I also have Massachusetts Street as well, but um, as you can kind of get an idea from this, um, this data here, um, we, we do have, you know, ample availability when you're looking at our, our downtown as a whole. Uh, Mass Street is a, a two-hour maximum right now, um, so I think it really has a good indication to look at kind of the same use here, except for these two-hour lots are actually two-hour free lots. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers or if you'd like more data, I can certainly provide it. No, I, th this is perfect. I, I just wanted us to be able to look at where we're at as it relates to capacity since we don't enforce parking seven days a week and we don't enforce it on holidays. So it'd be, it'd just be, it was good to know where we are capacity wise as we look at discussions around whether or not $1,000 is adequate or even considered equitable in this case. Randy, this is a question for you. I mean, I think with these regulations, which I'm not saying this in a bad way, but in a good way, I think there's gonna be quite a few people who have their current um, parklets that are gonna decide they're not going to comply with these regulations. You know, they'll take 15, 20, $25,000 to build something in compliance here. As I read this, if someone 
someone has to pull out the permit by pull out the parklet by September second, unless they submit an application and pay the fee. I mean, what if they do they? I mean, what are we talking about in the application? I mean, I've kind of read those things, but if they have to have a fully compliant plan, notating what each of those structures are going to be, how they're going to comply with it, and then what if they never? proceed forward with that or what if their plan doesn't meet do they still get to go all the way to january 2023 is there some place in the process where we can say you're not really complying here you're done before january 1 2023 this is randy larkin deputy city attorney as is currently drafted they have until september 2nd to apply and then they would have until january 1 of 2023 to come into compliance if they're not in compliance don't have an approved site plan, aren't in compliance with their site plan, then they're done out of the program. So that they'll have that period of time. So they would have a little bit of leeway and hopefully they're gonna make make progress toward meeting those standards. And they, but they do have to, what if they don't have a compliant site plan within the 60 days? What if they just don't, what if they submit something it's, it's barely qualifies and then they don't do anything else? Does all they have to do is do it once, or do they have to have a compliant site plan within the sixty days? They need to they need to have a compliant site plan, but then of course then there might be they might be working through it, and then they could get an additional sixty days, and that would basically take us to to January one. We just okay. wanted to allow them the opportunity to be able to put and and make the construction and do the work to put it in, and if they don't, then they're out of the program. And if the, if the commission wanted to make it a less time, that, that's fine. That was just uh, how it was, how it was evolved. Yeah. Well, I think it makes sense for those who are really trying. I guess I just don't want people who aren't really, I guess they, have to, they do have to pay the fee and it's non-refundable. So I guess that's something, but, and, uh, okay. And I guess I'm, I'm, I think you're going to get a lot of questions between now and September 2nd which is how does how does my current um, setup you know comply in particular does my decking comply does my siding comply because it makes a big difference to them before they pay the fee if they think it complies and they think they only have to spend two or three thousand dollars to come into compliance that's one thing but if everyone's deck is going to have to be pulled out and everyone's siding is going to be pulled out and everyone's going to have to start over, they're going to want to know that before they submit an application. Um, so I hope Chris and, and staff is ready to answer questions between now and September 2nd, assuming we pass something tonight, because those are going to be a whole lot of questions um, before those site plans get submitted. Yep. I would agree. I mean, not only those, but other questions as well. So, would there be any interest in the commission to talk about the number of spaces, 12 per block, um, whether or not there would be consideration for lowering that to eight? Um, I would talk about it with you, but we're on the wrong side of that argument. Oh. <laughs> and I, I wasn't sure it was um, worth arguing with. Well, I don't see how we could do first come, first serve and decide. Um, which businesses can and can't have it. I, I'm not sure I understand um, how that's equitable either. Um, was any other commissioners would be in interested in that, that discussion at all? What discussion? 12 spots per block versus um, 
bumping it down to eight. What's the rationale for bumping it down to eight? Well, just because if a or, because if an organization if a business can have three up to three spots, eight's not gonna it's not a clean number. So we're talking about nine as opposed to twelve. Yeah, nine, sure. Um, just just to keep this. more parking spaces open for retail customers. Although it's not not on the agenda tonight, I did ask. Right. I am interested in getting rid of the fifteen minute ones and opening up four more parking spots spots on every block. Yeah, I, but that might be something for another yeah. another night. But yeah. I'd be very interested in that. I I don't think those fifteen me fifteen minute meetings are well used, and that could open up more parking. Do you care about the twelve? Oh, I care. Well, <laughs> keep it. Keep. I prefer to be keep it. Do you think the first come first serve is problematic? Um, I'm really not comfortable with the process as whole as it speak as it, it also as it relates to the site the pre application application. Like I get it, but um. The mechanism with the licensing fee, and I, I, I guess I'm trying to associate it with what we do with child care licensing, where you pay for backgrounds and license, and you pay for your license when you apply. But there's also a site plan that's reviewed with a surveyor or a regional administrator or a district specialist who reviews your 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 site plan. And yes, it's not refundable, but you're working towards approving the person. So, unless we are going to we're going to approve someone, unless the goal is not to get the entity to approval, then I feel like there needs to be a mechanism in place for the refund. The first come, first serve. I I don't know. I'm something's not. Driving with me on it, but I also I'd like to know your concerns about equity on it. Well, I don't see how I can if there's a block that has four or five restaurants. I don't see how I can tell one restaurant that they um, don't deserve the same opportunity to have a parklet any more than I would say that about a retailer. Maybe four retailers want to get together and put decking up and and make a whole space. You're you're limiting what other people can do. So, what would be the alternative? Unlimited parklets. Unlimited, unlimited parklets. <laughs> I don't think I could go there. I don't think. <laughs> and since some of since we've now sort of figured out those um, the corners are basically off that's probably reducing some of the ones that we're seeing right now. Well, three at least that I can think of off the top of my head. I mean, that's another topic I'm interested at some other point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I'm not a big fan of the first come first serve, but I've yet to come up with a better way to, to do it. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I haven't come up with a better way to do it. So I would, I would refer back to our consultants on this and what you've seen in other communities. Has that been the standard of practice that's first come first serve or? So um, actually, no, typically parklet programs are dealing with um, uh, the scope of the program is citywide. And so they don't necessarily have the situation where you have parklets uh, concentrating on one block and then causing the kinds of issues that we're seeing in downtown Lawrence. Um, we we did see in, in one program, and I believe it was Benton, Arkansas, where they had a maximum on the downtown scale um, for the program. So rather than a per block scale, it was, you know, for the downtown area. And so um, that that's where we've seen it. It's not really a standard practice, but it's something that we recommended based off of the feedback that we got from stakeholders and really trying to consider the 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 concerns that some of the retailers had about over concentration of parklets and um concerns about, you know, what what if the entire block becomes parklets? Um, that was a, a concern of some of the, the retailers. And so um, we wanted to recommend that as kind of a stopgap in order to uh, ensure that that uh, that wouldn't happen and that parklets would be able to um, coexist with the parking in the downtown area. Right. Thank you. Because I, I mean, because I, I get that piece. The idea is that we do have some blocks that are more heavily restaurant than they are retail. And I can see why there would be some concern from the retail community that if there wasn't a stopgap, that there may be some continued inundation of parklets, which would speak to, could speak to part of their concern around um, accessibility uh, for, for patrons. Um, but I also recognize that parking is not just for retail folks, it's for restaurateurs as well. So, you know, the beauty of this is that if it doesn't work for, you know, if we see that this mechanism is not working, we can always come back and, and change it. Um, I think to other commissioners points, I, I don't have another, I don't have an alternative in mind. So, um, First come, first serve might just be the unorthodox measure that we would have to utilize right now until something comes to mind at a decent time of night or day for us mm -hmm. to think about. Um, and so. I was going to add that, uh, again, you know, it's only an issue, of course, if you have that many people. And, it's, and I don't know if Abby or anyone did had he got any estimates from other places about how much it costs to build something to come into compliance? But I've had several people tell me they're thinking, you know, twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars. You know, you have wrought iron fences and non-combustible metals and twenty-five to thirty-six inches, and in that you're probably not actually going to get that many people who are willing to come into compliance to this, given the cost. Right. Um, but do you have any feel for that, Abby, of of costs in other locations? So. Uh, yeah, that's correct. The The last estimates that I was looking at, I believe, were from late 2020, where people were quoting 15 to 20. 
I would add 30% to that, maybe 40% to that. So I, I bet it's getting closer to 30,000, depending on the level um, of, of investment, investment and customization that licensees are planning to put into this. Um, but, but I think that there are some existing parklets that may come, come close um, to complying with the standards that have been drafted and so may be able to have a, a, a smaller amount of additional investment uh, than $30,000. But I think you're, you're right on that it is around 20 to 30 if you were to build a brand new parklet. So it's going to be somewhat uncommon to get a lot of people. I mean, I don't think we'll have too many first come for surf battles, but... Mark Hecker, Assistant Director, I might give you a little background on the 12. So we, we heard the most concerns of the 700 block where there are 12 stalls being used for parklets. So that's kind of how we got to that number. And the thinking on first come, first serve is that we wouldn't add another parklet to that block unless one of the others decided not to continue with the program. So that's a little bit of the rationale reasoning, uh, right or wrong. That was us trying to say, if you have a parklet, you'll have an opportunity to to stay in the program if you want to comply. But, um, you know, on the other blocks where there might be only three or four stalls being used, first come, first serve may never come into play. So. Are you kind of saying that um, some of your thought about the cost, the thousand dollars or more is somewhat colored by how much you think people need to spend in order to have one of these? Or are you comfortable with, I think $1,000 is low. Um, I'm not sure 2,500 is where I could go. Um, but um, that only amounts to, I think I want $1.70 a day or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do. I mean, my, my initial reaction was $1,000 was low too. Um, but yes, I guess I, I'm somewhat colored from the fact that I think it's it's going to be really expensive to comply with these and and I I, I mean I'm not sure if Abby's right or not that many are close to compliance or not. Um, I've talked to a you know, you know a couple that I would have thought would be close to compliance and they're like oh I have to move mine 12 inches because I'm not 48 inches away now I have to move my entrance because I don't meet the 48 inches and I have to you know, you know, my ADA, my ADA is not quite right or something, you know, I'm, and so those, you know, small changes make, you know, big things or the, the walls are 48 inches high and they can be no longer higher than 45 inches high. So they have to pull out all the walls and put them back in. Um, and so, yes, it's colored somewhat by that. Um, and so, um, that is probably why I'm more comfortable with a thousand. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily be opposed, which is why I asked the question if, you know, if, if you're slightly higher, if that made, you know, commissioners happier, I'd probably not be completely opposed to that. And frankly, like I said, between, if you're going to spend $30,000 on the spot, you know, the fee is n not as big. I mean, it's a, a fraction of what else you're spending. Um, and so I, I might be okay with something slightly higher, but, I'm pretty comfortable with what's recommended as well. 
Commissioner Sellers, did you, I didn't hear you say anything particularly about the cost. You asked about some stuff about parking, but was $1,000 low to you, reasonable to you? Um, the $1,000 was reasonable only because we haven't put mechanisms in place to, to kind of, that alludes to what Commissioner Finkel and I brought up to do that initial assessment with um, business owners who are interested in a parklet or those who have existing parklets of what it will look like to bring them into compliance. And so, you know, I would entertain a motion, you know, I would entertain discussion around maybe a slight increase. Um, I don't want us to meet that $2,500 threshold because I don't think that's, that's equitable and it doesn't, we're comparing apples to oranges and that piece as it relates to a business and them using the space when we don't actually recoup money from a parking space 365 days a year. So, um, you know, I don't think charging a full $2,500 per se uh, would be equitable, um, but maybe a slight increase in, in, in about the fee. Um, I would be open to those discussions. Um, I wouldn't want it to be to exceed too much simply because we know that these businesses that will take on that burden and will, that would take on that cost burden. Um, I, I think that that's a little bit that needs, to, I, I don't know, I just, I, I'm not, if we're just trying to cover costs, then it's good where it's at. If we feel like there needs to be an additional recuperation, recoupment, then we need to say that and discuss what that amount's gonna look like. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm open for discussion, but I don't wanna increase it too terribly much. And then it fits within what was outlined to us on the um, slide that was shared during the presentation. How about half, like 1250, 2500, like, my brain is slowly working, <laughs> whatever is above that. Well, I would note, by the way, and maybe I did see in one of the, the, we're actually raising the sidewalk dining license as part of this from right. 350 a square foot to $5 a square foot. Is that true? That's correct. Okay. It's been the same since it was implemented. No. Um, we so I don't want that to be on that. So. I mean, that's, that hasn't been too public out there that we're raising the fee. Um, and, but I mean, that's a, I mean, again, the, but my point of bringing that up besides one, making sure it's clear that that fee is going up as well as we can always change the fee right. in future years. I mean, it's a yearly license and, and we can change the fee. Maybe we start where we're at now and then, and then, you know, reconsider later because it is a yearly fee. And I think that makes sense. We haven't given this opportunity to breathe and be implemented. Um, I mean, we're, we're not, I would like for us to just give it a chance at the current rate, knowing what we know and that because of the costs that will be associated with ensuring that businesses are using the approved products uh, and materials to build out these parklets, that's an additional cost. We know that businesses downtown 
are going to generate sales tax dollars. We know that they're generating the sales tax dollars from the utilization of the parklet. So, I mean, if we need to revisit, then I think we can revisit. I just think it might we might be moving just a little prematurely to want to jump the price up too much, especially without a good solid rationale as to why we're going to do it. Um, okay. is, I'm fine with it. Is, yeah, if then, uh, 2000, 3000. yeah, unless there's anything else, I would entertain a motion then. Well, I, I would like to say a few things. Sure. First, please. So, um, you know, when this, when the pandemic started, uh, we came up with a park, parklet plan and I, I thought it was really good. And I still think parklets are, are going to be part of our downtown. And I think they're very positive. Um, but many of those re retailers actually gave up parking spaces to their fellow restaurant person adjacent to them um, in order for them to expand out more than the two that was I think that was originally allowed so those retailers gave up some of those spots to help out the restaurants to help out their fellow restaurant neighbor and you know I thought that was great everybody was pitching in trying to find a way to make this work during the pandemic but it was under the guise that um, the retailers are under the guise that this is temporary. This is only going to be temporary. And so we're into our third year now of this temporary situation. And I appreciate how successful they've been. And I, I like I said, I do think they um, provide some level of positive, but it's how it's implemented. And so now if we implement the plan that's brought before us, we're essentially telling the retailers that we're going to give the businesses a, a pretty steep discount on that parking space but your customers are going to still have to pay the going rate for parking and so they're really getting the short end of the stick retailers are on this this whole program um so i i would again just ask that this you know, the commission considers that and when you talk about cost recovery what we're trying to do is cost recovery i don't know how we can say that honestly when our projected budget for 2023 is showing a 225,000 deficit spending mm -hmm. for 2023 and we've got a parking plan that we're trying to implement that has 19 points on it that we're we're wanting to um to upgrade our parking system and so I don't see where we're saying that's, that we can say that that's cost recovery because we've got a lot of expenses that aren't being covered um, according to our budget. So, you know, I would just ask the, consider, the commission to consider that. Our retailers are, are really getting the short end of this if we go through with this. Well, I would only point out that people who dine in restaurants also theoretically have to park somewhere. Right. Um, Brad, um, not to take. Spend more money on parking um, and and hear me out. Um, if I park in a spot and I use the app, I pay a dollar twenty five. I leave early. The next person coming in using the app cannot tell that I have prepaid. They pay another dollar twenty five. Um, whereas if, when you're using quarters, that's not the case. I can see that I've got twenty minutes left. Lucky me, I use the twenty minutes. Do you anticipate, as I do, that we will actually make more money than we anticipated? Um, when you say make more money than we anticipated, I, I, I know at times, um, you know, people that, uh, but I would, um, I would kind of show this to you in a little bit different way. So if you park on mass in the 900 block 
and you drive down to the 800 block and you happen to pull up that meter that's not paid, you would have to pay there with coin as well. And so I, I think it's um, negligible when, you, when you're thinking about the overall revenue that comes from it. Because, um, like I said, as yes, some people pay with coin still, but uh, they have the ability to pay with the app. And most of those minimums um, on there is all those are kind of set by our, um, our vendors through the mobile apps. And while we've got Brad, I'd really, really like, you know, again, not to add more to our future agendas, <laughs> but uh, to look at those 15 minute meters and maybe have a recommendation from you guys on the 15 minute meters and open up some more long term parking. Yeah. And has it been a year yet since we put the new app in? I would love a book report about the data you've collected. Um, absolutely. I could prepare all that data for you. Um, in relation to the 15-minute uh, meters, Brad uh, Finkeldye, sorry about my pup here. Um, I have already uh, done some occupancy data on those stalls. Um, they are at, um, you know, peak around 40% and then uh, rest of survey times around 30% occupied. So I already have um, kind of city manager report repaired to come to you, um, determining what whatever happens from uh, today's meeting for your recommendations. So uh, I, I can have that to you in short order as well. Thank you. Uh, with that, it is 11.50 and we do have one actual item after this, which we actually have to do. Yes. Um, so do I have any motions? I move adoption of um, first reading ordinance number 9928, establishing the sidewalk park with hospitality areas in the city of Lawrence, Kansas, downtown district. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Nay. I have um, that passes four to one. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Abby. Um, where'd everyone else go? Oh, thank you, Mark. <laughs> Let's move on to our last item. And Jeremy, I see you're on there. I'll let you take it away. Yes, good evening, everybody. Give me just one second. <clears throat> Is that oh, good morning or good evening? <laughs> We need to extend. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I apologize. If, if, if you start it, oh, it's already. Uh, oh, it's right past eleven. So, oh. so <laughs> sorry. It's all right. Yes, you do. Uh, do I have any motions? <laughs> Move to extend the meeting twenty minutes. Yep. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Go ahead, Jeremy. Sorry about that. No problem. Good evening, Jeremy Wilmoth, Director of Finance. Want to run through a quick presentation on the uh, revenue neutral rate. At the end, we'll be asking that the City Commission authorize us to uh, inform Douglas County of uh, our desire to exceed the revenue neutral rate per the state law. Just real quick on the budget calendar, uh, we first came before you May 17th to talk about uh, policy guidance for the city manager's recommended budget and provide a presentation on the performance-based budgeting uh, system that we utilized. On June 21st, we provided the uh, first draft, if you will, of the capital improvement plan. Uh, just last week, we provided the city recommend 
the city manager's recommended budget and recommended CIP. And tonight we're requesting that the city commission establish a maximum expenditure and authorized publication of the notice of hearing and the revenue neutral rate hearing. And to, uh, as I said, direct staff to contact Douglas County and inform them of our intention to exceed the revenue neutral rate per state law. Just a reminder of the, uh, the revenue uh, mill levy that we're requesting. Uh, after discussion last week, we did increase the uh, mill levy so that the city's mill levy is flat. The increase to the levy is for the library of 0 0.077. So the total requested levy uh, that will be on the um, revenue neutral rate hearing that we submit to the county and uh, what will be published in the paper will be 33.367 mills, which is 0 0.07 higher than our current mill levy of 33.29 mills. Again, a definition of the revenue neutral rate as uh, defined in state law is a mill levy required to raise the same amount of property tax revenue as the prior year using the current year assessed valuation. So the current year assessed valuation is just over 1.3 billion. Uh, so the revenue neutral rate, the revenue, the rate that would be required to uh, generate the same amount of tax as 22 would be 29.075. Our current mill, as I said, is 33.29. The proposed mill is 33.367. And the blurb at the bottom, again, is just a notice that tonight we're establishing the maximum levy. You're, you always have the freedom and the authority to lower that levy between now and the time of your final adoption of the budget. Um, but you will not be able to go above whatever number you establish tonight as the maximum authorized levy for the 2023 budget. So uh, should the city commission choose to exceed the revenue neutral rate as staff is re uh, recommending, uh, we'll need to hold a revenue neutral rate hearing as well as the budget hearing. The state law does allow for those to happen at the same time, but they are two separate hearings. Um, the revenue neutral rate can only, hearing can only occur between August 20th and September 20th. That's why we're requesting a uh, special called meeting uh, on August 23rd to hold both the revenue neutral rate hearing and the um, budget hearing. And then should you follow the statute uh, to authorize the um, exceeding the revenue neutral rate, the budget is required to be certified to the county clerk by October 1st. Just want to remind you of those dates. So tonight you'll see in your packet, there is a notice to the county. Uh, that notice is compliant with the state law that amended the uh, revenue neutral rate process uh, with the substitute for House Bill 2239. Uh, so the statement that we're requesting or the, the notice that we're requesting to send to the county is a statement of the intent to exceed the revenue neutral rate. It uh, also has the date, the time and the location of the revenue neutral rate public hearing and the proposed tax rate. And then lastly, um, this is uh, especially pertinent for those who are new to our budget process, but um, there's a state law uh, budget ordinance and the state law budget ordinance states that uh, the city or the municipality, whatever it is, a city, a county, a school district cannot spend money in excess of what is on the state budget form without holding a second public hearing and establishing that the uh, new expenditures are not coming from a property tax. Uh, so you do have the ability to raise your budget above 
uh, for any other revenue type than a property tax. Um, so if, for example, we got a, um, a new fee, you know, you all established a new fee, we could amend the budget to add the revenue for that fee and the expenditures uh, that you would expect to see uh, associated with that fee. Um, and so what we do to provide maximum of, uh, flexibility for the community is we establish a budget state form that has all the revenues that we're anticipating plus all the fund balance we're anticipating as, an, as the expenditure amount. However, because the city wants to be um, good stewards of the, of the public's money, the budget that you all authorize for city staff and the city manager to follow is just that amount that we showed you last week. Um, and so we have a chart to short of, sort of show that difference uh, that I'll show in just a second. And I apologize, it's gonna be very small on the presentation slide. That's why we showed it as an attachment to the presentation uh, so that you can see it a little more clearly. But this is the um, information that will be uh, published in the paper showing the mill levy rate, the revenues expected to be uh, gained from that mill levy, and then the total authorized expenditures uh, for all the funds. And this is the um, all fund summary that we showed last week. There is one caveat. We added that $99,000 to both property taxes. And I think I put it in operating expenses just for the sake of this presentation. And so this is the form I was talking about. To get to the state budget form number, you take the operating budget that we're asking uh, for, plus all the fund balance for the state budget funded funds, and you get uh, $478.22 million. However, the actual amount of budget that uh, we're asking the city commission to consider are all of those funds that are required under state law and these additional funds that are not required under state law that we provide to provide maximum transparency into the funding and the operations of the city. So the, uh, the number for the city's budget is 436 million, or $436.87 And so this chart here is really just to show you that crosswalk between what's on the state form and what's not. All these funds, the airport, the equipment reserve, the capital project fund, et cetera, the, there's uh, state law that does not require that those be uh, budgeted um, from a state law perspective. So we simply budget those for a transparency of public dollars perspective, not a legal requirement to, this, to the state of Kansas. Finally, um, we wanna hear from the public. We obviously heard from a lot of people uh, last week. Um, we do have our public comment system set up through Lawrence Listens. Uh, we also have more information uh, on, the, uh, on the budget on our website. Uh, so that uh, I provided the hyperlink there for anybody who'd like to go uh, check out our website. Um, we also have uh, through our OpenGov system, the portal is active now for people that want to uh, go out and look fund by fund on revenues and expenditures. Um, all of that's available now on our website. So that is my presentation. I'd be happy to answer any questions you all may have. Any questions? Um, is there any public comment? Is there any public comment online? Yes. 
of this real quick. Lawrence accountability. And can you state your name this time, please? Let me mute. Got it. All right. I'm new to the whole Zoom thing. All right. We just went through talking about taxing. We're basically talking about taxing more than what we need to operate, if I'm understanding this correct. We're exceeding revenue neutral. Now, I want to point out to all the taxpayers in Douglas County and Lawrence, everywhere around here, in the last two years, the property that I reside in has had 20.2% increase in assessed tax value on the forms that were sent. 20.2% increase in two years to our assessed values. And now you want to increase that mill levy more. Now, I can tell you that the city finance people may not realize that there's citizens out here that understand budgeting process, but I actually do have a finance background and I'm a little better at that than I am with police policy. So we're gonna be going through the budget and identifying some of the wasteful spending that we're finding and talking about why we need to waste spending while we're increasing mill levies on property taxes that have already been increased the values of the homes mine more than 20%. That's the epitome of tax and spend. And we can't, the citizens of Lawrence aren't going to tolerate that. That's about all I have to say. Sarah Teal. Hi, um, my name is Sarah Goodwin-Teal and I'm the chairperson of the Lawrence Public Library Board of Trustees. And I would just like to thank all of you for this thoughtful study for the city's budget recommendation. I appreciate it so much. And to say again that the increase um, for the public library will allow Lawrence Public Library to implement a compensation plan that achieves fair and equitable pay for library employees, something we've been working towards for many, many years. This necessary one-time course correction also puts the library in a more stable, financial positions for years to come. Um, thank you very much for considering this and to the city manager for recommending this increase. Thank you. Is there anyone else on Zoom who would like to provide comment on this item? If so, please raise your hand. It's all the public comment there. All right, let's bring it back uh, to us because I wasn't paying attention to what 20 minutes looked like. Uh, who wants to start? I'm fine with it. Yes, I am. Um, I'll just say, as we talked about last week, I'd, I'd rather stay at the 33.29 and not the 0 0.077. understand we can lower it later, but that's just my thought process. Well, it's a, I, yes, 
I mean, but I mean, given what Vice Mayor Larson said last week, um, and we do have the ability to lower lower it if we want, but this way, at least, if we do it this way, it doesn't take away from our budget per se. That it's just in addition to, and we can kind of keep those lines demarcation going. Commissioner Sellers, um, I have no comment, but I'm ready to move. Okay. <laughs> I move that we authorize the city to notify Douglas County of the intent of the governing body to propose a tax rate of 33.367 mills, which exceeds the revenue neutral rate as defined by state law for the 2023 budget and schedule both the public hearing to exceed the revenue neutral rate and the 2023 budget hearing on Tuesday, August 23rd of 2022 at 5.45 p.m in the city commission room, First Floor City Hall, for the purpose of hearing and answering objections of taxpayers related to exceeding the revenue neutral rate and the amount of the ad valorem tax and the proposed use of all funds. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 All those opposed? Aye. That passes four to one. Uh, as fast as we can, any commission items? Nope. I have one, but I'll tell you guys about it later. <laughs> we got time. Uh, city manager's report. Uh, thank you, Mayor. There's a number of um, updates on some ongoing projects and just some some different news to report and uh, happy to answer any questions. Any questions? Uh, this is a public comment item. Any public comment? None. Any public comment online? No. Great. Um, I will entertain motions. I was going to say, well, oh. quick, quick on the calendar. Oh, the calendar. To note, I'm I'm going to miss the August second meeting. Going to be on vacation. Why going to be like that? Ribbon cutting. Taking care. What? The ribbon cutting. A day? Yeah, on August second. Well, maybe I'm glad they said that then. Yeah. I do. Oh. I can take it if you want. I uh, yeah, please do. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't realize. I didn't check my calendar on that. Yes, yeah, so if you could cover that, someone would cover that. Be great. I can. Flying out that morning. <clears throat> All right. Thank you. Thank you for checking that. Move to adjourn. Move to adjourn. Did somebody say that already? Nope. Move to adjourn. I have a first. Second. I have a first and second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Thank you, everyone, for staying and um, with us this whole time. I appreciate it.